daughters and sons of noble birth, Dharma masters, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Supreme Assembly, welcome to the Buddhaverse podcast. We return to our question of what is a Buddha, this time putting on our Mahayana glasses. The universe is our home. We are made of it. We dwell in it and it pervades us. But what is it? Where are we? And why is it here at all? If you have the merit to call yourself a Buddhist, you should be able to answer those questions. If an extraterrestrial spaceship landed on my front lawn and spoke English and asked me if I had any questions for them, I would ask, does your planet have the Buddha Dharma? The ultimate is here. It's alive and well. All you have to do is seek it out, pay attention, and listen well. What we need is a Buddhaverse emerging. In other words, we need Nirvana emerging. It's called Enlightenment. I'm sorry for my tardiness in putting this out. With my personal life, Dharma practice, service to my Sangha, and work, it took me a very long time to complete this podcast, but I never gave up, and here we are. So last episode, I covered what a Buddha is from the Theravadan tradition, although obviously that's not possible in one podcast, as there are thousands of discourses in the Pali Canon about the Buddha that gave us deeper insight into his powers, abilities, teaching methods, the extent of his knowledge, and so forth. And like a narcissist, I went back and listened to the podcast again and found several technical glitches and parts where I wish I had explained more, and some places where I picked up some new knowledge and could have given a better exposition, but the past is over, and all I can do is repent here and now in front of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, for any way that I have slandered the Dharma or perhaps misrepresented the Theravan tradition. And if you feel like I could have improved, please let me know in the comments section of the BuddhaversePodcast.com website, although please still give me a five-star rating on all of your favorite streaming websites. Nudge, nudge. Buddhaghosa gave us more than enough to chew on in his recollection of the Buddha's quality section of his text, The Path to Purification. So in terms of who the historical Buddha was, Siddhartha Gautama, the Lion of the Shakyas, the Buddha of our time, the last episode gave you a handful of leaves to examine. But the rest of the leaves in the forest, the true import of who or what the Buddha was, I hope to make some more headway on in this podcast. Hopefully giving you a bag full of leaves, maybe. So with this goal in mind, we will now turn our attention towards the Mahayana tradition, the universal vehicle, also known as the Bodhisattva vehicle, the great ship that brings all sentient beings across the ocean of samsara to the other shore of perfect Buddhahood. In the Mahayana traditions of China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Tibet, Mongolia, Nepal, and Bhutan, which all stem from Nagarjuna, the second-century master of the Madhyamaka, or middle-way philosophy, or as Bob Thurman calls it, the centrist school of philosophy, who of course passed down what are called the Mahayana Sutras from the Buddhist time, 
that were recorded and preserved for a later time in human evolution when humanity was developed enough and the institutions of the Buddha Dharma had established strong footing in India so as to be able to handle the truth, as Jack Nicholson puts it, and for these teachings to be widely disseminated. Now these sutras do not stem from a different Buddha than the Pali scriptures, nor do they represent some later development among some revisionist history monastic communities, but what the Mahayana Sutras give us, the beings of the future, in my worthless opinion, is a full, complete, and accurate accounting of what happened during the Buddha's life and description of the entire path to Buddhahood, which includes the Bodhisattva path, which is open to all who make the vow to deliver all sentient beings to perfect enlightenment, and building upon this view the tantric or highly advanced path to expedite the process of awakening for those who vow to achieve this result as quickly as one is able to do so. And within these sutras, such as the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra, the Sharangama Sutra, and so on, is a highly expanded, thorough, and meticulous accounting of what it means to be a Buddha, as this sophisticated analysis of the ontological status of the Buddha is directly related to what we are, how we are alive, the way we live, what gives rise to suffering, the source of ignorance, what consciousness really is and how it functions, and what are its potentials, and most importantly, how we reach the highest evolutionary potential ourselves, which is called Buddhahood, or Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, unsurpassed, right, complete awakening. All of this is expounded extensively and in minute detail in the Mahayana Sutras and their later commentaries called the Shastras by masters of the various schools of Buddhism through the ages. So why is there a category of Buddhism called the Mahayana based on the text labeled Mahayana? I gathered bits and pieces about the development of the various traditions and reasons for the split between the Pali and Sanskrit traditions, but that's too long of a story to address at the moment. There are very simple answers for this that are obviously leaving hundreds of years of details out, but for a complete understanding, you would have to go back in time and ask Master Nagarjuna, the abbot of Nalanda University, who retrieved the Prajnaparamita knowledge from the Naga realm. His writings are considered to be the quintessence and actual meaning and import of the Buddha's discourses, and thus all extant Mahayana lineages in today's world stem from Nagarjuna and his successors. So what we have in today's world are these texts and the traditions such as the Chan school, the Tiantai school, the Pure Land school, the Shingon school, the Nyingma school, the Sakya school, the Kagju school, and the Gelukpa school, who stem from insanely fascinating and otherworldly Dharma masters who themselves attained Buddhahood, or at least a very high level of realization of the facticity of the Buddha's words. By following the Mahayana portraiture of what a Buddha is and the instructions of how one becomes one. Being such as Nagarjuna, Aryadeva, Chandrakirti, Tilopa, Naropa, Virupa, Padmasambhava, Vimalamitra, Prahivadra, Yishitsogyal, Bodhidharma, Jiri, Hongren, Huineng, Marpa, Niguma, Machiglabdran, Longchempa, Tsongkhapa, Kukai, Dogen are just some of the names that I know of offhand who have become Buddhas themselves. The evidence that the Mahayana scriptures are indeed factual accounts of past events and of the way reality actually is can be inferred by the fact that the Buddha Dharma took root in India in the Buddha's time. It spread throughout India and in the neighboring countries a few centuries after the Buddha's Parinirvana and to all of Asia, including Tibet and Japan, by the 7th century, meaning that 
with regard to all of the supernatural, miraculous, and extremely spectacular assurances and the abilities and transformations of one's being that will take place if one follows the prescriptions of the sutras, if the sutras were untrue, and those that upheld the sutras as credible documents were liars, who had not received the benefits and realized the fruit of the path themselves, and said all of these crazy things in a foreign country with no ability to produce the proof in the pudding, no one would have listened to them and the teachings would not have spread as widely and as quickly as they did, nor would they have survived to this day. Buddhism in its heyday was propagated by the emperors of China, Japan, Korea, and Tibet. These were not foolish people, easily defrauded by bald-headed con artists. In fact, they were highly competent, highly educated and judicious monarchs with responsibility over millions of lives and were from countries that had their own native culture and religion to whom Buddhism was an invading stranger. But the great masters of old, out of great compassion and skillful means to liberate the masses, were able to prove their mettle and demonstrate their self-mastery, and rulers and public of the countries where Buddhism spread were humble and intelligent enough to recognize when a vastly superior teaching, practice, and way of viewing reality was made available, and as they say, the rest was history. The stories of the great masters and their interactions with people and rulers, such as Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu, Kobodaishi and Emperor Saga, Padmasambhava and Emperor Chitsongdetsan, are some of the pivotal events in world history that shaped how humanity has progressed, and are telling of not only the power and grandeur of such Dharma masters of the past, but also the structural dynamism and appeal of the system of Buddhism as a whole, the benefits that it provides for individuals and nations, the joy, intelligence, blessings, elegance, stateliness, and sophistication of the nations that adopted Buddhism in a deliberate, methodic, and comprehensive fashion provided an example to other rulers who had doubts about the efficacy of the Dharma to be of true benefit. And what compounds the legitimacy of the Dharma as a realistic and practical spiritual tradition is the fact that it has produced siddhas, saints, realized beings, highly accomplished spiritual masters up to the modern day, which on my Instagram I sometimes do a modern meditation master Monday profile of some of the major names from the last century, who have used these teachings, lived up to them, taken them to their farthest extent, attaining Buddhahood themselves, and exhibited and continued to uphold the rigor of the discipline, demonstrating in physical form the grandeur and awesome power of the Mahayana reality. So this episode, which has taken seven months to compile and organize in a coherent fashion, can serve as several brushstrokes of the monumental mural that is the Buddha Dharma, and through the breathtaking imagery of the sutras, to the vast and profound understanding and clarification of the great masters of the various traditions that have stemmed from them, we can hopefully awaken great faith about what it means to be a sentient being and what it means to be a Buddha, how these things are not identical, but inseparable and most of all generate the inspiration and aspiration to follow the examples of our ancestors and not squander the opportunity to become ourselves the very embodiment of glorious wisdom, compassion, power, and truth. A big shout out to the generation of scholars and hardworking bodhisattvas who have dedicated their lives to translating nearly the entire body of Buddhist literature into English so that we can study these things now not to mention, in most cases, releasing the material online for free. For this investigation, I wasn't sure how to present the vast amount of source material, 
but I know what aspects of the Buddha I wanted to cover, which is the Mahayana Sutra perspective of Buddhahood, meaning the Trikaya, or three bodies, representation of Buddha, the concept of Buddha nature, which is central to all Mahayana doctrines, the Prajna Paramita, or transcendence of super-knowledge perspective, and a mere taste of the Vajrayana, or esoteric meaning, of what it means to be a Buddha. As said by the current Kalu Rinpoche, the Theravada, Zen Buddhism, Mahayana, Hinayana, Vajrayana. Actually, Buddha put it all together, but people divided it. So in this podcast, I wanted to demonstrate the commonality or congruency and unity of the great traditions and show how they firmly adhere to the same premise, path, and result. So to begin, I wanted to kick it off with the Buddha's enlightenment, or Siddhartha's realization of Buddhahood from the perspective of the Avatamsaka Sutra, the English translation done by Thomas Cleary and Robert A. F. Thurman. The sutra begins at the very place and very time of the Buddha's great awakening, and then continues on for 1,400 pages elaborating this momentous event. And according to the Dharma Realm Buddhist Association, it is still not completely translated into English. From this document, we get the most expansive and detailed explanation of this phenomenon called Buddha of any sutra but I can only cover a few pages, so relying on the commentary by Tripitaka and Dhyana Master Shenhua, we can gain some clarity on what the sutra is saying. It begins, Thus have I heard. At one time the Buddha was in the land of Magadha, in a state of purity, at the sight of enlightenment, having just realized true awareness. The ground was solid and firm, made of diamond, adorned with the exquisite jeweled disc and myriad precious flowers, with pure, clear crystals. The ocean of characteristics of the various colors appeared over an infinite extent. There were banners of precious stones constantly emitting shining light and producing beautiful sounds. Nets of myriad gems and garlands of exquisitely scented flowers hung all around. The finest jewels appeared spontaneously, raining inexhaustible quantities of gems and beautiful flowers all over the earth. There were rows of jewel trees, their branches and foliage lustrous and luxuriant, by the Buddha's spiritual power, he caused all the adornments of this enlightenment site to be reflected therein. The tree of enlightenment was tall and outstanding. Its trunk was diamond, its main bows were lapis lazuli, its branches and twigs were of various precious elements. The leaves spreading in all directions provided shade like clouds. The precious blossoms were of various colors. The branching twigs spread out their shadows. Also the fruits were jewels, containing a blazing radiance. They were together with the flowers in great arrays. The entire circumference of the tree emanated light. Within the light there rained precious stones, and within each gem were enlightening beings, the great hosts like clouds simultaneously appearing. Also by virtue of the awesome spiritual power of the Buddha, the tree of enlightenment constantly gave forth sublime sounds, speaking various truths without end, the palace chamber in which the Buddha was situated was spacious and beautifully adorned. It extended throughout the ten directions. It was made of jewels of various colors and was decorated with all kinds of precious flowers. The various adornments emanated lights like clouds. The masses of their reflections from within the palace formed banners. A boundless host of enlightening beings, the congregation at the site of enlightenment, were all gathered there, by means of the ability to manifest the lights and inconceivable sounds of the Buddhas, they fashioned nets of the finest jewels from which came forth all the realms of action of the spiritual power of the Buddhas, and in which were reflected images of the abodes of all beings. 
Also by virtue of the aid of the spiritual power of the Buddha, they embraced the entire cosmos in a single thought. Their lion seats were high, wide, and beautiful. The bases were made of jewels, their nets of lotus blossoms, their tableaus of pure, exquisite gemstones. They were adorned with various flowers of all colors. Their roofs, chambers, steps, and doors were adorned by the images of all things. The branches and fruits of jeweled trees surrounded them, arrayed at intervals. Clouds of radiance of jewels reflected each other. The Buddhas of the Ten Directions conjured regal pearls, and the exquisite jewels in the topknots of the enlightening beings all emanated light, which came and illuminated them. Furthermore, sustained by the spiritual power of the Buddhas, they expounded the vast perspective of the enlightened ones, their subtle tones extending afar, there being no place they did not reach. At that time, the Buddha, the world-honored one, in this setting, attained to supreme correct awareness of all things. His knowledge entered into all times with complete equanimity. His body filled all worlds, his voice universally accorded with all lands in the ten directions. Like space, which contains all forms, he made no discriminations amongst all objects. And, as space extends everywhere, he entered all lands with equanimity. His body forever sat omnipresent in all sights of enlightenment. Among the hosts of enlightening beings, his awesome light shone clearly, like the sun emerging, illumining the world. The ocean of myriad virtues which he practiced in all times was thoroughly pure, and he constantly demonstrated the production of all the Buddha lands, their boundless forms and spheres of light extending throughout the entire cosmos equally and impartially. He expounded all truths, like spreading great clouds. Each of his hair tips was able to contain all worlds without interference, in each manifesting immeasurable spiritual powers, teaching and civilizing all sentient beings. His body extended throughout the ten directions, yet without coming or going. His knowledge entered into all forms and realized the emptiness of things. All the miraculous displays of the Buddhas of past, present, and future were all seen in his light, and all the adornments of inconceivable eons were revealed. So that whopper of an excerpt needs some commentary, and Master Hua comments on this. At that time, Shakyamuni Buddha, the world-honored one, seated on his lion throne, had realized utmost proper enlightenment in regard to all dharmas. The Buddha had achieved utmost proper enlightenment. Bodhisattvas can be said to have attained proper enlightenment, but not utmost proper enlightenment, those of the two vehicles have only attained enlightenment, but not proper enlightenment. Gods, demons, externalists, and ordinary people are unenlightened. They may think they are enlightened, but actually they are just steeped in deviant knowledge and perverse views. They are simply unenlightened, which is another way of saying they are deluded and ignorant. They think what they do is correct, and that nothing is out of order, and therefore they are said to be unenlightened. But with the Buddha, his wisdom entered the three periods of time as completely level and equal. The Buddha can understand the past, present, and future, or you can say past lives, present life, and future lives. Some people don't believe in the three periods of time. They say, I don't even understand my present life very well. How can I believe that there are past and future lives? They are right. If they don't understand their present life, how could they possibly understand their past life or future life? No wonder they don't believe in the concept of other lives. It's okay if you don't want to believe that there are past, present, and future lives. But do you believe in yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Probably you cannot remember everything that happened yesterday, and you don't know what will happen tomorrow, since it hasn't arrived yet. 
You've already forgotten what happened in the past, and you haven't experienced what will happen in the future, so you don't know about it. If you can't even remember or know clearly all the events of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, just three days, how can you expect to be able to recall your past lives or know about your present and future lives? You are less likely to remember and be aware of these far-reaching things. The Buddha's wisdom, however, encompasses the three periods of time, past, present, and future. He knows what causes he planted in past lives and how they account for the results he is reaping in this life. He also knows what causes he's planting in this present life, so he is aware of what type of results to expect in the next life. Not only does the Buddha know about this himself, he knows this about all sentient beings. For example, he'll know, this sentient being planted the cause of killing in the past life. Therefore, in this life, that cause will bear fruit, and in his next life, he will undergo the retribution for that killing. Or, this person stole in his past life, so in this life, his goods are stolen from him. In his next life, he will, in turn, steal from others. This type of karma and retribution goes on and on, in an endless cycle. The same principle applies to engaging in sexual misconduct, lying, and taking intoxicants. Yesterday, I lied to someone, and today someone lies to me. Tomorrow, maybe someone will cheat me. As you sow, so shall you reap. You harvest whatever you plant. The periods of time are completely level and equal. The past is level and equal, the present is level and equal, and so is the future. His body filled all worlds, the entire Dharma realm. There is a verse that occurs later in this chapter. The Buddha's body fills the entire Dharma realm. He appears before sentient beings everywhere. His sound reached each and every land of the ten directions. The Buddha's sound can be heard pervasively throughout the lands of the ten directions. The sutra brings up an analogy for this which is, just as space contains all things, yet does not differentiate among them. The Buddha's Dharma body is just like space. It contains everything and yet makes no discriminations amongst states. Or it is also just as space pervades everywhere, impartially entering all lands. No matter how large the land is, there is a corresponding amount of space to fill it. There is neither too little nor too much. His physical form, eternal and ubiquitous, was seated in all bodhimandas, the Buddha's body constantly fills the Dharma realm, and so he can be found seated in all bodhimandas. In the midst of the bodhisattva multitudes, the Buddha emitted awesome, magnificent light, as when the rising sun illuminates the whole world. Within all those bodhimandas where countless bodhisattvas were gathered, the Buddha's awesome light was almost blinding, like that of the rising sun shining upon the world. The great ocean of the multitudes of blessings cultivated in the three periods of time, the past, present, and future, had already been purified. The blessings we have now are not the product of a single lifetime's work, but rather the fruit of many lives and eons of hard work. If you cultivate blessings, in the future you will have blessings. So the text says, The great ocean of the multitudes of blessings. If you cultivate wisdom, in the future you will have wisdom. Therefore, do not fail to do a good deed, no matter how small it may be. Don't do a single evil deed, no matter how insignificant it may seem. Even if a good act is minor, still you should do it. Even if an evil act is really small, you should still not do it. You should cultivate blessings and wisdom at all times. Only then will you amass a great ocean of multitudes of blessings, which is completely pure. The blessings you cultivate may be pure blessings, or they may be impure blessings that are contaminated with defilement. The blessings that the Buddhas cultivate are completely pure. 
The blessings cultivated by the bodhisattvas are also pure. And yet, he constantly manifested birth in all Buddha's lands. Bodhisattvas continually manifest hundreds of millions of transformation bodies within all Buddha's lands. His boundless physical marks, the special hallmarks and adornments, were perfect and full, making them virtually the same as all the Buddhas. His radiance pervaded the Dharma realm equally and without discrimination. His light shone universally throughout the Dharma realm, being the same everywhere without any differentiation. His proclamation of all dharmas resembled a great cloud spreading out. Throughout the Dharma realm, he proclaimed the wonderful Dharma, and it was as if a great cloud had formed in the air. His every hair tip accommodated all worlds without obstruction. Buddhas and great bodhisattvas are such that the tip of one of their hairs contains all worlds. Although a hair tip is small, it can contain an entire world. Although a world is large, it does not exceed the circumference of the hair tip. Therefore, the Sharangama Sutra says, On the tip of a single hair, they manifest the lands of the jeweled king. Not only did the Buddha manifest the lands of the jeweled king on one hair tip, but he manifested them on every hair tip. Seated in dust motes, they turned the great Dharma wheel. Seated inside of a single moat of dust, they teach and transform sentient beings. How can the tiny tip of a hair contain a world, you ask? This kind of state is inexplicable. There is no obstruction between the large and the small. On each he manifested the power of measureless spiritual penetrations. How can the small possibly contain the great, and the great lie within the small? Is this logical? This is due to the spiritual powers of the Bodhisattva, whose aim is to teach, transform, tame, and subdue all sentient beings. He makes appear such an incredible state to cause sentient beings to get rid of their biased views and knowledge and to study the Buddha Dharma instead. His body filled the ten directions, neither coming nor going. His wisdom penetrated and accorded with all phenomenon and fathomed the original emptiness and stillness of all dharmas. Every spiritual transformation of all Buddhas of the three periods of time, without exception, was visible within that light, and all adornments of all the lands of all Buddhas throughout inconceivable eons were completely manifest therein. Throughout an inconceivably long period of time, the adornments of all Buddhas of the ten directions in the three periods of time were clearly visible to the Buddha. Why? Because his wisdom penetrated all phenomenon. So, from this sutra and Master Hua's commentary, we get this vast and profound scene of Siddhartha realizing Buddhahood. From his subjectivity and from the subjectivities of the quadrillions of sextillions of gods and bodhisattvas and spirits who were all in attendance of the most important events in the history of Earth. And what we get from it are the concept of a super multiverse theory in which not only is the realm of space infinite outwardly in the macro sense, but in each atom, then subatomic particle, there are also infinite universes, that each atom is itself a universe, full of sentient beings and Buddhas, and that our level or strata of what we call the universe is a quark-sized subatomic particle in a vast continuum of universes, infinitely large and infinitely small in both directions. This theory or description of reality allows us to go beyond the limits of the imagination and really touch the infinite. And the fact that 2600 years ago the Gautama Buddha made this stunning proclamation and that we just now are beginning to wrap our minds around the concept of the infinite is a very telltale sign that there is far more to Buddhism than wishful thinking and sophistry that modern people attribute to it. 
In fact, with all of our advances in cosmology and quantum physics, we are now just realizing as scientifically rational thinkers that this description of the universe is actually very likely to be accurate. And although our instruments are not capable of verifying this, Buddhism makes it clear that it is well within the realm of possibility for the human mind to realize this for itself directly. What we also hear in this sutra is an introduction to the concept of omniscience and the subjectivity of a Buddha, meaning what it is like to have the experience of being a Buddha that is alluded to but entirely absent from the Pali Canon. We hear about this all-pervasive mind that is already everywhere, so there is nowhere that it can go to or come from. What we also hear that is absent from the Pali Canon is the ridiculous beauty and mind-bending splendor of what it's like to be a Buddha, with the pavilions, trees, ponds, and so on, all made of glittering, gleaming, luminescent jewels, flowers, flame clouds, sound smells, that give an impression of a synesthesiatic spectacle in which all events of all sentient beings and actions of the Buddhas are clearly seen on the surfaces of the vast array of world systems that are all present to the Buddha and his friends. It is in this resplendent way that the Buddha is aware of all that goes on, and apparently this is the reality that a Buddha lives in and what a Buddha sees, whereas the rest of us just see people, dirt, and houses, and bushes, and so on. So the sutra continues at this point with many poetic verses from those in attendance about how spectacular the Buddha is and how wonderful and kind it is of him to have manifested in this way to the fortunate people of planet Earth. And these verses give deeper insight into what a Buddha is and does and why a Buddha has appeared at this time and in this way. And so I'm just going to read a couple of these verses. At that time, the celestial king, ocean of subtle flames, imbued with the spiritual power of the Buddha, surveyed the whole host of celestial beings of the heaven of great freedom and said in verse, The Buddha body extends throughout all great assemblies. It fills the cosmos without end, quiescent, without essence, it cannot be grasped. It appears just to save all beings. The Buddha, king of the teachings, appears in the world, able to light the lamp of sublime truth which illumines the world. His state is boundless and inexhaustible. This is what name of freedom has realized. The Buddha is inconceivable, beyond discrimination, comprehending forms everywhere as insubstantial. For the sake of the world, he opens wide the path of purity. This is what pure eyes can see. The Buddha's wisdom is unbounded. No one in the world can measure it. It forever destroys beings' ignorance and confusion. Great intelligence has entered this deeply and abides there in peace. The Buddha's virtues are inconceivable. In beings who witness them, afflictions die out. They cause all worlds to find peace. Immutable freedom can see this. Sentient beings in the darkness of ignorance are always deluded. The Buddha expounds for them the teaching of dispassion and serenity. This is the lamp of wisdom that illumines the world. Sublime eyes knows this technique. The Buddha's body of pure, subtle form is manifest everywhere and has no compare. This body has no essence and no resting place. It is contemplated by skillful meditation. The voice of the Buddha has no limit or obstruction. All those capable of accepting the teaching hear it, yet the Buddha is quiescent and forever unmoving. This is the liberation of delightful knowledge. So the sutra goes on like that for many pages with verses from celestial kings and spirit kings and demon kings and the like all expressing various facets of the Buddha and how the Buddha appears to them, 
all of which are very, very much worth hearing and investigating. But the sutra continues on with a further display from the bodhisattvas. Now the bodhisattva, a term that requires a great deal of explanation, a term that is the central theme of the Mahayana view and understanding of the nature of reality, is translated by Clary and Thurman as enlightening being, a sentient being, not yet a Buddha, who vows to bring all sentient beings, without exception, to Bodhi or awakening, and thus remains in the world of suffering beings, putting aside their own joy of nirvana to teach and transform, and in the most extreme cases, their own realization of Buddhahood, until all beings have attained Buddhahood first. This is the king of all aspirations and the greatest vow in the universe that one can make, and thus in the tradition the Bodhisattva is known as the great hero, and the path and training of the Bodhisattva in the Mahayana is the single and only correct path to Buddhahood, as this view and aspiration is the one which corresponds to reality most accurately, but this will be expanded upon later in the podcast. So the Bodhisattva is the pre-Buddha, a being who is on the way to Buddhahood. And again, trillions of such beings are present at the site of Shakyamuni Buddha's enlightenment to pay homage to him in his moment of triumph. Our world is described in the text as the flower bank ocean of worlds. And in the four cardinal directions and four intermediate directions, as well as above and below this flower bank ocean of worlds, is described other oceans of worlds in which there are other Buddhas surrounded by vast oceans of bodhisattvas, who all produced vast oceans of offerings through their spiritual power to Shakyamuni Buddha and came to the flower bank world to make these offerings. It is described as thus. In this way, in as many oceans of worlds as there are atoms in ten billion Buddha fields, there were as many great enlightening beings, each surrounded by a group of enlightening beings as numerous as atoms in an ocean of worlds, who came to the gathering. These enlightening beings each produce clouds of offerings of various adornments, as numerous as atomic particles in an ocean of worlds, which all filled space without dispersing. And having produced these clouds, they bowed to the Buddha and presented them as offerings. Then, in the direction from which they had come, all magically produced lion seats with various precious adornments and sat cross-legged on them. After having thus seated themselves, those enlightening beings each produced from the hair pores of their bodies light rays of the various colors of all jewels, as many as atoms in ten oceans of worlds. In each light ray there appeared as many enlightening beings as there are atoms in ten oceans of worlds, all sitting on lion seats of banks of lotuses. These enlightening beings all could enter into every atom of the oceans of structures in all universes. In each individual atom were vast fields, as many as atoms in ten Buddha worlds. In each field were all the past, present, and future Buddhas. These enlightening beings were all able to go to these Buddhas, associate with them, and provide them with offerings. And in each and every thought instant, by means of mastery of dream power, demonstrated teachings enlightening as many sentient beings as there are atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by the teaching, showing how celestial beings die and are born, they enlighten as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by explaining the teachings of the acts and practices of enlightening beings, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by the teaching of the Buddha's virtue and mystical display, which stir all lands, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by the teaching of beautifying and purifying all Buddha lands, revealing an ocean of all great vows, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. 
in every instant by the teaching of the Buddha's voice, which contained the languages of all sentient beings, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant by the teaching which can shower the rain of Buddha's teaching, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by the teaching of light illuminating everywhere in the ten directions, pervading the cosmos and showing mystical demonstrations, they enlightened as many beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by the teaching of all Buddha's power of liberation manifesting the body of Buddha everywhere, filling the cosmos, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In every instant, by the teaching of the universally good, enlightening being, setting up an ocean of all sites of enlightenment with all assemblies of beings, they enlightened as many sentient beings as atoms in an ocean of worlds. In this way, throughout all universes, adapting to the mentalities of sentient beings, they caused them all to awaken. In every instant, they each caused as many sentient beings as atoms in a polar mountain who had fallen into miserable states to be forever relieved of their sufferings. Each caused that many sentient beings stuck in wrong concentrations to enter right concentrations. Each caused that many sentient beings to be born in celestial spheres according to their inclinations. Each caused that many sentient beings to rest secure in the state of Buddha's disciples or self-enlightened ones. Each caused that many sentient beings to serve good teachers and act virtuously. Each caused as many sentient beings to set their minds on supreme enlightenment. Each caused that many sentient beings to head for the enlightening being's stage of non-retrogression. Each caused that many sentient beings to attain the eye of pure wisdom and see all things impartially, as does the Buddha. Each caused that many sentient beings to abide securely in the powers and the ocean of vows and to purify the Buddha lands by means of inexhaustible knowledge. Each caused that many sentient beings to dwell in the vast ocean of Vairochana's vows and be born in the family of the Buddhas. Uh, so at this point, there's some verses from the Bodhisattvas all speaking in unison, essentially saying the same thing. And after that, the text continues. Then the Buddha, wishing to enable all the enlightening beings to realize the spiritual power of the boundless realm of the enlightened one, emitted a light from between his brows. That light was called treasury of the light of knowledge of all enlightening beings illuminating the ten directions. Its form was like a cloud of lamps with jewel-like light. It shone throughout all Buddha fields in the ten directions, revealing all the lands and beings therein. It also caused all networks of worlds to tremble. In every single atom, it revealed innumerable Buddhas, showing the teachings of all the Buddhas of all times, in accord with the differences in character and inclinations of the various sentient beings. It clearly showed the Buddha's ocean of transcendent ways, and it also rained infinite clouds of various emancipations, causing the sentient beings to forever cross over birth and death. It also showered clouds of the great vows of the Buddhas. It clearly showed in all worlds in the ten directions the universally good enlightening beings, congregations at the site of enlightenment. Having done all this, the light swirled around the Buddha, circling to the right, and then went under his feet. Then an immense lotus blossom suddenly appeared before the Buddha. That lotus had ten kinds of adornments, unmatched by any other lotuses. That is to say, its stem was a mixture of various gems, its bud was of diamond. Its petals were all the jewels in the universe. Its pistols were of fragrant gems. Rose gold adorned its base. Exquisite nets covered it above. Its radiant color was pure. It instantaneously displayed the boundless miracles of the Buddhas. It could produce all kinds of sounds. Its diamonds reflected the body of the Buddha. 
In its sounds, it could expound all the practical undertakings cultivated by enlightening beings. When this flower had sprung up, in an instant there was, in the curl of white hair on the Buddha's brow, a great enlightening being named Supreme Sound of All Truths, together with a group of enlightening beings as numerous as atoms in an ocean of worlds. They all came forth together and circled the Buddha to the right innumerable times. Then, having bowed to the Buddha, Supreme Sound of All Truths sat on the flower dais, while the other enlightening beings sat on the pistols. This enlightening being, supreme sound of all truths, comprehended the profound realm of reality, gave rise to great joy, and entered the sphere of action of the Buddhas, his knowledge unobstructed. He entered the unfathomable ocean of the Buddha's reality body, and went to where the Buddhas were in all lands. In each hair pore of his body he showed mystical powers, in every moment of thought he contemplated the entire cosmos. The Buddhas of the Ten Directions all bestowed their power on him, causing him to rest in all meditation states, forever seeing the Buddha's body of ocean of qualities of the boundless cosmos, including all meditations and liberations, mystic powers and miraculous displays. Then in the midst of the assembly, empowered by the Buddha, he looked over the ten directions and said in verse, The Buddha's body fills the cosmos, appearing before all beings everywhere, in all conditions, wherever sensed, reaching everywhere, yet always on this seat of enlightenment, in each of the Buddha's pores sit Buddhas many as atoms in all lands, surrounded by masses of enlightening beings, expounding the supreme practice of the universally good. Buddha, sitting at rest on the enlightenment seat, displays in one hair oceans of fields, and the same is true of every single hair, thus pervading the cosmos. He sits in each and every land, pervading the lands one and all. Enlightening beings gather from everywhere, all coming to the enlightenment scene. Oceans of enlightening beings with virtues and lights, numerous as atoms in all lands. All are in the congregation of the Buddha, filling the entire cosmos. In lands numerous as atoms in the cosmos, he appears in every congregation. This realm of knowledge of body distribution can be established in the practice of universal goodness. In the congregation of all the Buddhas, enlightening beings of supreme knowledge sit, each hearing the teaching, conceiving joy, cultivating themselves in every situation for boundless ages. Having entered the far-reaching vows of the universally good, each produces the teachings of the Buddhas. In the ocean of Vairochana's teachings, they practice and master Buddhahood. What the enlightening being universally good is awake to, all Buddhas alike praise with joy. Having attained the great mystic power of the Buddhas, he circulates throughout the whole cosmos. In all lands, as many as atomic particles, he manifests clouds of bodies, filling them all, radiating light for beings everywhere, each reigning teachings suited to their minds. And again, after this, there is page after page of verses from these great bodhisattvas about the awesome power, qualities, and deeds of the Buddha. And I wish I had time to read them all out, but I think you get the idea. What this sutra is describing is the Buddhist best of all possible worlds, which actually happens to be this realm that we live in now, although it does not seem this way to us. But what the sutra does is allows our minds to stretch beyond the physical realm. At least for me, it stretches and blurs the meaning of possibility and actuality to include a sense of the utterly miraculous and benevolent nature of reality. The Avatamsaka makes it very clear over and over that a Buddhaverse takes its form depending on the karma or habits or potentials of those beings that inhabit it. 
due to the ubiquitous and infallible nature of cause and effect, a being's subjective experience is merely a reflection of what they have previously conceived, what they think or what they imagine to be true. And to work with this reality, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas must work patiently with our habits and natures to bring about a change of mind, to slowly and gradually introduce a sublimated and perennial worldview, to look at the biggest picture possible, to bring us into a reality in which not only are things okay, but better than you could imagine. But this change in the minds of beings must come about through the actions of beings. Thus some realms appear as hells, some as heavens, some as full-blown Buddhaverses, some as New York City or Tokyo or Pyongyang. These manifestations of reality are completely and utterly due to the karma of beings therein. And thus the Buddha can only do so much to encourage us to change, because ultimately our confusion and mental afflictions are in charge of our destiny until we learn to overcome them. As we move on, we're going to look into the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, and we'll delve deeper into the meaning of a Buddha Kshetra, or a Buddha verse, as it's called by Professor Thurman, thus the name of this podcast. How such a realm comes about, and what is a more exact explanation of Buddha from the perspective of the 10th level Bodhisattva Vimalakirti. So the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra that was translated from Tibetan by Robert A. F. Thurman that I'm going to get into is a magical and profound sutra that Professor Thurman lectures on in one of his new podcasts. Uh, And it's about the exploits and teachings of the layman Vimalakirti, who during the time of the Buddha deployed his unmatched eloquence to debate with and rebuke not only the Buddha's top disciples, but many other high bodhisattvas. This sutra provides stunning commentary about how the practice is to be understood, and as Professor Thurman puts it, serves as an anthology of the many profound topics and ideas in the whole of Buddhism. But because there are so many topics covered in the Nirdesha that are revelatory and indescribably wondrous, for the sake of conciseness, I can only get into the elucidations Vimalakirti gives concerning the Buddha, but for any Buddhist or any human period, an understanding of reality devoid of the perspective of the Vimalakirti Sutra is incomplete. So in the opening chapter, the Buddha is discoursing with a group of young people who have all made the aspiration to become Buddhas themselves. The students ask him, how does one purify the Buddha field? And he responds thusly, Noble sons, a Buddha field of bodhisattvas is a field of living beings. Why so? A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that he causes the development of living beings. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that living beings become disciplined. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that through entrance into a Buddha field, living beings are introduced to the Buddha Gnosis. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that, through entrance into that Buddha field, living beings increase their holy spiritual faculties. Why so? Noble son, a Buddha field of bodhisattvas springs from the aims of living beings. For example, Ratnakara. Should one wish to build an empty space, one might go ahead in spite of the fact that it is not possible to adorn anything in empty space. In just the same way, should a bodhisattva, who knows full well that all things are like empty space, wish to build a Buddha field in order to develop living beings, he might go ahead, in spite of the fact that it is not possible to build or to adorn a Buddha field in empty space. Yet, Ratnakara, a bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of positive thought. 
when he attains enlightenment, living beings free of hypocrisy and deceit will be born in his Buddha field. Noble son, a Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of high resolve. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who have harvested the two stores and have planted the roots of virtue will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of virtuous application. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who live by all virtuous principles will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is the magnificence of the conception of the spirit of enlightenment. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who are actually participating in the Mahayana will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of generosity. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who give away all their possessions will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of tolerance. When he attains enlightenment, living beings with the transcendence of tolerance, discipline, and the superior trance, hence beautiful with the thirty-two auspicious signs, will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of meditation. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who are evenly balanced through mindfulness and awareness will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of wisdom. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who are destined for the ultimate will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field consists of the four immeasurables. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who live by love, compassion, joy, and impartiality will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field consists of the four means of unification. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who are held together by all the liberations will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is skill and liberative technique. When he attains enlightenment, living beings skilled in all liberative techniques and activities will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field consists of the 37 aids to enlightenment. Living beings who devote their efforts to the four applications of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases of magical power, the five spiritual faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the eight branches of the holy path will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is his mind of total dedication. When he attains enlightenment, the ornaments of all virtues will appear in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is the doctrine that eradicates the eight adversities. When he attains enlightenment, the three bad migrations will cease, and there will be no such thing as the eight adversities in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field consists of his personal observance of the basic precepts and his restraint in blaming others for their transgressions. When he attains enlightenment, even the word crime will never be mentioned in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is the purity of the path of the ten virtues. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who are secure in long life, great in wealth, chaste in conduct, enhanced by true speech, soft-spoken, free of divisive intrigues and adroit in reconciling factions, enlightening in their conversations, free of envy, free of malice, and endowed with perfect views, will be born in his Buddha field. Thus, noble son, just as it is the Bodhisattva's production of the spirit of enlightenment, so is his positive thought. And just as his positive thought, so is his virtuous application. His virtuous application is tantamount to his high resolve. His high resolve is tantamount to his determination. His determination is tantamount to his practice. His practice is tantamount to his total dedication. His total dedication is tantamount to his liberative technique. His liberative technique is tantamount to his development of living beings, and his development of living beings is tantamount to the purity of his Buddha field. 
The purity of his Buddha field reflects the purity of living beings. The purity of the living beings reflects the purity of his gnosis. The purity of his gnosis reflects the purity of his doctrine. The purity of his doctrine reflects the purity of his transcendental practice. And the purity of his transcendental practice reflects the purity of his own mind. At this point, the Venerable Shariputra, unsurpassed in wisdom amongst the Arhats, had the thought, If this Buddha field is a result of the virtues of the Bodhisattva who created it, then why is this Buddha field of Shakyamuni so impure? And, of course, reading Shariputra's mind, the Buddha replied to him in so many words, It looks impure to you because your mind is impure. And then, as the sutra states, Thereupon, the Lord touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe, and suddenly it was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems, until it resembled the universe of the Tathagata Ratnavyuha, called Anathaguna Ratnavyuha. Everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving himself seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses, so again, this passage calls to attention the very principle of Dharma practice and the nature of our reality, which is our subjective experience of the world, people, and things. And it is this very subjectivity of our own awareness and the vicissitudes, biases, preferences, and resulting afflictions with which we create our world, the purification of such which is called enlightenment. But such evolution occurs for each on an individual basis, in our own subjectivity, and it can't be given to you by anyone, not even your guru or a Buddha. As the sutra put it, it's a result of your aspiration, intention, and diligence in practice. So as we're introduced to Vimalakirti, he is sick in a bed with some sort of ailment, and when asked about his illness, he gave a discourse about the frailty of the human body and impermanence. But then he shifts focus away from himself to discuss the body of a Tathagata. The sutra continues with Vimalakirti. Friends, the body of a Tathagata is the body of Dharma, born of Gnosis. The body of a Tathagata is born of the stores of merit and wisdom. It is born of morality, of meditation, of wisdom, of the liberations, and of knowledge and vision of liberation. It is born of love, compassion, joy, and impartiality. It is born of charity, discipline, and self-control. It is born of the path of ten virtues. It is born of patience and gentleness. It is born of the roots of virtue planted by solid efforts. It is born of the concentrations, the liberations, the meditations, and the absorptions. It is born of learning wisdom, and liberative technique. It is born of the 37 aids to enlightenment. It is born of the mental quiescence and transcendental analysis. It is born of the 10 powers, the four fearlessnesses, and the 18 special qualities. It is born of all the transcendences. It is born from sciences and superknowledges. It is born of the abandonment of all evil qualities and of the collection of all good qualities. It is born of truth. It is born of reality. It is born of conscious awareness. Friends, the body of a Tathagata is born of innumerable good works. Toward such a body, you should turn your aspirations, and in order to eliminate the sicknesses of the passions of all living beings, you should conceive of the spirit of unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. So I'm going to jump ahead to when Vimalakirti is speaking to Ananda about the qualities of a Buddha. Indeed, it is wonderful how all the Lord Buddhas, who understand the equality of all things, manifest all sorts of Buddha fields in order to develop living beings. Ananda, 
just as the Buddha fields are diverse as to their specific qualities, but have no difference as to the sky that covers them, so, Ananda, the Tathagatas are diverse as to their physical bodies, but do not differ as to their unimpeded gnosis. Ananda, all the Buddhas are the same as to the perfection of Buddha qualities, that is, their forms, their colors, their radiance, their bodies, their marks, their nobility, their morality, their concentration, their wisdom, their liberation, the gnosis and vision of liberation, their strengths, their fearlessnesses, their special Buddha qualities, their great love, their great compassion, their helpful intentions, their attitudes, their practices, their paths, the lengths of their lives, their teachings of the Dharma, their development and liberation of living beings, and their purification of Buddha fields. Therefore, they are called Samyaksambuddhas, Tathagatas, and Buddhas. Ananda, were your life to last an entire eon, it would not be easy for you to understand thoroughly the extensive meaning and precise verbal significance of these three names. Also, Ananda, if all the living beings of this billion-world galactic universe were like you, the foremost of the learned and the foremost of those endowed with memory and incantations, and were they to devote an entire eon, they would still be unable to understand completely the exact and extensive meaning of the three words Samyaksambuddha, Tathagata, and Buddha. Thus, Ananda, the enlightenment of the Buddha is immeasurable, and the wisdom and eloquence of the Tathagatas are inconceivable. The sutra continues later with the Buddha speaking to Vimalakirti. Thereupon, the Buddha said to the Lichavi Vimalakirti, Noble son, when you would see the Tathagata, how do you view him? Thus addressed, the Lichavi Vimalakirti said to the Buddha, Lord, when I would see the Tathagata, I would view him by not seeing any Tathagata. Why? I see him as not born from the past, not passing on to the future, and not abiding in the present time. Why? He is the essence which is the reality of matter, but he is not matter. He is the essence which is the reality of sensation, but he is not sensation. He is the essence which is the reality of intellect, but he is not the intellect. He is the essence which is the reality of motivation, yet he is not motivation. He is the essence which is the reality of consciousness, yet he is not consciousness. Like the element of space, he does not abide in any of the four elements. Transcending the scope of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, he is not produced in the six sense media. He is not involved in the three worlds, is free of the three defilements, is associated with the triple liberation, is endowed with the three knowledges, and has truly attained the unattainable. The Tathagata has reached the extreme of detachment in regard to all things, yet he is not a reality limit. He abides in ultimate reality, yet there is no relationship between it and him. He is not produced from causes, nor does he depend on conditions. He is not without any characteristic, nor has he any characteristic. He has no single nature, nor any diversity of natures. He is not a conception, not a mental construction, nor is he a non-conception. He is neither the other shore, nor this shore, nor that between. He is neither here, nor there, nor anywhere else. He is neither this nor that. He cannot be discovered by consciousness, nor is he inherent in consciousness. He is neither darkness nor light. He is neither name nor sign. He is neither weak nor strong. He lives in no country or direction. He is neither good nor evil. He is neither compounded nor uncompounded. He cannot be explained as having any meaning whatsoever. The Tathagata is neither generosity nor avarice, neither morality nor immorality, neither tolerance nor foolishness. He is inexpressible. He is neither truth nor falsehood. 
neither escape from the world nor failure to escape from the world, neither cause of involvement in the world nor not a cause of involvement in the world. He is the cessation of all theory and all practice. He is neither a field of merit nor not a field of merit. He is neither worthy of offerings nor unworthy of offerings. He is not an object. He cannot be contacted. He is not a whole nor a conglomeration. He surpasses all calculations. He is utterly unequaled, yet equal to the ultimate reality of things. He is matchless, especially in effort. He surpasses all measure. He does not go, does not stay, does not pass beyond. He is neither seen, heard, distinguished, nor known. He is without any complexity, having attained the equanimity of omniscient gnosis. Equal toward all things, he does not discriminate between them. He is without reproach, without excess, without corruption, without conception, and without intellectualization. He is without activity, without birth, without occurrence, without origin, without production, and without non-production. He is without fear and without subconsciousness, without sorrow, without joy, and without stain. No verbal teaching can express him. Such is the body of the Tathagata, and thus should he be seen. Who sees thus truly sees. Who sees otherwise sees falsely. So from the Avatamsaka Sutra, we encountered the description of the Buddha's proper unsurpassed right awakening. And we've heard from Vimalakirti a bit about the Bodhisattva's purifying of the Buddhaverse or the Buddha field. But this idea or reality of a Buddha field, also called a pure land, is addressed most straightforwardly in what are called the three pure land sutras that contain Shakyamuni Buddha's description of the western pure land of Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite light. The pure land may sound like the Abrahamic Paradiso, and it is indeed translated as paradise, but it is different in many ways. I would like to cover the pure land in a whole episode later on, or perhaps many episodes, but essentially a pure land or Buddha verse or Buddha Shitra, in simplistic terms, is the realm of the Buddhas, where Buddhas dwell, teach, and care for sentient beings, so that sentient beings can progress along the path to enlightenment, depending on their capacities and abilities. All Buddhas manifest in a pure land, and the pure land manifests due to the virtue, power, and karmic merit of its host. Not all pure lands are the same, just as not all sentient beings are the same. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, we saw how Shariputra asked why planet Earth is such a cruddy pure land, but Buddha, by touching his toe to the ground, revealed to all the true nature of the realm and the beauty that it contains, if one only had the eyes to see, and that in fact it was Shariputra's mind that was cruddy, not the realm. In the Pure Land Sutras, Shakyamuni lets the great assembly of monastics and bodhisattvas in on the universal best thing going, which is the pure land of Amitabha. I don't have time to expand upon the specifics about Amitabha, but there are many nuances and aspects to this Buddha. Uh, but in short, he is a Buddha who made a vow to allow anyone who wishes to come to the realm of infinite bliss and purity to practice the Dharma and become a Buddha by saying, If, when I attain Buddhahood, sentient beings in the lands of the Ten Directions, who sincerely and joyfully entrust themselves to me, desire to be born in my land, and think of me even ten times, should not be born there, may I not attain perfect enlightenment. Excluded, however, are those who commit the five grave offenses and abuse the right dharma. Again, there is much, much more to this than I just said. In fact, there is an entire approach and understanding of Buddhism based around this Buddha and these sutras called Pure Land Buddhism that I grew up within. But for the sake of this podcast on what is a Buddha, I will read an excerpt from the larger Amitabha Buddha Sutra about the merits and descriptions of this pure land. 
According to the sutra, there is a place or an appearance, an experience that one can have, not just after one dies and is carried on by the grace of Amitabha Buddha, but in this very life through the meditation and purification practices for those who are impatient. The sutra begins with Shakyamuni describing how the Bodhisattva Dharmakara engaged in measureless eons of virtuous practices to create the greatest of all pure lands, and Ananda asked the Buddha, has Bodhisattva Dharmakara already attained Buddhahood and then passed into Nirvana, or has he not yet attained Buddhahood, or is he dwelling somewhere at present? The Buddha replied to Ananda, Bodhisattva Dharmakara has already attained Buddhahood and is now dwelling in a western pure land called Peace and Bliss, a hundred thousand kotis of lands away from here. Ananda further asked the Buddha, How much time has passed since he attained Buddhahood? The Buddha replied, Since he attained Buddhahood, about ten kalpas have passed. And so now the Buddha is going to give a description of the pure land of Sukhavati for Ananda. He continued, In that Buddha land, the earth is composed of seven kinds of jewels, namely gold, silver, beryl, coral, amber, agate, and ruby, that have spontaneously appeared. The land itself is so vast, spreading boundlessly to the farthest extent, that it is impossible to know its limit. All the rays of light from those jewels intermingle and create manifold reflections, producing a dazzling illumination. Those pure, superb, and exquisite adornments are unsurpassed in all the worlds of the Ten Directions. They are the finest of all gems, and are like those of the Sixth Heaven. In that land there are no mountains, such as Mount Semeru and the encircling Adamantine Mountain. Likewise, there are neither oceans nor seas, neither valleys nor gorges, but one can see those manifestations by the Buddha's power if one so wishes. In that land there is no hell, neither are there realms of hungry ghosts or animals, nor other adverse conditions, neither do the four seasons of spring, summer, autumn, or winter exist. It is always moderate and pleasant, never cold nor hot. Then Ananda asked the Buddha, If, world-honored one, there is no Mount Semeru in that land, what sustains the heaven of the four kings and the heaven of the thirty-three gods? The Buddha said to Ananda, What sustains Yama? which is the third heaven of the third world of desire and other heavens up to the highest heaven of the world of form. Ananda answered, The consequences of karma are inconceivable. The Buddha said to Ananda, Inconceivable indeed are the consequences of karma, and so are the worlds of the Buddhas. By the power of meritorious deeds, sentient beings in that land dwell on the ground of karmic reward. That is why those heavens exist without a Mount Semeru. Ananda continued, I do not doubt this myself, but I have asked about it simply because I wish to remove such doubts for the benefit of sentient beings of the future. The Buddha said to Ananda, The majestic light of Buddha Amitayas is the most exalted. No other Buddha's light can match his. The light of some Buddhas illuminate a hundred Buddha lands, that of others a thousand Buddha lands. Briefly, that of Amitayas illuminates the eastern Buddha's lands as numerous as the sands of the Ganges rivers. In the same way, it illuminates the Buddha lands of south, west, and north, in each of the four intermediate directions and above and below. Further, the light of some Buddhas extends seven feet, that of others one yojana, or two, three, four, or five yojanas, and the distance covered increases in this way until the light of some Buddhas illuminates one Buddha land. For this reason, Amitayas is called by the following names, the Buddha of infinite light, the Buddha of boundless light, the Buddha of unhindered light, the Buddha of incomparable light, the Buddha of the light of the king of flame, the Buddha of pure light, the Buddha of the light of joy, the Buddha of the light of wisdom, the Buddha of unceasing light, 
the Buddha of inconceivable light, the Buddha of ineffable light, and the Buddha of the light outshining the sun and moon. If sentient beings encounter his light, their three defilements are removed, they feel tenderness, joy, and pleasure, and good thoughts arise. If sentient beings in the three realms of suffering see his light, they will all be relieved and free from affliction. At the end of their lives, they all reach liberation. The light of Amitayas shines brilliantly, illuminating all the Buddha lands of the ten directions. There is no place where it is not perceived. I am not the only one who now praises his light. All the Buddhas, Shravakas, Pracheka Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas praise and glorify it in the same way. If sentient beings, having heard of the majestic virtue of his light, glorify it continually, day and night, with sincerity of heart, they will be able to attain birth in his land as they wish. Then the multitudes of bodhisattvas and shravakas will praise their excellent virtue. Later, when they attain Buddhahood, all the Buddhas and bodhisattvas in the ten directions will praise their light, just as I now praise the light of Amitayas. The Buddha continued, The majestic glory of the light of Amitayas could not be exhaustively described, even if I praised it continually, day and night, for a period of one kalpa. The Buddha said to Ananda, the lifespan of Amitayas is so long that it is impossible for anyone to calculate it. To give an illustration, let us suppose that all the innumerable sentient beings in the world of the ten directions were reborn in human form and that everyone became a Shravaka or Pracheka Buddha. Even if they assembled in one place, concentrated their thoughts, and exercised their power of their wisdom to the utmost to reckon the length of the Buddha's lifespan by numbers of kalpas, even after a thousand million kalpas, they still could not reach its limit. So it is with the lifespan of Shravakas, Bodhisattvas, and heavenly beings, and human beings in his land. Similarly, it is not to be encompassed by any means of reckoning, or by any metaphorical expression. Again, the number of Shravakas and Bodhisattvas living there is incalculable. They are fully endowed with transcendent wisdom, and free in their exercise of majestic power. They could hold the entire world in their hands. The Buddha said to Ananda, The number of Shravakas at the first teaching assembly of that Buddha was incalculable. So was the number of Bodhisattvas. Even if an immeasurable and countless number of humans multiplied by millions of kotis should all become like Mahamudgalyayana and together reckon their numbers during innumerable nayutas of kalpas or even until they attain nirvana, they still could not know that number. Let us suppose that there is a great ocean, infinitely deep and wide, and that one takes a drop of water out of it with one hundredth part of a split hair. How would you compare that drop of water with the rest of the ocean? Ananda replied, When the drop of water is compared with the great ocean, it is impossible even for one skilled in astronomy or mathematics to know the proportion, or for anyone to describe it by any rhetorical or metaphorical expression. The Buddha said to Ananda, even if people like Mahamudgalyayana were to count for millions of kotis of kalpas, the number of shravakas and bodhisattvas at the first teaching assembly who could be counted would be like a drop of water, and the number of sages yet to be counted would be like the rest of the ocean. Again, seven jeweled trees completely fill that land. There are some made of gold, some of silver, and others made of beryl, crystal, coral, ruby, or agate. There are also trees made of two to seven kinds of jewels. There are gold trees with leaves, flowers, and fruits of silver, silver trees with leaves, flowers, and fruits of gold, barrel trees with leaves, flowers, and fruits of crystal, crystal trees with leaves, flowers, and fruits of barrel, coral trees with leaves, fruits, and flowers of ruby, ruby trees with leaves, flowers, and fruits of barrel, agate trees with leaves, flowers, and fruits made of various jewels. 
and the sutra goes on like that kind of for quite a while. These jewel trees are in parallel rows. Their trunks are evenly spaced. Their branches are in level layers. Their leaves are symmetrical. Their flowers harmonize, and their fruits are well arranged. The brilliant colors of these trees are so luxuriant that it is impossible to see them all. When a fresh breeze wafts through them, exquisite sounds of the pentatonic scales, such as gong and shang, spontaneously arise and make symphonic noise. Again, the Bodhi tree of Buddha Amitayas is four million li in height and five thousand yojanas in circumference at its base. Its branches spread two hundred thousand li in each of the four directions. It is a natural cluster of all kinds of precious stones and is adorned with the kings of jewels, namely moonbright mani gems and ocean-supporting wheel gems. Everywhere between its twigs hangs jeweled ornaments with a thousand million different colors intermingling in various ways, and their innumerable beams shine with the utmost brilliance. The Bodhi tree itself is covered with the nets of rare excellent gems, and on it appear all kinds of ornaments in accordance with one's wishes. When a gentle breeze wafts through its branches and leaves, innumerable exquisite dharma sounds arise, which spread far and wide, pervading all other Buddha's lands in the ten directions. Those who hear the sounds attain penetrating insight into dharmas and dwell in the stage of non-retrogression. Until they attain Buddhahood, their senses of hearing will remain clear and sharp, and they will not suffer from any pain or sickness. Whether they hear the sounds of the Bodhi tree, see its colors, smell its perfume, taste its flavors, perceive its lights, or conceive of the Dharma in their minds, they all attain profound penetrating insight into Dharmas and dwell in the stage of non-retrogression. Until they attain Buddhahood, their six sense organs will remain sharp and clear, and they will not suffer from any pain or sickness. Ananda, when humans and devas of that land see the Bodhi tree, they will attain three insights. First, insight into the reality through hearing the sacred sounds. Second, insight into reality by being in accord with it. And third, insight into the non-arising of all dharmas. These benefits are all bestowed by the majestic power of Amitayas. The power of his original vow, his perfectly fulfilled vow, his clear and manifest vow, his firm vow, and his accomplished vow. The Buddha said to Ananda, A king in this world possesses a hundred thousand kinds of music. From the realm ruled by a wheel-turning monarch up to the sixth heaven world of desire, the sounds of music produced in each higher realm are ten million kotis of times superior to those of a lower one. The thousands of varieties of musical sound produced in the sixth heaven are a thousand kotis of times inferior to one sound produced by the seven jeweled trees in the land of Amitayas. Again in that land, there are thousands of varieties of spontaneous music, which are all, without exception, sounds of the Dharma. They are clear and serene, full of depth and resonance, delicate and harmonious. They are the most excellent sounds in all the worlds of the ten directions. Again, the halls, monasteries, palaces, and pavilions are spontaneous apparitions, all adorned with the seven kinds of jewels and hung with curtains of various other jewels, such as pearls and moon-bright mani gems. Inside and out, to the right and left, are bathing ponds. Some of them are ten yojanas in length, breadth, and depth. Some are twenty yojanas, others thirty, and so on, until we come to those measuring a hundred thousand yojanas in length, breadth, and depth. They are full to the brim with water that possesses the eight excellent qualities, clear, fragrant, and tasting like nectar. They are golden ponds with bed of silver sands, silver ponds with beds of golden sands, crystal ponds with beds of beryl sands, beryl ponds with beds of crystal sands, coral ponds with beds of amber sands, amber ponds with beds of coral sands, 
agate ponds with beds of ruby sands, and ruby ponds with beds of agate sand, white jade ponds with beds of purple gold sand, purple gold ponds with beds of white jade sand. Others are composed of two to seven jewels. On the banks of these ponds are sandalwood trees, whose flowers and leaves hang down and diffuse perfume everywhere. Heavenly lotuses, blue, pink, yellow, and white, bloom profusely in various tints and tones, completely covering the surface of the water. If bodhisattvas and shravakas in that land enter the jeweled ponds and wish the water to rise to their ankles, it rises to their ankles. If they wish it to rise to their knees, it rises to their knees. If they wish it to rise to their waist, it rises to their waist. If they wish it to rise to their necks, it rises to their necks. If they wish it to pour over their bodies, it spontaneously pours over their bodies. If they wish it to recede, it recedes. Its temperature is moderate, cool or warm, according to their wishes. The water comforts the body and refreshes the mind, washing away their mental defilements. Clear and pure, the water is so transparent that it seems formless. The jewel sand shines so brightly that even the depth of the water cannot prevent its brilliance from being seen. The rippling water forms meandering streams which join and flow into each other. Their movement is peaceful and quiet, neither too fast nor too slow, and their ripples spontaneously produce innumerable wonderful sounds. One can hear whatever sound one wishes. For example, some hear the sound Buddha, some hear the sound Dharma, some Sangha, others hear tranquility, emptiness and no self, great compassion, paramita, ten powers, fearlessness, special qualities, supernatural powers, non-activity, neither arising nor perishing, insight into the non-arising of all dharmas, and so on, until the various sounds of the wonderful dharma, such as the sprinkling of nectar upon the head of a bodhisattva, are reached. As one hears these sounds, one attains immeasurable joy, and accords with the principle of purity, absence of desires, extinction, and reality. One is in harmony with the three treasures, the Buddha's powers, fearlessnesses, and special qualities, and also with supernatural powers and other methods of practice for bodhisattvas and shravakas. Not even the names of the three realms of suffering are heard there, but only nirvanic sounds of bliss. For this reason, that land is called peace and bliss. Ananda, those born in that Buddha land are endowed with such bodies of purity and provided with various exquisite sounds, supernatural powers, and virtues. The palaces in which they dwell, their clothing, food, and drink, the wonderful flowers, and the various kinds of incense and adornments are like those naturally provided in the sixth heaven of the world of desire. At mealtimes, plates made of the seven kinds of jewels, gold, silver, beryl, agate, ruby, coral, and amber, and also of moonbright pearl, spontaneously appear, filled with food and drink of a hundred tastes, according to one's wishes. Although the food is offered, no one actually eats it. Once it has been seen and smelled, one naturally feels that it has been eaten, and so is satisfied. Thus one feels relaxed in body and mind, free from attachment to the sense of taste. When the meal is over, everything disappears, but it reappears at the next mealtime. That Buddha land, like the realm of unconditioned nirvana, is pure and serene, resplendent and blissful. The shravakas, bodhisattvas, heavenly beings, and humans there have lofty and brilliant wisdom and are masters of the supernatural powers. They are all of one form, without any different, but they are called heavenly beings and humans simply by analogy with states of existence in other worlds. They are of noble and majestic countenance, unequaled in all the worlds, and their appearance is superb, unmatched by any being, heavenly or human. They are all endowed with bodies of naturalness, emptiness, and infinity. 
the Buddha said to Ananda, Devas and humans in the land of Amitayas are each provided with robes, food, and drink, flowers, perfume, ornaments, silken canopies, and banners, and are surrounded by exquisite sounds. Their abodes, palaces, and pavilions are exactly in accordance with the size of their bodies. One, two, or even innumerable jewels appear before them as soon as they wish. In addition, beautiful jeweled fabric covers the ground where all the devas and humans walk. In that Buddha land, there are innumerable jeweled nets, all adorned with skeins of gold thread, pearls, and a hundred thousand kinds of rare marvelous treasures. All around the nets hang jeweled bells of the utmost beauty, which shine brilliantly. When a natural breeze of virtue arises and gently blows, it is moderate in temperature, neither cold nor hot, and refreshing and soft to the senses. It moves neither too slowly nor too quickly. When the breeze wafts over the nets and various jeweled trees, countless excellent sounds of the Dharma are heard, and ten thousand kinds of delicate fragrances of virtues are diffused. If one smells those fragrances, one's impurities and passions spontaneously cease to arise. If touched by the breeze itself, one enjoys the same pleasures as a monk who has entered the samadhi of extinction. Again, as the breeze blows, flowers are scattered throughout the Buddha land. They spontaneously divide into different colors, not mixed together. They are soft and pleasant to the touch, glow brilliantly, and diffuse rich fragrances. When one's foot is placed on them, they sink down four inches, and when the foot is lifted, they rise to their former level. When the flowers have served their purpose, the earth opens up and they vanish, leaving the ground clean and without a trace of them. At the right moment, six times a day, the breeze wafts, scattering the flowers in this way. Moreover, lotus flowers of various jewels fill the land. Each has a hundred thousand kotis of petals with lights of numerous colors. Green lotuses grow with green light, white ones with white light, and likewise dark blue, yellow, red, and purple lotuses glow with the lights of their respective colors. The brilliance of these lights is so magnificent that it outshines the sun and moon. Each flower emits 3,600,000 kotis of rays of light, each sending forth 3,600,000 kotis of Buddhas. The bodies of these Buddhas are purple-gold, and their physical characteristics and marks are superb beyond compare. Each Buddha emits 100,000 rays of light and expounds the wonderful Dharma to beings in the ten directions, thus setting innumerable beings on the right path of the Buddha. So that is the pure land of Amitabha Buddha, and I have made the aspiration to go there when I croak, but I've also made the aspiration to see this pure land in my present life. I've never been one to take someone's word for anything, and the Buddha has encouraged us to test his teachings and not accept them merely out of faith or reverence. To continue on in our investigation, we are now going to look at the great masters who did not just have faith in rebirth in the pure land, but completed the two accumulations of merit and wisdom and realized the highest aim of Buddha Dharma for themselves directly. The many traditions that formed across the globe all stem from a woman or man who realized the fruit of Buddhahood. As we get into these writings that these masters left for us, I think it's important to keep in mind that these writings came from their direct experience, that they are not speaking about their hunches or inferences or guesstimations about what a Buddha is or might be. They speak decisively and authoritatively about a Buddha or the Buddha. And because a Buddha is the only one that knows the state of a Buddha, these people are not merely high-level bodhisattvas, but Buddhas themselves. From the sutras, we get such intellectually challenging descriptions about the Buddha that we may subconsciously want to place them in a category of myth, hagiography, or folktale. 
placing them on an unreachable pedestal so as to relieve ourselves of the responsibility of actually taking our lives, our potential, and the Dharma seriously. But for societies and cultures where the Dharma prevailed, where practitioners were supported and encouraged, though it was not common, it was a reality that the achievement of great realization in even Buddhahood was available to those who put forth the effort. So in our modern sensibility, the great masters appear to be things of legend concocted by pre-scientific primitive societies. But this notion comes from colonialist and Eurocentric arrogance that supposes that any account of reality that does not correspond to scientific materialist suppositions and dogma must be the invention of profoundly dishonest and unhinged Asians. The fact that all the accusations of the sutras and shastras being works of fiction were leveled by Caucasians with no meditation experience against non-Caucasians with thousands of years of meditation experience during the time of mass colonialization justified by white supremacy to me speaks volumes. To me, the great irony of our modern age is that we are constantly returning to the wisdom of the East and often plagiarizing and appropriating it to cure the mental and environmental damage that modernity has inflicted upon the earth. To say the least, an approach of humility and admittance of our own lack of knowledge paired with sharp intelligence and openness to new knowledge and confidence in our own ability to reason and understand the nature of reality is indispensable to the study of Dharma. So to begin with the study of the Shastras, I'll start with Master Nagarjuna's Prajnaparamita Shastra. Nagarjuna, active in the 2nd century AD, is said to have lived for 600 years and was known as the second Buddha for the way he definitively compiled and interpreted the teachings of the Buddha. His writings are held in the highest regard by and are the foundation of all Mahayana traditions and to this day remain a marvel of the ancient world by philosophers, scientists, and academics the current custodian of the Nalanda University curriculum and proponent of Nagarjuna's Majjhamaka philosophy, His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, in his book The Middle Way, Faith Grounded in Reason, said the following. The great master Nagarjuna states in his fundamental stanzas on the middle way that teachings given by the Buddha are purely based on two truths. To understand the presentation of the Four Noble Truths in accord with the Middle Way view, it is essential to understand these two levels of truth, conventional and ultimate. For as we have seen, without understanding the ultimate truth, the true mode of being of things, it is extremely difficult to posit cessation in all its comprehensiveness. This is why I wrote, By understanding the two truths, the nature of the ground, I will ascertain how, through the Four Noble Truths, we enter and exit samsara. And since it is on the basis of understanding the two truths that we understand fully the nature of the Dharma jewel, and on this basis gain deeper understanding of the nature of the Buddha jewel and the Sangha jewel, I wrote, I will make firm the faith in the three jewels that is born of understanding. May I be blessed so that the root of the liberating path is firmly established within me. In other words, May a firm confidence in the three jewels arise in me, brought forth by true knowledge based on clear recognition of the natures of the three objects of refuge. And on this basis, may the root of the path to liberation be firmly established in me. Now the goals in Buddhism are the immediate aim of attaining higher rebirth as a human being or as a god, and the ultimate aim of achieving definite goodness. The teachings on the means of attaining higher rebirth are based on the cultivating right-worldly view. What is right-worldly view? It is the right view of the law of karma and its effects based on conviction of the principles of dependent origination. The goal sought and attained on the basis of such a view is higher rebirth. 
If, on the other hand, we develop the understanding of the subtle meaning of how things exist as conceptual designations, we will then understand dependent origination to be empty, and on that basis, the right transworldly view, as opposed to the right worldly view, arises. The goal achieved as a result of this view is definite goodness. Therefore, even the goals of Buddhist spirituality are framed within the context of the two truths. Furthermore, highest definite goodness, the omniscient state of a Buddha, is composed of two embodiments, the sublime body of form, Rupakaya, and the sublime body of truth, the Dharmakaya. A Buddha's form body is achieved through accumulation of merit, the positive potential produced by pure acts of kindness, generosity, and other virtuous practices, while a Buddha's truth body is achieved through the accumulations of wisdom or insight into reality. Since we accumulate merit on the basis of the apparent aspect of dependent origination and accumulate wisdom on the basis of the empty aspect of dependent origination, it emerges that even the state of Buddhahood is defined on the basis of the two truths. It is for these reasons it is stated that all the teachings of the Buddha presented, however vast they may be, were taught within the framework of the two truths. What are referred to as the two truths are the two levels of reality, that of appearance and that of actual reality. Corresponding to the two levels is the understanding of the world that is grounded within the appearance level and the understanding of the world grounded within the level of actual reality, the way things truly are. In our day-to-day -day way of speaking, we recognize different levels of reality. We make distinctions between appearances and reality, and we sense different levels of truth. The teachings of the two truths explicitly conceptualize our intuition of this difference. In this distinction that we experience between appearance and actual reality, the final, actual nature of things constitutes ultimate truth. While understanding developed within the framework of appearance or of our everyday perception constitutes conventional truth. What then are the characteristics of the two truths? Conventional truths are facts of the world obtained by an understanding that is uncritical in regard to ultimate reality. Whenever we, not satisfied by the mere appearances discerned by an uncritical perspective, probe more deeply with critical analysis, searching for the true mode of being of things, the fact obtained through such an inquiry constitutes ultimate truth. This ultimate truth, the final nature of things, therefore, does not refer to some independent, self-standing absolute, some lofty ideal entity. Rather, it refers to the final nature of a particular thing or phenomenon. The particular thing, the basis, and its true mode of being, its ultimate nature, constitutes one and the same entity. Thus, although the perspectives of the characteristics of the two truths are defined distinctly, they pertain to one and the same reality. All phenomenon, whatever they may be, possess each of these two truths. Thank you, Your Holiness. So to understand the Buddha, we should understand reality. And to understand reality, we should turn to Nagarjuna's Prajnaparamita Shastra, an enormous document where Master Nagarjuna expounds on every aspect of the Dharma, but I've selected a few parts of the text specifically pertaining to the Buddha. And again, he explains much more about the Buddha than I have time to present here. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, in the previous quote, introduced the two forms of the Buddha, the Dharmakaya, the embodiment of pure wisdom, which is said to be for the benefit of oneself, and the Rupakaya, the form body, which is the embodiment of pure merit, which is said to be for the benefit of others. The Rupakaya is further divided into two forms, the Sambhogakaya, or enjoyment body, and the Nirmanakaya, the emanation or manifestation body, which will be covered extensively throughout the podcast. 
Together, these Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya are called the Trikaya, or the Three Bodies of the Buddha. One of the great Western disciples of Lama Zopo Rinpoche, the Venerable Tupten Chodron, gave the following explanation of the Trikaya. When we talk about the Buddha, we are referring to the ultimate and conventional Buddha jewel. The truth body of the Dharmakaya refers to the mental aspect of the Buddha, while the form body, or the Rupakaya, refers to the physical manifestation. When somebody becomes a Buddha, they get both of them at the same time. Everything is achieved at the exact same time, because when you make that passage from being a sentient being to a Buddha, everything changes, and it changes all at the same time. The truth body is the ultimate Buddha jewel, while the form body is the conventional or relative Buddha jewel. The truth body has two branches, the nature body, which refers to emptiness of inherent existence of a Buddha's mind, and the cessation of all the defilements of a Buddha's mind. The other branch is called the wisdom truth body, which refers to the omniscience of the Buddha's mind. The Buddha's compassion, wisdom, and consciousness that perceives both relative truths and ultimate truths simultaneously. Because we cannot communicate directly with the Buddha's mind, with the Dharmakaya, the Buddhas out of compassion manifest a physical aspect in a form body so that we can communicate with them. There are two kinds of form bodies that they manifest according to the grossness or subtlety of our mind states and what we can communicate with. When we gain high-level realizations, when we become Arya Bodhisattvas, very high on the path to enlightenment, then the Buddhas manifest in what is called the enjoyment body, the subtle body of the Buddhas made of light that abides in the Pure Lands. The Pure Lands are created out of the collection of positive potentials of the Buddhas. For grosser-level beings like us, who can't even understand impermanence, let alone realize bodhicitta, the Buddhas appear in even grosser aspects called emanation bodies, of which there are several kinds. One is the supreme emanation body, an example of which is Shakyamuni Buddha as he appeared on the earth. Another is an emanation body as an artisan, which is the way that Buddha manifested to subdue different people's minds. Yet another way is a personage, such as Maitreya Buddha, who is now in the Tushita Pure Land, waiting for the time to come to our universe to teach the Dharma. When somebody becomes a Buddha, their body, speech, and mind are not three separate entities. Right now, our body, speech, and mind are three different things. Our body is here, our mind is at the shopping center, and our speech is mumbling commercial tunes. They're three completely different things. When one becomes a Buddha, those things all become one entity. The Buddha's form body is just an appearance of his mind. The mind is the mental side, and the form body is the other side of the coin. The physical appearance of that mind. When somebody is a Buddha, he or she can appear in countless different physical appearances in order to benefit us. Their bodies are reflections of their mental states, reflections that karmically correspond to what we're capable of benefiting from. The Buddha's appearances are very much in tune with our karma, and yet they directly manifested from their own pure states of mind. Also, from the Mahayana viewpoint, when Shakyamuni Buddha passed away at the age of 81, his consciousness didn't just go into extinction. They say a Buddha's consciousness continues because all consciousnesses continue, but it continues in a purified state. And because of the Buddha's great compassion, he can spontaneously manifest in many different forms in order to guide beings. Therefore, the Mahayana talks about many different kinds of Buddhas and talks about Buddhas appearing on our earth right now. That doesn't mean that somebody is going to appear in Seattle or in Washington, D.C. and go da-da-da-da, because that wouldn't be necessarily skillful. The CIA would probably get on him real quick. But the idea is that a Buddha can appear in different forms according to a being's karma, and that the Buddhas appear in skillful ways. 
They don't announce themselves, but they can act in very subtle ways to influence other people so that those people might begin to create good karma, they begin to get an idea of ethics, they begin to practice bodhicitta, and so on. They say that a Buddha can appear as one of our friends, or a dog or a cat, or in any form, so as long as they can help us. Once again, these aren't announced, and they often come and go, so we don't even recognize them. From the Mahayana viewpoint, then, there's very much the feeling of the Buddha being something very imminent. In other words, the Buddhas have omniscient mind, they're here, they know what's going on, they manifest when they have the opportunity. It's like they're really taking care of us and looking over us. So in chapter 4 of his Prajnaparamita Shastra, Nagarjuna gives an explanation of the names of the Buddha, such as Bhagavat, Arhat, Lokavid, and so on. And these definitions give a lot of insight into the nature of the Buddha, but for time I can only cover a couple because I covered these mostly in the last episode. But uh, some of these definitions are a little bit different than Buddhaghosa's version. So the following descriptions are mainly pertaining to the Nirmanakaya, or the physical manifestation of the Buddha. From the last podcast, we encountered the term Samyak Sambuddha, and Nagarjuna gives the following definition. Samyak Sambuddha. He is also called Samyak Sambuddha. Why? Samyak means perfectly, Sam means fully, and Buddhi means understanding. The expression thus means, he who understands all dharmas perfectly and completely. Question, how does he understand perfectly and fully? Answer, he understands suffering as suffering. He understands the origin as origin. He understands cessation as cessation. He understands the path as the path. Therefore, he is called Samyak Sambuddha. 2. Furthermore, he knows that all the dharmas are truly unchangeable, without increase or decrease. Why are they unchangeable? When the functioning of the mind is stopped and destroyed, when the path of speech is cut, he understands that dharmas are motionless, like nirvana itself. This is why he is called Samyaksambuddha. 3. Finally, the languages of all the universes, the ten directions, the languages of the beings and the six destinies, the history of previous lives of beings and their birthplaces, and future generations, the nature of the mind of all beings in the ten directions, their fetters, their roots of good, and their outcome, and all the dharmas of this kind he knows in detail. This is why he is called Samyaksambuddha. Why is he called Tathagata? 1. He preaches the natures of the dharmas in the way that he has understood them. 2. In the way that the previous Buddhas have gone by the path of safety, thus the actual Buddha is going, and will not go to new existences. He is also called Sugata. Su means good, and gata means either to go or speaking. Therefore, the expression means well gone or well spoken. The Buddha has transcended by all kinds of deep concentrations and numberless great wisdoms. Thus the stanza says, The Buddha has omniscience, sarvajana, as his chariot. By means of the Eightfold Noble Path, he has gone to nirvana. This is why he is called Sugata, well gone. He is Sugata, well-spoken, because he preaches the doctrine according to the true nature of the dharmas, and without being attached to the doctrine. Taking into account the degree of wisdom of his disciples, he uses every skillful means and the power of his super-knowledges to convert them. He alone knows who can be saved, who is sick or weakened, what each one needs to be saved, 
to whom it is suitable to preach generosity or discipline or nirvana, to whom he can expound the system of the five elements, the twelve causes, or the four noble truths, etc., in order to introduce them into the path. It is under aspects such as these that he knows the extent of knowledge of his disciples, and that consequently he preaches the doctrine. This is why he is called Sugata, well-spoken. He is also called Buddha. What dharmas does he know? He knows all dharmas, past, future, and present, animate and inanimate, permanent and impermanent. He knew them all completely under the Bodhi tree. That is why he is called Buddha. The Arhats and Pracheka Buddhas are also able to destroy attachment, hatred, and stupidity. In what do they differ from the Buddha? Answer. Although the Arhats and Pracheka Buddhas have destroyed this threefold poison, they have not entirely eliminated the latent predispositions of poison. It is like perfume in a vase. When the perfume is removed, a trace of the odor remains. Or it is like kindling. The fire burns, the smoke disappears, but the ash remains. For the strength of the fire is decreased. On the other hand, in the Buddha, the threefold poison is eliminated without residue. It is like at the end of a kalpa, when the fire burns Mount Miru in the entire earth, these disappear completely without leaving smoke or charcoal. For example, the traces of hatred in Shariputra, the traces of attachment in Nanda, and the traces of pride in Palinda Vasta. They are like a man in fetters who, as soon as he is released, begins to walk unceasingly. Question. You are a partisan of the Kshatriya clan. A son of King Shudodana, the Buddha was called Siddhartha. It is out of flattery that you are decorating him with great names and that you call him omniscient. He is not an omniscient one. Answer. Not at all. Rather, it is you, maliciously, that are jealous and slander the Buddha. The omniscient one truly exists. Among all beings, the Buddha is unequaled for his beauty, grace, and perfection. By his characteristics, his qualities, and his brilliance, he surpasses all men. Humble people who saw his physical marks recognized him to be omniscient and a fortiori, the great man. Question. There cannot be an omniscient one in the world. Why? Because nobody has seen the omniscient one. Answer. That is not correct. Just because one cannot see something, one cannot say that it does not exist. 1. A thing really exists, but it is hidden, and one does not see it. Thus the origin of the clan of a man, the weight of the Himalayas, the number of grains of sand in the Ganges River, really exist, but one cannot cognize them. 2. A thing does not exist, and, because it does not exist, one does not see it. For example, a second head or third hand. It is not because they are hidden that one does not see them. Thus, because the omniscient one is hidden, you do not see him, but nonetheless he exists. Why is he hidden? Because those who ought to see him do not possess the required four kinds of faith, and their minds are attached to error. It is because he is hidden to you that you do not see the omniscient one. Question. There is no omniscient one, because the things that he must know to be omniscient are numberless. The dharmas are innumerable and infinite. If any men together cannot know them, how could one single man know them? Therefore, there is no omniscient one. Answer. If the dharmas are innumerable, the wisdom of the Buddha itself is immense. It is like an envelope. If the letter is big, the envelope is big. If the letter is short, the envelope is small. Question. The Buddha himself has preached the Buddha Dharma, but he has not spoken about the other sciences, medicine, geography, astronomy, arithmetic, politics, etc. If he is omniscient, why has he not spoken of all these sciences? 
Therefore, we know that he is not omniscient. Answer. He knows everything, but he talks about it when it is useful, and does not talk about it when it is useless. If he is questioned, he speaks. If he has not questioned, he says nothing. 2. Furthermore, he has spoken of everything in general as being of three types. 1. Conditioned phenomenon. 2. Unconditioned phenomenon. And 3. Inexpressible phenomenon. These three categories include all the dharmas. Question. We know that the Buddha is not omniscient because he did not reply to 14 difficult questions. What are these 14 difficult questions? 1 through 4. Are the world and the self eternal? Are they non-eternal? Are they both eternal and non-eternal? Are they neither eternal nor non-eternal? 5 through 9. Are the world and the self finite? Are they infinite? Are they both finite and infinite? Are they neither finite nor infinite? 9 through 12. Does the Tathagata exist after death? Does he not exist after death? Does he both exist and not exist after death? Is it false that he both exists and does not exist after death? 13 and 14. Is the life principle the same as the body? Is the life principle different from the body? If the Buddha is omniscient, why did he not answer these 14 difficult questions? Answer. 1. These questions are futile, and that is why the Buddha did not answer them. The eternity of the Dharma is unnecessary. Their cessation is even more unnecessary. This is why the Buddha did not answer. If it is asked how many liters of milk is given by a cow's horn, that is not a proper question, and it is not necessary to answer it. Besides, the universe has no end. Like a chariot wheel, it has no beginning and no end. 2. Furthermore, there is no advantage in answering these questions, but there is the disadvantage of leading the questioner into error. The Buddha knows these fourteen difficult points hide the four truths and the true nature of the dharmas endlessly. If there are noxious insects at a ford, people should not be invited to cross there. A place should be safe and without danger, so that people can be invited to cross. Furthermore, some say that these questions can be understood only by the omniscient one. Since other men cannot understand them, the Buddha does not reply. 4. Furthermore, some people call existent that which is not existent, and call non-existent that which is existent. They are not omniscient. The omniscient one does not call non-existent that which exists, does not call existent that which does not exist. He preaches only the true nature of the dharmas. Why should he not be called omniscient? The sun does not create the mountains in the valley, nor does it create the plain, but it does illuminate everything uniformly. In the same way, the Buddha does not make non-existent that which exists, does not make non-existent that which does not exist. He always speaks the truth, and the brilliance of his wisdom illuminates all the dharmas. He is like a unique path. When people ask the Buddha if the twelve-membered law, Pratitya Samudpada, was created by the Buddha or by another, the Buddha answers, I have not created the twelve-membered law, nor has anyone else created it. Whether Buddhas exist or do not exist, birth is the cause and condition of old age and death. That is the eternal and enduring law. The Buddha teaches that birth is the cause and condition of old age and death, and coming to the end of the causal chain, that ignorance is the cause and condition of the formations. 5. Furthermore, to reply to the fourteen difficult questions would be to commit a fault. If you ask what type is the size or the physique of a son of a barren woman and a eunuch, that would not deserve an answer, for such a son does not exist. 6. Furthermore, these fourteen difficult questions are wrong views, are not realities. Now the Buddha is occupied only with realities. That is why he stops and does not answer. 7. 
Finally, to be silent and not answer is an answer. There are four ways of answering. 1. Answering in a categorical way. For this is how he answers when it concerns, for example, the Buddha, the Absolute, Nirvana, and Salvation. 2. Answering by distinguishing. 3. Answering by asking a question. And 4. Answering by not replying. Here the Buddha answers by not replying. You say that there is no omniscient one. Such a statement is absurd and constitutes a serious falsehood. In fact, the omniscient one exists. Why? Because he has attained the ten powers. He knows what is possible and what is impossible. He knows the causes and conditions and the retributions of actions. He knows the samadhis and the deliverances. He knows the good or bad faculties of beings. He knows the various kinds of deliverances from desire. He knows the innumerable lineages of all types of universes. He knows all the abodes and their paths. He knows the conduct and the thoughts of beings in their previous existences. He has acquired the discriminations of the divine eye. He knows the cessation of all the impurities. He distinguishes clearly between the good and bad. He preaches a supreme doctrine in all the universes. He has acquired the taste of ambrosia. He has found the middle path. He knows the true nature of all conditioned or unconditioned dharmas. He has rejected forever all desire of the three worlds. It is for these reasons that the Buddha is omniscient. Moreover, the Buddha possesses two things, one, great qualities, and the power of the superknowledges, and two, an absolutely pure mind, and the destruction of the fetters. Although the gods have an accumulation of merit and miraculous powers, their fetters are not destroyed, and consequently their minds are not pure. Since their minds are not pure, their miraculous power is decreased. Among the Shravakas and Pracheka Buddhas, the fetters are destroyed and the mind is pure. Nevertheless, as their accumulation of merit is reduced, their power is weak. In the Buddha, the two qualities of merit and purity of mind are perfected. That is why he is called Sarvana Rotama, superior to all men. He is the only one to surpass all men. Question. So be it. The omniscient one exists. But who is it? Answer. It is the Supreme One, the Great Man, the One who is venerated in the Three Worlds. He is called Buddha. Thus, the Buddha Stotragata says, Firstborn and King Chakravartin, the Buddha is like the light of the sun and moon. He belongs to the noble line of the Sakyas. He is the crown prince of the King Shudodana. At the moment of his birth, he moved three thousand Semarus and stirred up the water of the ocean. In order to destroy old age, sickness, and death, out of compassion he came to the world. At his birth he took seven steps, his rays filled the ten directions. He gazed four times and uttered a great cry. My births, he cried, are finished. Having become a Buddha, I will preach a marvelous doctrine. I will beat the drum of the Dharma loudly. By that I will awaken beings and the world out of the sleep of ignorance. In many forms such were the miracles that appeared. Gods and men seeing them rejoiced. The Buddha had a body adorned with marks. A great light shone in his face. All men and women could not get enough of seeing him. When the child was nursed and fed, his strength surpassed that of a Nayuta of Gandahastin. The power of his Idipada was extreme, that of his Prajna immense. The great rays of the Buddha illuminated his body outwardly. In the midst of his rays, the Buddha was like the moon in its splendor. The Buddha was criticized in many ways. He experienced no sorrow from that. The Buddha was praised in many ways. He experienced no joy from that. His great Maitri is extended to all, enemies and friends alike, without distinction. All classes of intelligent beings know all the effects of that. By the power of his Kshanti, Laja, Maitri, and Karuna, he conquers the whole world. 
In order to save beings from age to age, he accepts the effort and the pain. His mind is always concentrated in doing good for beings. He has the ten powers of knowledge and the four fearlessnesses. He possesses the eighteen special attributes and the treasury of immense qualities. Such are the innumerable powers of his prodigious qualities. Like a fearless lion, he destroys the heretical systems. He turns the peerless wheel of Dharma. He saves and delivers the threefold world. His name is Bhagavad. The meaning of this word is immense. And if one wanted to explain it fully, other points would have to be neglected. This is why we have spoken of it in general. Further along in the Shastra, Nagarjuna talks about the bearing of the Buddha. Question. What is the bearing of the Buddha? Answer. The bearing is the four physical movements of postures, walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. 1. Walking. Like the king of the elephants, the Buddha turns his body in order to look. When he walks, his feet are four inches above the ground, and although he does not set foot on the ground, the traces of the wheel on his soles are visible on the earth. He walks neither too slowly nor too quickly. He does not bend his body. He always raises his right hand to reassure beings. 2. Sitting posture. He sits cross-legged with his body upright. 3. Lying down posture. He always lies down on his right side and places his knees one on top of the other. The mat of grass that he spreads out is well arranged and not disordered. 4. Manner of eating. When he eats, he is not attached to the taste. For him, good and bad food are the same. 5. Manner of speaking. To accept an invitation from people, he keeps silent and does not refuse. His speech is gentle, skillful, beneficial, and timely. Here are the 18 special qualities. 1. The Tathagata has no bodily defect. 2. He has no vocal defect. 3. He has no failure of memory. 4. He has no notion of variety. 5. He does not have an unconcentrated mind. 6. He does not have thoughtless indifference. 7. He has no loss of zealousness. 8. He has no loss of exertion. 9. He has no loss of mindfulness. 10. He has no loss of wisdom. 11. He has no loss of liberation. 12. He has no loss of the knowledge and vision of deliverance. 13. Every bodily action of the Tathagata is preceded by knowledge and accompanies knowledge. 14. Every vocal action is preceded by knowledge and accompanies knowledge. 15. Every mental action is preceded by knowledge and accompanies knowledge. 16. He has non-attached and unobstructed knowledge about pastime. 17. He has non-attached and unobstructed knowledge about future time. 18. He has non-attached and unobstructed knowledge about the present time. Question. 36 attributes are all attributes of the Buddha. Why are just these 18 special? Answer. The Shravakas and Pracheka Buddhas possess some of the 18 first attributes, but they do not share this second set of 18 attributes. So, the following teachings from Nagarjuna relate to the Sambhogakaya, or enjoyment body of the Buddha. This word Samboga is difficult to give the full meaning of, but essentially it is the spiritual, ethereal, or body made of light that appears to bodhisattvas of a certain level of spiritual attainment that are training in the Buddha Shetras, or Buddha fields, which are also divided into several levels depending on one's level of development. So, with a quote from the Satasaha Srika Prajnaparamita Sutra, Furthermore, O Shariputra, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva must, must practice the perfection of wisdom if he wishes to see the Buddha fields of the past and future Buddhas, 
and if he wishes to see the Buddha fields of the Buddhas existing at the present everywhere in the ten directions. So in the Shastra, question, but in seeing the Buddhas of the ten directions, the Bodhisattva has already seen their Buddha fields. Why speak again here of the Bodhisattva who wishes to see the Buddha fields? Answer, above the Bodhisattva had not yet penetrated deeply into the dhyanas and the absorptions, but had he seen the Buddha fields of the ten directions with their mountains, rivers, plants, and trees, his mind would have been distracted. This is why he was limited to seeing the Buddhas. Everything happened as in the recollection of the Buddha, where it is said that the yogin sees only the Buddhas, but does not see the lands, the mountains, rivers, or the trees. Here, on the other hand, the Bodhisattva has obtained the power of the dhyanas and absorptions, and is thus able to see as much as he wants, not only the Buddhas, but also the Buddha fields. Furthermore, the very pure Buddha fields, the Parishuddha Buddha Kshetras, are difficult to see. This is why the Prajnaparamita Sutra says, If he wishes to see the Buddha fields, the Bodhisattva must practice the perfection of wisdom. Finally, each Buddha possesses hundreds of thousands of kinds of Buddha Kshetras. As I said before, there are pure, impure, mixed, or absolutely pure Buddha Kshetras. Since the latter are hard to see, the power of the Prajnaparamita is needed to discover them. It is like the Devaputra in his audience hall. He can be seen by the people from the outside, but in his private apartment he is not seen by anyone. Question. We accept that the Buddha Kshetras presently existing in the ten directions can be seen, but how could one see the Buddha Kshetras of the past and future Buddhas? Answer. The Bodhisattva possesses the concentration called vision of the past and future. In this concentration, he sees things past and future. It is like the visions in a dream. Furthermore, the Bodhisattva possesses the concentration of unceasing term. In this concentration, he does not see that the Buddhas have cessation. Question. But these two concentrations are not of the eyes. How could he see? Answer. These two concentrations are wisdoms metaphorically called I. Similarly, in the triple turning of the wheel of Dharma, on each of the twelve aspects of the Four Noble Truths, the ascetic obtains the eye, the knowledge, the clear intuition, the awareness. Furthermore, the Bodhisattva who sees the Buddha Kshetra presently existing in the ten directions knows perfectly well that the past and future Buddha Kshetras are the same as them. Why? Because the qualities of the Buddhas are the same amongst all of them. Finally, in the view of the Prajnaparamita, the present, the past, and the future are the same, and without differences, for it is a matter of one and the same suchness, tatata, one and the same fundamental element, dharmadhatu. This is why you should not argue with us here. So for the dharmakaya, or the truth body, or reality body, the following definitions are given by Master Nagarjuna. My teacher Anamtutten Rinpoche said, if you don't understand the dharmakaya, this is a good thing. If you think, I know what the Dharmakaya is, it's this and that, then you might have a problem. But Nagarjuna, being the crux of understanding of such things, is the one to turn to. So concerning the epithet of the Buddha, the Tathagata, which mainly refers to the reality body of a Buddha, I will read from chapter 12 of Nagarjuna's Mula Madhyamaka Karika, the fundamental verses of the Middle Way, Examination of the Tathagata, translated by David Kalupahana. The Tathagata is neither the aggregates nor different from them. The aggregates are not him, nor is he in the aggregates. He is not possessed of the aggregates. In such a context, who is the Tathagata? If a Buddha were to be dependent upon the aggregates, he does not exist in terms of a self-nature. 
He who does not exist in terms of a self-nature, how can he exist in terms of other nature? He who is dependent upon other nature would appropriately be without self. Yet, how can he who is without self be a Tathagata? If there exists no self-nature, how could there be other nature? Without both self-nature and other nature, who is this Tathagata? If there were to be a Tathagata because of non-grasping onto the aggregates, he should still depend upon them in the present. As such, he will be dependent. There exists no Tathagata independent of the aggregates. How can he who does not exist dependently be grasped? There is no sphere of non-grasping, nor is there something as grasping. Neither is there something who is without grasping. How can there be a Tathagata? He who, sought for in the fivefold manner, does not exist in the form of a different identity. How can that Tathagata be made known through grasping? This grasping is not found in terms of self-nature. How can that which does not exist in terms of self-nature come to be in terms of other nature? Thus grasping and grasper are empty in every way. How can an empty Tathagata be made known by something that is empty? Empty, non-empty, both or neither, these should not be declared. It is expressed only for the purpose of communication. How can the tetralemma, if eternal, non-eternal, etc., be in the peaceful? How can the tetralemma of finite, infinite, etc., be in the peaceful? Discriminating on the basis of grasping or the grasped, and firmly insisting that a tathagata exists or does not exist, a person would think similarly even of one who has ceased. When he is empty in terms of self-nature, the thought that the Buddha exists or does not exist after death is not appropriate. Those who generate obsessions with great regard to the Buddha, who has gone beyond obsessions and is constant, all of them, impaired by obsessions, do not see the Tathagata. Whatever is the self-nature of the Tathagata, that is also the self-nature of the universe. The Tathagata is devoid of self-nature. This universe is also devoid of self-nature. So I hope you're not more confused on the Tathagata Buddha than you were before, but essentially the entire rest of the podcast will serve as a commentary to these verses. Essentially Nagarjuna here is making the case against dogmatism, against clinging to an obsession on views of exists and does not exist as in relation to the ultimate truth and the inconceivable liberation of a Buddha. Such designations do not apply and are counterproductive to understanding. If you really follow the logic of these verses that build upon a much longer and greater buildup of reductio ad absurdum, you will find that expressions that definitively place the Tathagata in any category fail to hold ground. There is no expression of the ultimate, no formula, no language that will satisfy what we wish to call truth, the truth of the Tathagata and the truth of us as the universe, who are inseparable from the Tathagata. What understanding should we have then? To go further into the empty self-nature of a Buddha and the universe, I selected a few verses from Nagarjuna's In Praise of the Dharmadhatu, the Dharmadhatu Stava, with commentary by some of the goats of Tibetan Buddhism. Here we go. Virtuous, throughout beginning, middle, and end, undeceiving, and so steady. What's like that is just the lack of self. So how can you conceive of it as a self and mine? about water at the time of spring, what we say is that it's warm, of the very same thing when it's chilly, we just say that it's cold. 
covered by the web of the afflictions, it is called a sentient being. Once it is free of the afflictions, it should be expressed as Buddha. Once conception and its concepts are relinquished, with regard to phenomenon, whose principle is mind, it's the very lack of nature of phenomenon that you should cultivate as the Dharmadhatu. What you see and hear and smell, what you taste and touch, phenomenon is well. Once yogins realize them in this way, their characteristics are complete. Eyes and ears and also nose, tongue and body and the mind as well, the six ayatanas, fully pure. This is truly reality's own mark. Mind as such is seen as two, worldly and beyond the world, clinging to it as a self, it is samsara, in your very own awareness, true reality. Since desire is extinguished, it is nirvana. Hatred and ignorance are extinguished too. Since these have ceased, it's Buddhahood itself, the very refuge for all beings. Through our own conception we are bound, but when knowing our nature we are free. Enlightenment is neither far nor near, and neither does it come nor go. It's whether it is seen or not, right in the midst of our afflictions. By dwelling in the lamp of prajna, it turns into peace supreme, so the collections of the sutras say, by exploring yourself you should rest. Children blessed by the tenfold power's force see them like the crescent of the moon, but those beings with afflictions do not see Tathagatas at all. Just as ghosts with thirst and hunger see the ocean to be dry, those obscured by ignorance think that the Buddhas do not exist. What's the Bhagavat supposed to do for inferiors and those whose merits low? It's just like the supreme of jewels put in the hand of one who's blind. But for beings who acquire merit, the Buddhas dwell before their eyes, with the thirty-two marks shining bright in their luminous and glorious light. Through empowering their eldest children, they bestow empowerment on them. Abiding in this yoga that's so great, with divine eyes they behold worldly beings debased by ignorant, distraught, and terrified by suffering. From their bodies, without effort, light rays are beaming forth, and open wide the gates for those who are engulfed in ignorance gloom. It's held that those in the nirvana with remainder into the nirvana without remainder pass, but here the actual nirvana is mind that's free from any stain. The non-being of all beings, this nature is its sphere. The mighty bodhicitta seeing it is fully stainless dharmakaya. In the stainless dharmakaya, the sea of wisdom finds its place. Like with variegated jewels, beings' welfare is fulfilled from it. So those were just a few lines from this wonderful, wonderful masterpiece of Buddhist composition from Nagarjuna. And on these verses, the great Nyingma master from the 19th century, Ju Mipam, comments, The actuality of the Datu, of the two realities in union, which is free from the entire web of reference points to be personally experienced, is called naturally pure Dharmadatu and emptiness. All sutras of the Mahayana and the commentaries on their intention say that this is the Buddha disposition that fully qualifies as such, and the Svabhavakaya endowed with twofold purity. Therefore, it is not tenable to assert this naturally abiding disposition as anything but unconditioned. Being unconditioned, it is furthermore not reasonable for this Dharmadhatu to, through its very own nature, perform the activity of producing another result and then cease. Consequently, it is not tenable to assert the qualities of the Dharmakaya as anything but a result of freedom. 
that it is like this and said by the regent, the great Bodhisattva on the tenth Bhumi, in his Uttara Tantra Shastra. It is also very clearly stated by the glorious protector, noble Nagarjuna, in his Dharmadhatu Stava. Hence, by following these scriptures, our own tradition asserts the unconditioned Dharmadhatu as the disposition. This Dhatu is the basic nature of all phenomenon. Its essence is without arising and ceasing and it has the character of appearance and emptiness inseparable, not falling on either side. The ultimate perfect Buddhakaya, the Dharmakaya, with its qualities that equal the vastness of space, clearly shows or radiates or manifests later from what was previously an ordinary being, that is, the mind stream of a person that has been associated with the entire set of fetters. Since there is such a manifestation of the Dharmakaya, the Tathagata heart exists in the mind streams of sentient beings, from now right up through the point when this manifestation happens. There is a common and uncommon justification for how this is established. As for the first one, if there are sentient beings who manifest the wisdom Dharmakaya, their minds necessarily have the disposition of being suitable to become Buddhas, while the same is not tenable for what completely lacks this disposition. As the Dharmadhatu Stava says, if this element exists through our work, we will see the purest of all gold. Without this element, despite our toil, nothing but misery we will produce. So I think the main point of this is that the Dharmadhatu, or the Dharma realm of basic, unchanging, unceasing reality that is the basic reality of everything, including you and me, is inseparable from us normal people that have afflictions and do stupid things and yell at the TV and overeat and can't fly or see the future. But that this Buddha nature... This Buddha potential has yet to be realized or activated within us due to a lack of understanding and lack of practice. Uh, but about this Buddha nature, Rangjung Dorje, the third Karmapa, in his commentary on the Dharmadhatu Stava, says the following. The inconceivable point of the basic element is that the Buddha heart is not tainted by any stains, but does not become Buddhahood until all afflictive and cognitive stains have been relinquished. The inconceivable point of enlightenment is that the basic element is associated with these stains until beginningless time, but because these stains are adventitious, they are not established as any real substance. The inconceivable point of the qualities of enlightenment is that the 64 qualities of Buddhahood exist in all sentient beings right now in a complete way. But if they are not triggered through the condition of the Immaculate Dharma, the natural outflow of the utterly stainless Dharmadhatu, their power does not come forth. The inconceivable point of enlightened activity is that there is no difference in the enlightened activity, effortless, spontaneous, and non-conceptual operation in terms of all sentient beings and Buddhas being the same or different. Thus, being free from all expressions, yet serving as the basis for all expressions, is being inconceivable. Though it is said that this mode of being is difficult to realize by Shravakas, Pracheka Buddhas, and even Bodhisattvas who have newly entered the Mahayana, not understanding these reasons, others explain that the fruition exists already right now, that the afflictions are not to be relinquished, that new remedial wisdom cannot be produced, and that natural purity is the partial aspect of nothing but a non-implicative negation. Such explanations are a far cry from the Vajrayana. Therefore, one should know that this inconceivable matrix, the very essence of what dependently originates, such as ultimate and seeming, Buddhas and sentient beings, appearance and emptiness, 
is contained in the three phases of sentient beings, bodhisattvas on the path, and Buddhas. In detail, I have already explained this in my treatise, Determining the Buddha's Heart. So this passage is the third karmapa going against what many people, especially in our modern age, imagine to be enlightenment, which is just us in our normal, deluded, unenlightened activities where we're distracted all the time and don't meditate and have no compassion and drag the Buddha down to our level saying he was just a regular guy and that you don't have to get rid of afflictions or do any practice. So to help us relinquish our stupidity and realize what has gone unrealized, meaning the Dharmadhatu or Dharmakaya, the Buddhas appear to us in many forms to encourage and teach us. And about this, Rangjung Dorje comments, You may wonder, what does the appearance of this Kaya do? Nagarjuna's verse says, Though the protector's Rupakaya may remain for many eons, for guiding those in need of guidance, this very Datu shows as different. So the third Karmapa comments, The Rupakayas appear to guide specific beings by remaining for exactly as long or short a time as it takes to mature their mind streams. In that this completely bright wisdom of their own appears as an object, there is a slight factor of dualistic apprehension. Therefore, the Rupakayas indeed appear in this way, but it is not that the Dharmadhatu and wisdoms are different ultimately. Nagarjuna's verse says, the great and mighty one's supreme abode, Akanishta, that's so beautiful, and consciousness, all three of them, fuse into a single one, I say. It is explained that, once self-aware wisdom, the completely pure Dharmadhatu, has reached its culmination, the wisdom of the Rupakayas in the form of the Sambhogakaya in the abode of the great and mighty Bodhisattvas, the Akanishta of the form realm, appear. This presentation, and what is said in the Avatamsaka Sutra about the great Akanishta of the Dharmadhatu, are indeed explained as if they were different. However, actually, all that is spoken of here does not actually exist as any external referent in the way it is described. Rather, it is due to the aspect of the stains on the essence of one's own mind, having become pure or not, that wisdom merely appears in two aspects, as if it were an object and a perceiving subject, in the final picture, since the three consciousnesses fuse into a single one, all Buddhas are equal to the three equalities. Therefore, I, the noble great being Nagarjuna, say that also the appearances in the consciousnesses of those who engage in yoga do not exist as anything other than just these consciousnesses themselves. Here in the three kinds of consciousness are the six consciousnesses that operate with entities, the mentation that dwells in the alaya consciousness and the alaya consciousness. You may wonder, how do they fuse? Through practitioners purifying their operating consciousnesses on the bumi of engagement through aspiration, the nirmanakaya is displayed for them. Through purifying the mentation that dwells in the alaya consciousness from having entered the first of the bumis of pure superior intention, up through the seventh bumi, the sambhogakaya appears. Through the alaya consciousness becoming pure on the three pure bumis, the dharmakaya appears. Thus the Bhumis are attained, just as these Kayas appear, and through such attainment, mastery is gained. This is expressed in the conventional term, having arrived at their very nature. Therefore, the enlightened activity of the Buddha Kayas and wisdoms, at the same time, appears as if it existed externally, and yet it is without any real existence in the outside. Consequently, you should know that it is the light rays and the enlightened activity of your own Dharmakaya. Thus the meaning of this accords with what is said in the ornament of the Realm of Wisdom Sutra and the Uttara Tantra. 
Likewise, in those with unstained confidence, and such, by having cultivated the qualities of confidence and so on, what appears in their own minds are the perfect Buddhas, endowed with the major and minor marks. These Buddhas are walking, standing, sitting, and sleeping, performing all kinds of conduct, speaking the Dharma of peace, resting in meditative equipoise in speechless reality, and demonstrating all kinds of miraculous displays. Possessed of great splendor, the Buddhas will be seen by sentient beings. Having seen them, those who have the wish will devote their efforts to this Buddhahood, in quotes, correctly adopting its causes, they will attain the state they long for. These appearances are utterly without thought and movement. Nevertheless, they manifest with great benefits for the world. Ordinary beings surely do not understand that these are appearances of their own minds. Nevertheless, seeing these forms becomes fruitful for them. By relying on gradually seeing these forms, those who dwell in this principle will see the genuine Dharmakaya right in the middle through the eye of wisdom. So Rangjong Dorje, the third Karmapa, says so much more about how the Dharmakaya is attained through contact with the Mahayana, the five kinds of mastery of the Dharmakaya, how the Dharmakaya is the support for the other Kayas, and the six Buddha Dharmas that constitute the Dharmakaya. But due to time constraints, I sadly have to leave it there. But the link for the book In Praise of the Dharmadhatu with its commentaries by many, many masters will be on the Buddhaverse podcast website. So we talked a little bit earlier about the pure realms or the Buddhakshetras that are the realms of the Sambhogakaya Buddhas that are only available to the enlightened purview of those progressing along the ten Bodhisattva Bhumis or stages on the path to Buddhahood. Dujum Rinpoche, in his Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism, says the following about the Sambhogakaya and the Buddha Shakyamuni. When students had doubts about the Buddha Shakyamuni, thinking that he must be inferior to Buddhas that had appeared in other eras due to their lifespan and physical size being greater than Buddha Shakyamuni's, Shakyamuni said, At that time, I became the Tathagata Varochana. This refers to the Sambhogakaya Buddha Varochana called the Great Glacial Ocean Varochana. This statement by the Buddha tells us that Buddha Shakyamuni is manifest on the Sambhogakaya level as Buddha Varochana. The Sambhogakaya Buddha is, moreover, indivisible from all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions. Within each pore of his body, infinite world systems appear, and within each atom of these world systems is an infinity of other worlds with infinite forms of Varochana. Each form of Varochana contains infinite Buddhas and Buddha fields. Varochana encompasses the entirety of all world systems, and the entirety of all world systems constitutes Varochana. Our world system, called the world system of endurance, or the Sahalokadatu, is an infinitely tiny segment within these oceanic world systems. On Varochana's palm alone are 25 lotuses, each containing billions of third-order thousand world systems. On the 13th lotus tier, at exactly the middle level of the 25 lotuses, our third-order thousand world system is found. However, our third-order of thousand world systems is merely one amongst billions. One third order of thousand world systems is the field of influence of one Nirmanakaya, in our case, Buddha Shakyamuni. When Buddha Shakyamuni stated that he had become Great Glacial Ocean Varochana, he eradicated all doubts concerning his possible inferiority due to the difference in his lifespan and physical size when compared with that of other Buddhas. All Buddhas are equal with regard to two accumulations of merit and wisdom. Their realization of the Dharmakaya, moreover, is also equal. Furthermore, they equally benefit sentient beings. Nevertheless, they differ in lifespans, caste, and physical size. 
So now that we've heard a bit from Master Nagarjuna and some of his commentators about the Trikaya, there is still a great deal more to cover about Buddha and Buddha nature. Based upon how the teachings evolved, matured, and spread throughout the world, beginning with Arya Asanga and his visionary revelation from the 10th Bhumi Bodhisattva Maitreya in the 3rd century CE, Arya Asanga and his half-brother are known as the founders of the Chittamatra school of Buddhist philosophy, or mind-only school, and are responsible for many of the most important works for the development and dissemination of Mahayana Buddhism. Both he and his brother were practitioners of the Theravada in what is present-day Pakistan, but they converted to Mahayana when Asanga brought back from the heaven of Tushita what became known as the Five Treatises of Maitreya. The Uttara Tantra Shastra, which was quoted earlier by Rangjung Dorje, is one of the most studied and quoted works of any Mahayana Shastra and lays the foundation for the understanding of the concept of Buddha nature, also called the Tathagata Garbha, or the Matrix of the Thus Come One, by the Buddhist Text Translation Society. Buddha nature is discussed in many sutras, but is covered explicitly and at length in the Uttara Tantra Shastra. The root text is laid out in what are called the seven Vajra points, in which are discussed the three jewels, the elements or Buddha nature, a Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha's qualities, and a Buddha's activities. Obviously, as always, this text deserves ten podcasts to discuss each Vajra point at length, but I will give you just a whiff of its essence in the hope that it will encourage you to study it deeply. I encourage you to go to the SoundCloud of Kempo Sodarje, where he has been giving teachings on the Uttara Tantra Shastra for some time now. I, myself, am all caught up with the course, but it is still ongoing. For our investigation, I will be drawing upon the edition of the text with commentary by Jamgang Kongchul Lojotaye and Kempo Soltrim Gyamso, translated by Rosemarie Fuchs. In the section on the Buddha, the text says the following, The Buddha is without beginning, middle, or end. He is peace itself, fully self-awakened and self-expanded in Buddhahood. Having reached this state, he shows the indestructible, permanent path, so that those who have no realization may realize. Wielding the supreme sword and vajra of knowledge and compassionate love, he cuts the seedling of suffering, and destroys the wall of doubts along with its surrounding thicket of various views. I bow down to this Buddha. Being uncreated and spontaneously present, not a realization due to extraneous conditions, wielding knowledge, compassionate love, and ability, Buddhahood has the qualities of two benefits. Its nature is without beginning, middle, or end. Hence the state of a Buddha is uncreated. Since it possesses the peaceful Dharmakaya, it is described as being spontaneously present. Since it must be realized through self-awareness, it is not a realization due to extraneous conditions. These three aspects being realized, there is knowledge. Since the path is shown, there is compassionate love. There is ability since the mental poisons and suffering are relinquished by primordial wisdom and compassion. Through the first three, there is benefit to oneself. Through the latter three, there is benefit for other. Jamgun Kongtro Lojo Taiye comments here. By the preceding section, Buddhahood is shown as having six or eight qualities. Since it is not engendered by cause and conditions, it has the quality of being uncreated and unchanging. Since it is free from deliberate effort, it has the quality of being spontaneously present. Since it is self-aware, it has the quality of not being realized due to extraneous conditions. Since a Buddha possesses these three qualities, he has the quality of knowledge. Since he leads the other beings to also attain this knowledge, he has the quality of great compassionate love. 
since he brings about the relinquishment of the causes of suffering of all other beings, thereby eradicating the suffering that is the fruit of these causes, he has the quality of being endowed with ability. In terms of the subject matter, there are six different kinds of qualities. If classed according to aspect, the first three form the quality of the best possible benefit for oneself. The latter three form the quality of best possible benefit for others. Considering these as a whole, Buddhahood possesses eight qualities. Here, Buddhahood is explained in such a way that the statements made in the foregoing section on the different types of qualities are successively proven on the basis of the reasons taught in the praise. Whatever is compounded or created consists of the three aspects of beginning, middle, and end, or in other words, has the properties of coming into existence, of abiding, and then being destroyed. Since Buddhahood is of a nature that is free from these, it is uncreated. Generally speaking, there are four teachings with regarding to the term uncreated. Depending upon the following criteria, the subject in question is considered as being created or uncreated. The first criterion is whether or not there is a rising and cessation due to cause and conditions. The second is whether or not there is a rising and cessation of karma and mental poisons. The third is whether or not arising through a body of mental nature and cessation in terms of an inconceivable death take place. The fourth is whether or not the subject in question appears to the disciple as something that arises and ceases. In this context, Rongtampa holds that in the light of these four criterion, the Dharmakaya of all Buddhas is uncreated, in the sense of not appearing to the disciples as something that comes into existence and ceases. It is therefore necessary to understand that Buddhahood possesses the quality of being uncreated. Yet if one takes it as a whole as being uncreated, one needs to understand that this contradicts its having knowledge, compassionate love, and ability. Buddhahood is endowed with the Dharmakaya itself, which is complete peace. It is peace in the sense of freedom from any deliberate effort in terms of the concept-bound activity of body and speech, the conceptual activity of the mind, and so on. Therefore, it is described as spontaneously present activity. Since it must be realized by means of self-sprung primordial wisdom being self-aware, it is not a realization due to outer conditions such as other people's utterances, and so on. Having realized the Dharmadhatu in its three aspects of quality, which are uncreatedness and so on, a Buddha realizes that it is within all sentient beings alike. Thus he possesses the most excellent primordial wisdom of knowledge. In order also to lead all other beings who are to be trained to this ultimate purity, he clearly demonstrates the path beyond the world in accordance with their respective karmic fortunes. Therefore he possesses the most excellent love and compassion. By means of his primordial wisdom and his great compassion mentioned before, he is able to cause the relinquishment of suffering of beings, eradicating their skandhas, which attract suffering, and their mental poisons, which cause these skandhas up to their very end. Therefore, he possesses the most excellent activity or ability. In this context, it is explained that by the first three qualities, the best possible benefit for oneself is accomplished, while the latter three accomplish the best possible benefit for others. I think this is somewhat self-explanatory, but for a more clear understanding about this, I encourage you to listen to Kempo Sodarge's explanation, as well as Zongsar Kensei's teaching on the Uttara Tantra Shastra on YouTube. The fourth Vajra point, which is translated as the element, is the most extensive series of verses that illustrates how sentient beings are endowed with Buddha nature. The verse is very long, but I will give a few verses to make this point. Here we go. The perfect Buddhakaya is all-embracing. Suchness cannot be differentiated. And all beings have the disposition. Thus they always have Buddha nature. 
The Buddha has said that all beings have Buddha nature, since Buddha wisdom is always present within the assembly of beings. Since this undefiled nature is free from duality, and since the disposition to Buddhahood has been named after its fruit, essence, cause, fruit, function, endowment, manifestation, phases, all-pervasiveness of suchness, unchangingness, and inseparability of the qualities should be understood as intended to describe the meaning of the absolute expanse. Just as a jewel, the sky, and pure water are pure, it is by nature always free from the poisons. From devotion to the Dharma, from highest wisdom, and from samadhi and compassion, its realization arises. Wielding power, not changing into something else, and being a nature that has a moistening quality, these three have properties corresponding to those of a precious gem, the sky and water. Skipping a few verses, it goes on. The Dharmakaya is purity, since its nature is pure, and even the remaining imprints are fully removed. It is true self, since all conceptual elaborations in terms of self and non-self is totally stilled. It is true happiness, since even the aggregates of mental nature and their causes are reversed. It is permanence, since the cycle of existence and the state beyond pain are realized as one. Their analytical wisdom has cut off self-cherishing without exception, yet cherishing beings, those possessed of compassion, do not adhere to peace. Relying on understanding and compassionate love, the means to enlightenment, noble ones will neither abide in samsara nor in a limited nirvana. If the Buddha element were not present, there would be no remorse over suffering. There would be no longing for nirvana, nor striving and devotion towards this aim. That with regard to existence and nirvana, their respective fault and quality are seen. That suffering is seen as the fault of existence and happiness as the quality of nirvana stems from the presence of the disposition to Buddhahood. Why so? In those who are devoid of disposition, such seeing does not occur. Clairvoyance, primordial wisdom, and absence of pollution are totally indivisible and native to the unstained abode. Thus it has properties corresponding to the light, heat, and color of a lamp. Based on the manifestation of suchness, dividing into that of an ordinary being, that of a noble being, and that of a perfect Buddha, he who sees thatness has explained the nature of the victor to beings. It manifests as perverted views in ordinary beings, and the reversal of these in those who see the truth, and it manifests, as it is, in an unperverted way, as freedom from elaboration in a tathagata. The unpurified, the both unpurified and purified, and the utterly purified phases are expressed in their given order by the names being, bodhisattva, and tathagata. The root text then gives an amazing comparison of the Buddha nature to the element of space, and that how Buddhas do not arise and disappear, but demonstrate the appearance of such for the benefit of beings. But I wanted to read the metaphor section, where the Buddha nature is compared to honey and a hive and gold and filth and so on. The root text says, Since it is endowed with inexhaustible qualities, the Dharmakaya is unchangingness itself, and thus it has the attribute of permanence. Equaling the utmost end, it is the refuge itself, and thus holds the attributes of steadfastness. Since absence of thought is its nature, it is the dharmata, free from duality, and thus has the attributes of peace. Hosting uncreated qualities, it is the immutability itself, and thus possesses the attribute of indestructibility. Why is it the dharmakaya, the tathagata, the noble truth, and the absolute nirvana? Its qualities are inseparable, like the sun and its rays. 
Thus, other than Buddhahood, there is no nirvana. Direct, perfect enlightenment with regard to all aspects and abandonment of the stains along with their imprints are called Buddha and nirvana respectively. In truth, these are not two different things. Liberation is distinguished by indivisibility from the qualities present in all their aspects, innumerable, inconceivable, and unpolluted. Such liberation is also called Tathagata. Just like a Buddha in a decaying lotus, honey emits bees, a grain in its husk, gold in filth, a treasure underground, a shoot and so on sprouting from a little fruit, a statue of the victorious one in a tattered rag, a ruler of mankind in a destitute woman's womb, in a precious image under a layer of clay. This Buddha element abides within all sentient beings, obscured by the defilements of the adventitious poisons. Once his divine eye sees the Sugata abiding within the closed ugly lotus, a man cuts the petals, seeing the perfect Buddha nature within beings. Obscured by the shroud of desire, hatred, and other mental poisons, the Muni does likewise, and through his compassion defeats all their veils. Honey is surrounded by a swarm of insects. A skillful man in search of honey employs, upon seeing this, suitable means to fully separate it from the host of bees. Likewise, when the eye of omniscience sees the honey-like element of awareness, the great sage causes its bee-like veils to be fully and radically abandoned. Aiming to get honey that is obscured by millions and millions of honeybees, the man disperses all these bees and procures the honey just as he wishes. The unpolluted knowledge present in all sentient beings is similar to the honey, and the victor, skilled in vanquishing the bee-like poisons, resembles the man. A grain, when it is still in its husk, is not fit to be eaten by man. Those seeking food and sustenance remove this grain from its husk. The nature of the victorious one, who is present within beings, but mixed with the defilements of the poisons, is similar to this. While it is not freed from being mingled with the pollutions of these afflictions, the deeds of the victor will not be displayed in the three realms of existence. Unthreshed, grains of rice, buckwheat, or barley, which have not emerged from their husks, still have the husk and beard, cannot be turned into delicious food that is palatable for man. Likewise, the Lord of Qualities is present within all beings, but his body is not liberated from the shroud of the poisons. Thus his body cannot bestow the joyous taste of dharma upon sentient beings stricken by the famine of their afflictions. While a man was traveling, gold he owned fell into a place filled with rotting refuse. This gold being of indestructible nature remained for many centuries just as it was. Then a god with completely pure divine vision saw it there and addressed a man, Purify this supremely precious gold lying here in this filth, and then convert it into something that is worth being made from such a precious substance. Likewise, the Muni sees the qualities of beings, which are sunken in filth like mental poisons, and pours his reign of sacred dharma upon them to purify the muddiness of their afflictions. Once the god has seen the gold that has fallen into the place full of rotting refuse, insistently he directs the man's attention to this supremely beautiful thing, so he may completely cleanse it. Seeing within all beings the precious perfect Buddha that has fallen into the great filth of mental poisons, the victorious one does likewise and teaches the Dharma to persuade them to purify it. If an inexhaustible treasure were buried in the ground beneath a poor man's house, the man would not know it, and the treasure would not speak to him and tell him, I am here. Likewise, a precious treasure is contained in each being's mind. This is its true state, which is free from defilement. Nothing is to be added and nothing is to be removed. 
Nevertheless, since they do not realize this, sentient beings continuously undergo the manifold sufferings of deprivation. When a precious treasure is contained within the ground beneath a poor man's house, the treasure cannot tell him, I am here, and the man does not know of its presence. Like the poor man, beings are unaware that the Dharma's treasure lies beneath the house of their minds, and the great sage truly takes birth within the world to cause them to attain this treasure. The seed contained in the fruit of mango or similar trees is possessed of the indestructible property of sprouting. Once it gets plowed earth, water, and the other conditions, the substance of a majestic tree will gradually come about. The fruit consisting of the ignorance and other defects of beings contains in the shroud of its peel the virtuous element of the Dharmakaya. Likewise, through relying on virtue, this element also will gradually turn into the substance of the king of Munis. By means of water, sunlight, wind, earth, time, and space, the necessary conditions, the tree grows from within the narrow shroud of the fruit of the banana or mango. Similarly, the fertile seed of the perfect Buddha, contained within the fruit skin of the mental poisons of beings, also grows from virtue as its necessary condition, until the shoots of Dharma is seen and augmented toward perfection. An image of the victorious one, made from precious materials, lies by the road, wrapped in an evil-smelling tattered rag. Upon seeing this, a god will alert the passerby to its presence by the road to cause its retrieval. Likewise, being possessed of unhindered vision, the Buddha sees the substance of the sugata, wrapped in the multitude of the mental poisons, even in animals, and teaches the means to free it. When his eye perceives the statue of the Tathagata, which is of precious nature, but wrapped in a stinking rag and lying by the road. The god points it out to passers-by, so that they retrieve it. Likewise, the victor sees that the element, wrapped in the tattered garments of the poisons, and lying on samsara's road, is present even within animals, and teaches the dharma so that it may be released. A woman of miserable appearance, who is without protection, and abides in a poor house, holds in her womb a glorious king. Not knowing that a lord of man dwells in her own body, Birth in an existence is similar to the poorhouse. Impure beings are like the woman bearing a king in her womb. Since he is present within her, she has protection. The undefiled element is like the king who dwells in her womb. A ruler of the earth dwells in a woman who has an unpleasant appearance and whose body is dressed in dirty clothes. Nevertheless, she has to abide in a poorhouse and undergo the experience of direst suffering. Likewise, beings deem themselves unsheltered, though a protection resides within their own minds. Thus they have to abide in the ground of suffering, their minds being unpeaceful under the predominating drive of the mental poisons. An artistically well-designed image of peaceful appearance, which has been cast in gold and is still inside its mold, externally has the nature of clay. Experts, upon seeing this, will clear away the outer layer and cleanse the gold therein. Likewise, those of supreme enlightenment fully see that there are defilements on the luminous nature, but that these stains are just adventitious, and purify beings who are like jewel mines from all of their veils. Recognizing the nature of an image of peaceful appearance, flawless and made from shimmering gold, while it is still contained in its mold, an expert removes the layers of clay. Likewise, the omniscient know the peaceful mind, which is similar to pure gold, and removes the obscurations by teaching the Dharma, just as the mold is struck and chipped away. The lotus, the bees, the husk, the filth, the earth, the skin of the fruit, the tattered rag, the woman's womb, and the shroud of clay, exemplify the defilements, while the pure nature is like the Buddha, the honey, the kernel, 
the gold, the treasure, the great tree, the precious statue, the universal monarch, and the golden image. It is said that the shroud of the mental poisons, which causes the veils of the element of beings, has no connection with it since beginningless time, while the nature of the mind, which is devoid of stains, that has been present within them since beginningless time. These defilements cause in their given sequence the four impurities of children, the impurity of arhats, the two impurities of followers on the path of training, and the two impurities of those with understanding. When a lotus just born from the mud appears to a beholder, it delights his mind, yet later it changes and becomes undelightful. The joy born from desire is similar to this. Bees, when extremely agitated, will fiercely use their stings. Similarly, hatred, once arisen, brings suffering to the heart. The kernel of rice and so on is obscured by its outer husk. Likewise, the vision of the true meaning is obscured by the eggshell of ignorance. Filth is repugnant, being the cause for those bound up with greed to indulge in the sense pleasures, the active state of the poisons resembles it. When wealth is hidden, one is ignorant of it, and therefore does not obtain the treasure. Likewise, self-sprung wisdom is veiled in arhats by the ground of remaining imprints of ignorance. As by gradual growth from bud to shoot, the skins of the seed are cut, the vision of that nest averts the stains to be abandoned by seeing. Through their junction with the noble path, they have overcome the essential part of the transitory collections. What their wisdom must abandon on the path of meditation is explained as being similar to tattered rags. The stains based on the seven impure levels resemble the defilements of the shrouding womb. Concept-free primordial wisdom is released like the mature prince from the womb's confine. The defilements connected with the three pure levels should be known as being similar to the layer of clay. They must be overcome by the vajra-like samadhi of those who are the embodiment of greatness. Thus desire and the further of the nine developments correspond to the lotus in the following examples. Its nature unifying three aspects. The element has properties that correspond to those of the Buddha and other similes. Its nature is dharmakaya, suchness, and also the disposition. These are to be known by the first three examples, the fourth one and the following five. The Dharmakaya is to be known in two aspects. These are the utterly unstained Dharmadhatu and the cause conducive to its realization, which is the teaching in the deep and manifold way. The Dharmakaya being beyond the worldly, no example for it can be found in the world. Therefore, the element and the Tathagata are explained as being slightly similar, teaching in the deep and subtle way is like the one single taste of honey, while the teaching through various aspects resembles grain in its variety of husks. Since the nature is unchanging, full of virtue, and utterly pure, suchness is said to correspond to the shape and color of gold. Similar to the treasure and the fruit of a tree, the disposition is to be known in two aspects. As it has existed in the nature since beginningless time, it has become supreme through right cultivation. The attainment of the three kayas of a Buddha is seen to stem from the twofold disposition. By the first aspect there is the first kaya, through the second are the latter two. The beautiful Spavavika kaya is like the statue of precious material. Since it exists naturally, it is not created, and is a treasure of gem-like qualities. Wielding the sublime majesty of the great Dharma, the Sambhogakaya resembles the Chakravartan, being of the nature of mere representation, the Nirmanakaya is similar to the golden image. This truth of the self-sprung ones is to be realized through faith. The orb of the sun blazes with light, but is not seen by the blind. Nothing whatsoever is to be removed. 
not the slightest thing is to be added. Truly looking at truth, truth is seen. When seen, this is complete liberation. The element is empty of the adventitious stains, which are featured by their total separateness, but it is not empty of the matchless properties, which are featured by their total inseparability. The sutras of the second turning of the wheel of Dharma state in numerous places that all knowable phenomenon are in all ways empty like a cloud, a dream, or an illusion. Why is it then that in the sutras of the third turning of the wheel, the Buddha, having said this, declared the Buddha nature is present within beings? With regard to faint-heartedness, contempt for inferior beings, perceiving the untrue, disparaging the true nature, and exceeding self-cherishing, he said this to persuade those who have any of these five to abandon their defects. The final truth is in every respect, devoid of anything compounded. The poisons, karma, and their product are said to be like a cloud and so on. The mental poisons are like a cloud. Karma resembles a dream experience. The skandhas produced by the poisons and karma are similar to an illusion or deceptive apparition. From the time being it was thus expounded. Additionally, in the unsurpassable continuity it was then taught, the element is present, so that the five evils would be abandoned. As long as they have not heard this, bodhicitta will not be born in those whose minds are feeble and faint-hearted, stirred by the evil of self-contempt. Having engendered a little bodhicitta, some proudly imagine, I am supreme. Toward those who have not developed it, they are imbued with notions of inferiority, and those who entertain such thoughts, true understanding will not arise. They hold the untrue to be true, and thus will not realize the truth. Being artificially produced and adventitious, these faults of beings are not truly existent. In truth, these evils do not exist as self, but exist as the qualities by nature pure. While they hold these evils, which are untrue to be true, and disparage the true qualities, denying their presence, even those of understanding will not attain the love that perceives the similarity of oneself and others. Once one has heard this, joy will be born. Respect as towards the Buddha, analytical wisdom, primordial wisdom, and great love will arise. Through the rising of these five qualities, one is rid of the faults and sees similarity. By realizing the absence of defects and the presence of qualities, and through love, seeing the equality of oneself and all beings, Buddhahood will be quickly attained. Thank you, Maitreya. So, moving on, one of the things that stands out most about Buddhism is its dumbfoundingly rigorous and thorough use of logic and deductive reasoning to assert its claims. You heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama say earlier that true practice and faith in the Dharma must come from thoroughly understanding and testing the teachings of the Buddha. As the Buddha said, O monks and wise ones, like gold that is heated, cut and rubbed, examine well my words and accept them, but not out of reverence for me. And for thousands of years, Buddhists have done just that. Hence the dharmas surviving and flourishing for so long. Master Nagarjuna's incredible works, such as the fundamental verses on the middle way and his 60 verses on reasoning, as well as the works of Aryadeva, his dharma successor, and many others, laid the groundwork for the vast dissemination of the Buddha Dharma by providing the dialogical and academic challenge to other systems of thought prevalent at the time, such as the Brahminical and Jain traditions. By the 5th century, the conditions were prime for a new master of logic, Master Dignaga, a disciple of Vasubandhu, to come to the fore with his masterpiece, the Pramana Samuchaya, the Compendium of Valid Cognition, which essentially became the foundation for all Buddhist logic and epistemology in the Indian and Tibetan traditions for thousands of years since. 
Buddhist epistemology, meaning the study of the way Buddhists view and define knowledge, used as its centerpiece the idea of valid cognition, or what constitutes a correct, non-deceiving instance of actual cognition and knowledge about its directed object, thus providing the logical foundation for understanding reality, language, our minds, and the Dharma. Dignaga, in his Pramana Samuchaya, gives the definition of valid cognition, and then goes to great lengths to prove that the Buddha is what is called a valid cognizer being, one who has become valid cognition through deductive reasoning and retorts to any opposition to his rationales. To give you a taste of what this kind of language sounds like, and to construe further my understanding of what a Buddha is, I'm going to give you a few excerpts from that. So, to be 100% clear, I am not a Buddhist scholar, I'm merely an enthusiast at best, and I in no way have a profound or probably even correct understanding of Buddhist epistemology, but I am going to draw upon the commentary by Galtzabje to Dharmakirti's commentary, the Pramanavartika, which is a commentary to Dignaga's Pramana Samuchaya, which is arranged by the Venerable Geshema Kilsong Wangmo for our study. The document I am reading is 157 pages long, and it goes into extreme detail about the meaning of the Buddha being a valid cognizer being, but a few pages will have to do for now. And I'll provide the link for the rest of the content on the BuddhaVersePodcast.com website. So Dignaga, being a Buddhist, feeling a sense of responsibility for the welfare of the future of sentient beings, and seeing the vast array of ideas, concepts, and takes on reality, decided to lay out what he felt were the best reasons as to why the Buddha was the omniscient one, thus making his teaching the best method for eradicating suffering that is available to us on earth, and thus gives a proof or an attestation to the superiority of not only his own reasoning, but the reasoning and the path of the world-honored one, the Shakyamuni Buddha, whom he represented. And to do that, Dignaga hits straight to the core of our experience of reality, which is consciousness. Namely, how do we know if something that we see or hear is true? And this is called pramana, or valid cognition. If we are to have a good life, or do anything at all really, let alone attain the perfect state of a Buddha, we should know what it means to even know, or what it means to have correct knowledge, or as the translation says, a valid cognition. Dharmakirti in his Pramanavartika says, Pramana is a non-deceptive consciousness. Gelsabje, in his commentary, The Elucidation of the Path to Enlightenment, says regarding the subject, A direct pramana apprehending blue. It is pramana, i.e. valid cognizer, because it is a consciousness that is newly non-deceptive. Geshe-ma Wangmo, in her commentary, says, the definition of pramana, or valid cognizer, is a consciousness, or knower, that is newly non-deceptive. As mentioned above, a knower that is newly non-deceptive refers to an awareness that newly realizes its main object. Therefore, the subject, a consciousness, that is newly non-deceptive with regard to blue, is a valid cognizer because it is a knower that is newly non-deceptive. It is newly non-deceptive with regard to blue because it newly realizes its main object, blue. A further point to be understood about the definition of pramana is that part of what satisfies the definition is the ability to perform an action based on this knowledge. Thus, Dharmakirti says, If being able to perform a function abides, the awareness is non-deceptive. Geshima expands on this. One of the qualities of a valid cognizer is that it is non-deceptive with regard to the defining function of its main object. 
by being non-deceptive with regard to the defining function of its main object, a valid cognizer enables the person in whose continuum it arises to obtain a desired object. For instance, a valid cognizer realizing a campfire arising in the continuum of a person who feels cold enables that person to seek out the fire and warm himself or herself. Likewise, a valid cognizer realizing water arising in the continuum of a person who is thirsty enables that person to quench their thirst. On the other hand, a wrong consciousness that wrongly perceives, for instance, a mirage of water to be water does not enable the person to obtain water. So this is all well and good, and obviously these types of rationale are important for all human beings, uh, as it is a foolproof framing of the way practical awareness and consciousness functions. But what does this have to do with the Buddha? The opening two verses of Dignaga's Pramana Samuchaya say the following. To the one who has become pramana, the one wishing to benefit migrators, to the teacher, the sugata, the protector, I bow down. According to Dharmakirti, who was the spiritual grandson of Dignaga, this opening verse gives the proof that the Buddha was indeed the omniscient one, and a tremendous amount of meaning is compressed into these short lines. Dignaga in his compendium states that there are two means of valid cognition, direct experience, such as seeing fire, and inferential knowledge, such as inferring fire due to smoke on a mountain. What this means for us is that as practitioners, or someone auditing the teachings of the Buddha, we can infer that the Buddha was omniscient, and thus his path is the most superior by examining and experiencing its teachings, thus generating confidence that this is the correct path that leads to the ultimate result of Buddhahood, or as the text says, the definite good. About these opening lines from Dignaga, Gelsub J says, Therefore, the Buddha, the Bhagavan, who from excellent causes has been generated as Pramana, endowed with the entity of the excellent results of the twofold benefits, is known as the genuine Pramana. Gishima's commentary to this says, With the words, who from excellent causes has been generated as Pramana, Gelsub J comments on the words, To the one who has become Pramana from Dignaga's homage, these words indicate that the Buddha was at some point an ordinary sentient being, who in dependence on excellent causes gradually attained full enlightenment. This distinguishes the Buddha from a creator god, since a creator god is asserted to have always been divine, without at some point having newly attained such a godly state through listening, contemplating, and meditating. Also, the Buddha is omniscient, but not omnipotent, he is unable to bestow happiness or inflict suffering on sentient beings. Instead, he teaches them the methods to attain liberation and omniscience in accordance with their predisposition, aspirations, interests, and so forth. The Buddha, having become a valid cognizer and being known as genuine valid cognizer, does not literally mean that the Buddha is a valid cognizer, for a valid cognizer is necessarily a consciousness, whereas the Buddha is a person and thus not a consciousness. However, the Buddha is called a valid cognizer being because through his own power, without depending on another teacher, he unerringly and effortlessly teaches those seeking release whatever they need to know to reach their goal. A valid cognizer is defined as a knower that is newly non-deceptive. This means that a valid cognizer is an awareness that newly realizes its main object, 
In other words, it realizes its main object without depending on a previous moment of consciousness that realized the same object. Examples of valid cognizers are the first moment of an eye consciousness realizing a table and the first moment of an inferential cognizer realizing selflessness. Valid cognizers are explained in detail below. Galtzabjay says further, There is a purpose for calling the second chapter Establishment of Pramana. The purpose is to attend to migrators who are mistaken in regard to the mode of existence because they apply an incorrect definition of valid cognizer, etc., provided by faulty logicians. This paragraph explains the meaning of the two lines that constitute the promise to compose the text. Out of love for migrators, deceived by faulty logicians, I will properly explain the chapter on the establishment of valid cognition. That was a quote from Dignaga or Dharmakuti, I'm not sure. The purpose for calling the second chapter, the chapter on the establishment of pramana, or valid cognition, is to attend to or address those who are mistaken with regard to the mode of existence of phenomenon because they do not understand the definition of valid cognizer. They do not understand the definition because they rely on faulty logicians who are unable to define a valid cognizer correctly. End quote. So basically, the text sets out to prove through faultless logic that the Buddha is the one who perceived and experienced correctly and non-deceptively all ultimate and relative dharmas, and thus his teachings are the greatest system of thought available to avail oneself of suffering, ignorance, and cognitive and afflictive obscurations to omniscience yourself. By putting those teachings to work on your own continuum of consciousness, making yourself a valid cognizer being as well. So to get to the actual explanation of how this reasoning works, we will examine the words A. The one who has become a valid cognizer, a valid cognizer being. B. One wishing to benefit migrators, great compassion, etc. C. The teacher, the wisdom realizing selflessness, etc. D. The sugata, meaning sugata eliminations and sugata realizations. And E. The protector, the rupakaya that protects sentient beings by teaching them what is to be adopted and what is to be discarded with regard to the Four Noble Truths. The text, the Pramanavartika, uses what is called the forward system and the reverse system to explain how, through a certain sequence, the last four factors of the Buddha, B through E, meaning one who wishes to benefit migrators, teacher, sugata, and so on, are used as a proof for A, that the Buddha is the one who has become a valid cognizer. The forward and reverse system are proofs to defend against accusers who say that there is no cause for an omniscient consciousness and no proof that an omniscient consciousness exists, respectively. So I'm going to read from the text, and it may be a bit repetitive, but it is with very good reason as to why this is so. So in Gelsum J's commentary, it says, There are two ways of explaining the last four factors as proofs of the first factor, one is by means of the forward system, which refers to the explanation that is in accordance with the sequence of those five presented in Dignaga's verse, while the other is by means of the reverse system, which is the opposite. So Gishima comments, The four latter factors are proofs which establish that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being, because they are the correct reasons that prove or establish that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being. Furthermore, there are two ways in which these four serve as proofs or correct reasons, one is by means of the forward system, and the other by means of the reverse system. The forward system here refers to the sequence of five factors as presented in Dignaga's two lines of homage. 
The sequence of the five according to the forward system is A, the one who has become a valid cognizer, B, the one wishing to benefit migrators, C, the teacher, D, the sugata, and E, the protector. As to the way in which the four factors establish that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being, first, the second factor, great compassion is established. Thereafter, great compassion serves as the proof or correct reason that establishes the third factor, the teacher. The teacher serves as the correct reason that establishes the fourth factor, the sugata, and the sugata serves as the correct reason that establishes the fifth factor, the teacher, and the teacher serves as the correct reason that establishes the main object to be established, the thesis, the first factor, the valid cognizer being. Hence, there are five syllogisms of the forward system. Galtzab J's elucidation says, The forward system is set forth in order to refute the first wrong view, while the reverse system is set forth in order to refute the second wrong view. Geshe-ma's commentary says, Establishing that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being by means of the forward system refutes the first wrong view that there are no causes which give rise to an omniscient consciousness. Establishing that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being by means of the reverse system refutes the wrong view that there is no proof or correct reason that establishes an omniscient consciousness. Galsub J says, Since the excellent intention, great compassion, is the first proof, it is indicated explicitly. Great compassion is also representative of bodhicitta. Furthermore, excellent application, the awareness that develops familiarity with the wisdom realizing selflessness for the sake of others is the main activity, since that activity is representative of the training in generosity, morality, and so forth, they are indicated here too. Geshima says, Great compassion is the first proof of the Buddha being a valid cognizer being, i.e., great compassion is cited as the first correct reason, independence on which one establishes that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being, because it is the most important awareness practitioners of the Mahayana have to generate initially. Therefore, the words, the one wishing to benefit migrators, explicitly indicates great compassion. However, these words also indicate bodhicitta, great love, the special attitude, and so forth, since great compassion is representative of bodhicitta, etc. Furthermore, the words the teacher explicitly indicates the wisdom realizing selflessness, for it is the main awareness with which bodhisattvas familiarize themselves for the benefit of sentient beings. Yet the words also imply the wisdom realizing impermanence, the practice of perfections of generosity, morality, patience, and so forth, since the wisdom realizing selflessness is representative of these other awarenesses. Galsub J says, The section on the first way of explaining the five factors in accordance with the forward system elucidates the manner in which the teacher arrived at his goal, through what paths. The section of the second chapter of the Pramanavartika from Dharmakirti that sets forth the five factors according to the forward system, describes the different practices in which the bodhisattvas engage to reach the state of a Buddha, the motivation they generate, the various methods and wisdom practices, and so forth. Therefore, in dependence on the syllogisms of the forward system, one comes to understand the causes that gives rise to an omniscient consciousness. The way one comes to such an understanding is as follows. In dependence on the first syllogism cited above, one initially realizes great compassion, the loving attitude that wishes for all sentient beings to be free from suffering. Based on such a realization, one is able to infer that those who possess great compassion engage tirelessly on the different Mahayana practices for the benefit of all sentient beings. 
Also, having reflected on the suffering of sentient beings, one understands that the suffering is the result of afflictions and contaminated karma, which in turn are rooted in the ignorance grasping at the self. One realizes that in order to eliminate others' suffering, bodhisattvas first need to eradicate the suffering at its root in their own continuum, which can only be accomplished by cultivating the wisdom realizing selflessness. Hence, it is independence on great compassion that one realizes the teacher, the wisdom realizing selflessness. Then one comes to understand that the wisdom that initially realizes selflessness conceptually is eventually able to realize selflessness directly. With this direct realization, bodhisattvas are gradually able to irrevocably eliminate the different layers of obstructions to liberation and omniscience. Thus, in dependence on the wisdom that realizes selflessness, one is able to realize sugata eliminations. Thereafter, one comes to understand that the one who has attained the cessation of all shortcomings for the benefit of sentient beings is able to protect sentient beings by teaching them the methods for attaining the same state. This means that in dependence on sugata eliminations, one realizes the protector. Eventually, in dependence on the protector, one realizes that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being, free from any type of fault with regard to perfectly teaching what is to be adopted and what is to be discarded. Therefore, by proceeding through these steps of realization, one comes to understand that the Buddha is not a permanently naturally arisen being, like a creator god, but that he becomes a valid cognizer being by prior to attaining enlightenment, progressively cultivating and familiarizing himself with the causes for enlightenment, such as great compassion, the wisdom realizing selflessness, and so on. In this way, one refutes the above-mentioned assertion that the omniscient mind of the Buddha does not have any causes. As for the reverse system, Gautam J says, The section on the second way of presenting the five factors according to the reverse system first delineates the four noble truths, then having established through correct signs that the Buddha has excellent realizations, and from that the certain causes must precede Buddhahood, this section indicates the correct reason that establishes how the Buddha has arrived at his goal in dependence on these paths. Gishima comments here. The section of the second chapter of the Pramanavartika that explains the five factors according to the reverse system first expounds on the four noble truths. Then by means of citing two correct signs or syllogisms, it establishes that the Buddha possesses excellent realizations. As mentioned before, the first syllogism establishes that the Buddha is the protector who unerringly teaches the Four Noble Truths. The second syllogism proves, in dependence on the protector, that the Buddha possesses the three qualities of Sugata realizations. The third and fourth syllogisms establish that the Buddha is preceded by particular causes. The third syllogism proves, in dependence on Sugata realizations, that the Buddha is preceded by the teacher, the wisdom realizing selflessness. The fourth syllogism establishes, in dependence on the teacher, that the Buddha is preceded by great compassion. Therefore, in dependence on these syllogisms, one comes to understand that, contrary to the assertion of some non-Buddhists, that there are correct reasons that prove the existence of the omniscient consciousness. The way one comes to such an understanding is as follows. By relying on the second section, which explains the five factors according to the reverse system, one initially realizes that what the Buddha chiefly teaches, the truth of suffering, the truth of origination, the truth of cessation, and the truth of the path. Having thoroughly understood these, one examines the person who first introduced the four truths, the Buddha himself, and comes to realize the protector. 
one understands that the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths through his own power, because without depending on other masters, he incontrovertibly realized the nature of these truths, hence in dependence on the protector, one realizes his Sugata realizations. When examining his Sugata realizations, one comes to understand that these realizations have not existed naturally since beginningless time, but that they were cultivated by meditating on the wisdom realizing selflessness. Thus, in dependence on Sugata realizations, one realizes that the Buddha was preceded by the teacher, that he was preceded by the wisdom realizing selflessness. Then one comes to understand that familiarizing himself with the wisdom while accumulating merit for three countless eons was only possible because prior to becoming a Buddha as a Bodhisattva, he was motivated by the affectionate awareness that is unable to bear sentient beings' suffering. Therefore, in dependence on the teacher, one realizes that the Buddha was preceded by the cultivation of great compassion. Eventually, in dependence on great compassion, one realizes that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being. In brief, under this heading, Gelsub J provides the summary of the second chapter of Dharmakirti's Pramanavartika by explaining how it reveals the meaning of Dignaga's homage through setting forth the five factors. The five factors are set forth by way of four factors, the one wishing to benefit migrators, the teacher, the sugata, and the protector, serving as proofs or correct reasons that establish the fifth factor, that the Buddha is the one who has become a valid cognizer, i.e. that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being. The text by Dharmakirti states further, In order to accomplish the goal to which they resolutely aspire, those seeking release establish that the teacher, the Bhagavan, is a valid cognizer by means of establishing that his teachings are faultless. Geshe Ma comments, In order to be able to attain their goals, those seeking release, i.e. liberation or Buddhahood, need to realize that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being. Realizing that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being is necessary in order to rely effectively on the Buddha, engage in continuous practice of his teachings, and eventually attain liberation or Buddhahood. The understanding that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being is attained when one realizes that he is without fault. Yet realizing that the Buddha is without fault must be preceded by realizing that his teachings are faultless. In general, the Buddha's teaching can be categorized into scriptural teachings and experiential teachings. Scriptural teachings refer to the words of the Buddha, they convey his teachings, while experiential teachings refer to the meaning these words express. Therefore, the way one arrives at the realization that the Buddha is a valid cognizer being is as follows. First, one realizes that the experiential teachings of the Buddha are faultless. Independence on that, one realizes that the scriptural teachings of the Buddha are faultless. And in dependence on that, one realizes that the Buddha himself is without fault, which is equivalent to realizing that he is a valid cognizer being. And about the Buddha being a valid cognizer being, Dharmakirti says in his Pramanavartika, Possessing that Pramana, the Bhagavan is the very Pramana. J comments, Regarding the subject, the Muni, the Bhagavan, he, is the very Pramana, with regard to the mode of existence, and the varieties of phenomenon, because he possesses consciousnesses that are newly non-deceptive with regard to all those, and because he is newly non-deceptive. Gishima comments. Under the heading, the meaning or definition of valid cognizer that was explained above is applied to the Buddha. As mentioned before, the Buddha is not an actual valid cognizer, because the Buddha is not a consciousness. However, the Buddha can be called valid cognizer because he is a valid cognizer being, 
He is a valid cognizer being because, through his own power, without depending on another teacher, he unerringly and effortlessly teaches those seeking release whatever they need to know to reach their goal. Therefore, Gelsub J says, regarding the subject, Buddha Shakyamuni, he is the very valid cognizer, i.e., he can be called valid cognizer, or he is a valid cognizer being with regard to the mode of existence of the varieties of all phenomenon, because his awareness are knowers that are newly non-deceptive, with regard to the mode of existence and the varieties of phenomenon, and because the Buddha himself is newly non-deceptive. Please note that the mode of existence of phenomenon refers to ultimate truths, and the varieties of phenomenon refer to conventional truths. So the Buddha can be called valid cognizer, or he is a valid cognizer being, because all of his awarenesses simultaneously and newly realize all phenomenon, conventional and ultimate truths, and because the Buddha himself is newly non-deceptive with regard to those phenomenon. Saying that the Buddha is non-deceptive does not just indicate that the Buddha realizes all phenomenon of past, present, and future. It also emphasizes the fact that the Buddha is able to guide and instruct sentient beings in the most beneficial and effective way, provided that they have the karma to receive such guidance and instructions. So what I gave is just the commentary of the first two lines of Dignaga's text. So obviously there is a tremendous amount of detail that I neglected to mention and explore. There are many more explanations of pramana and issues and defenses of the meaning of pramana and different aspects on the import of such a definition and application of its definition to the Buddha that are raised by Dignaga and Dharmakirti's writings and the writings of many, many other great logicians that are available for you to chew on. And I highly, highly recommend that you do investigate this further and not take my word or Dignaga's word or even the Buddha's word for it, but put it to the test yourself. Faith without reason is just a stab in the dark. And this is your life we're talking about. I don't really know what's more important than your life. If you don't know what to think or what to do, and you just do something because you were told to or because someone you trust told you to do it, what's to say that they aren't wrong? What authority do they have? What proof is there that the person you are basing your entire outlook on reality and thus your very future and every impending consequence that is implicated by that worldview is correct? You should investigate this. And to this point, Dharmakirti humorously says, Therefore, one should examine whether an omniscient one has pristine wisdom, which is the object of accomplishment of those striving for release. That he knows the number of insects is not a requirement for us. On this, Geshima comments. Before accepting someone as a spiritual teacher, Buddhist practitioners should mainly check whether that teacher has mastered the levels of engaging in and reversing samsara. Engaging in and reversing samsara are attributes of the Four Noble Truths. Engaging in samsara is an attribute of the truth of suffering and the truth of origin, while reversing samsara is an attribute of the truth of cessation and the truth of the path. This is because the first two truths engage or keep sentient beings in samsara. The cause, the truth of origin, gives rise to the result, the truth of suffering. Similarly, the last two truths reverse samsara by the way of the truth of the path, as the cause giving rise to the effect, the truth of cessation. Therefore, practitioners should examine whether a teacher has realized the Four Noble Truths, and how the four account for samsara and nirvana, a realization which practitioners striving for release aspire to attain. 
Although possessing any of the different types of clairvoyance is extremely valuable, for it enables a spiritual teacher to benefit others more effectively. In the beginning, practitioners should not investigate whether a teacher has those clairvoyant abilities. Whether he knows, for instance, the exact number of insects on the planet or the number of stars in the universe. The reason is that knowing how many insects there are on this planet, etc., is of little use for us while we seek liberation or the fully enlightened state of a Buddha. Please note, in this outline, although the author is explicitly explaining how to rely on a spiritual teacher in general, such a teacher should ideally be a valid cognizer being. Wabam! A contemporary of Dignaga rose to prominence in the 5th century, a South Indian prince of the Palaya kingdom, known for the rest of history as Bodhidharma. This prince, after realizing the Great Way, brought the teachings of Dhyana, called Chan in China and Zen in Japan, to Tang Dynasty China, as well as the art of medicine and martial arts, becoming established as the one who brought the true teachings in a time when the meaning and realization of Buddhahood had escaped the populace of China. Buddhism had been firmly established in China for several hundred years by the time Bodhidharma arrived, but monasteries and practitioners were still preoccupied with intellectual and worldly pursuits pertaining to Dharma, and were, as illustrated by the common Zen expression, looking at the finger pointing and not at the moon. What developed in China and later spread to Korea, Japan, and Vietnam was called the Chan School of Buddhism and for hundreds of years it was established as the most profound and essential expression of the true teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, best suited for those of the highest intellectual, experiential, and karmic capacity. When Bodhidharma came to China, what he brought was the actual realization of the highest aim of Buddhism, the true meaning of Buddhahood, the true meaning of practice, the marrow of the way to enlightenment but was only able to transmit this expression of reality to one disciple, the second patriarch, Hui Ke. Something about just hearing the name of Bodhidharma awakened in me an overwhelming feeling of insatiable absorption with the Dharma, and the fact that the Buddha was not the only one who became enlightened. The biographies of Bodhidharma and his succession of Dharma heirs is worth a lifetime of investigation, but for the sake of this podcast, I will give you a few excerpts from his public Dharma talk entitled The Bloodstream Sermon, translated by Red Pine. Bodhidharma Everything that appears in the three realms comes from the mind. Hence, Buddhas of the past and future teach mind to mind without bothering about definitions. But if they don't define it, what do they mean by mind? You ask, that's your mind. I answer, that's my mind. If I had no mind, how could I answer? If you had no mind, how could you ask? That which asks is your mind. Through endless kalpas, without beginning, whatever you do, wherever you are, that's your real mind. That's your real Buddha. This mind is the Buddha, says the same thing. Beyond this mind, you'll never find another Buddha. To search for enlightenment or nirvana beyond this mind is impossible. The reality of your own self-nature, the absence of cause and effect, is what is meant by mind. Your mind is nirvana. You think you can find a Buddha or enlightenment somewhere beyond the mind, but such a place does not exist. Trying to find a Buddha or enlightenment is trying to grab space. Space has a name but no form. It's not something you can pick up or put down. And you certainly can't grab it. Beyond this mind, you'll never see a Buddha. The Buddha is a product of your mind. Why look for a Buddha beyond this mind? Buddhas of the past and future only talk about this mind. The mind is the Buddha, and the Buddha is the mind. Beyond the mind, there is no Buddha. 
and beyond the Buddha there is no mind. If you think there is a Buddha beyond the mind, where is he? There is no Buddha beyond the mind, so why envision one? You can't know your real mind as long as you deceive yourself. As long as you're enthralled by a lifeless form, you're not free. If you don't believe me, deceiving yourself won't help. It's not the Buddha's fault. People, though, are deluded. They're unaware that their own mind is the Buddha. Otherwise, they wouldn't look for a Buddha outside the mind. Buddhas don't save Buddhas. If you use your mind to look for a Buddha, you won't see the Buddha. As long as you look for a Buddha somewhere else, you'll never see that your own mind is the Buddha. Don't use a Buddha to worship a Buddha. And don't use the mind to invoke a Buddha. Buddhas don't recite sutras. Buddhas don't keep precepts. And Buddhas don't break precepts. Buddhas don't keep or break anything. Buddhas don't do good or evil. To find a Buddha, you have to see your nature. Whoever sees his nature is a Buddha. If you don't see your nature, invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings, and keeping precepts are all useless. Invoking Buddhas results in good karma. Reciting sutras results in a good memory. Keeping precepts results in a good rebirth. And making offerings results in future blessings, but no Buddha. If you don't understand by yourself, you'll have to find a teacher to get to the bottom of life and death. But unless he sees his nature, such a person isn't a teacher. Even if he can recite the twelvefold canon, he can't escape the wheel of birth and death. He suffers in the three realms without hope or release. Long ago, the monk Goodstar was able to recite the entire canon, but he didn't escape the wheel because he didn't see his nature. If this was the case with Goodstar, then people nowadays who recite a few sutras and shastras and think that's the Dharma are fools. Unless you see your mind, reciting so much prose is useless. To find a Buddha, all you have to do is see your nature. Your nature is the Buddha, and the Buddha is the person who's free, free of plans, free of cares. If you don't see your nature and run around all day looking somewhere else, you'll never find a Buddha. The truth is, there's nothing to find. But to reach such an understanding, you need a teacher and you need to struggle to make yourself understand. Life and death are important. Don't suffer them in vain. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. Even if you have mountains of jewels and as many servants as there are grains of the sand along the Ganges, you'll see them when your eyes are open. But what about when your eyes are shut? You should realize then that everything you see is like a dream or an illusion. If you don't find a teacher soon, you'll live this life in vain. It's true, you have the Buddha nature, but without the help of a teacher, you'll never know it. Only one person in a million becomes enlightened without a teacher's help. If, though, by the conjunction of conditions, someone understands what the Buddha meant, that person doesn't need a teacher. Such a person has a natural awareness superior to anything taught. But unless you're so blessed, study hard, and by means of instructions, you'll understand. People who don't understand and think they can do without study are no different from those deluded souls who can't tell white from black. Falsely proclaiming the Buddha Dharma, such persons in fact blaspheme the Buddha and subvert the Dharma. They preach as if they were bringing rain, but theirs is the preaching of devils, not Buddhas. Their teaching is the king of devils, and their disciples are the devil's minions. Deluded people who follow such instructions unwittingly sink deeper in the sea of birth and death. Unless they see their nature, how can people call themselves Buddhas? They're liars who deceive others into entering the realm of devils. Unless they see their nature, their preaching of the twelvefold canon is nothing but the preaching of devils. Their allegiance is to Mara, not to Buddha. Unable to distinguish white from black, how can they escape birth and death? Whoever sees his nature is a Buddha. Whoever doesn't is a mortal. 
But if you can find your Buddha nature apart from your mortal nature, where is it? Our mortal nature is our Buddha nature. Beyond this nature, there is no Buddha. The Buddha is our nature. There is no Buddha besides this nature, and there is no nature besides the Buddha. But suppose I don't see my nature. Can I still attain enlightenment by invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings, observing precepts, practicing devotions, and doing good works? No, you can't. Why not? If you attain anything at all, it's conditional. It's karmic. It results in retribution. It turns the wheel. As long as you're subject to birth and death, you'll never attain enlightenment. To attain enlightenment, you have to see your nature. Unless you see your nature, all this talk about cause and effect is nonsense. Buddhas don't practice nonsense. A Buddha is free of karma, free of cause and effect. To say he attains anything at all is to slander a Buddha. What could he possibly attain? Even focusing on a mind, a power, an understanding, or a view is impossible for a Buddha. A Buddha isn't one-sided. The nature of his mind is basically empty, neither pure nor impure. He's free of practice and realization. He's free of cause and effect. A Buddha doesn't observe precepts. A Buddha doesn't do good or evil. A Buddha isn't energetic or lazy. A Buddha is someone who does nothing. Someone who can't even focus his mind on a Buddha. A Buddha isn't a Buddha. Don't even think about Buddhas. If you don't see what I'm talking about, you'll never know your own mind. People who don't see their nature and imagine they can practice thoughtlessness all the time are liars and fools. They fall into endless space. They are like drunks. You can't tell good from evil. If you intend to cultivate such a practice, you'll have to see your nature before you can put an end to rational thought. To attain enlightenment without seeing your nature is impossible. Still others commit all sorts of evil deeds, claiming karma doesn't exist. They erroneously maintain that since everything is empty, committing evil isn't wrong. Such persons fall into the hell of endless darkness with no hope of release. Those who are wise hold to no such conceptions. But if our every movement or state, wherever it occurs, is the mind, why don't we see this mind when a person's body dies? The mind is always present, you just don't see it. But if the mind is present, why don't I see it? Do you ever dream? Of course. When you dream, is that you? Yes, it's me. And is what you're doing and saying different from you? No, it isn't. But if it isn't, then this body is your real body, and this real body is your mind. And this mind, through endless kalpas without beginning, has never varied. It has never lived nor died, appeared or disappeared, increased or decreased. It's not pure or impure, good or evil, past or future. It's not true or false. It's not male or female. It doesn't appear as a monk or a layman, an elder or a novice, a sage or a fool, a Buddha or a mortal. It strives for no realization and suffers no karma. It has no strength or form. It's like space. You can't possess it and you can't lose it. Its movements can't be blocked by mountains, rivers, or rock walls. Its unstoppable powers penetrate the mountains of the five skandhas and cross the rivers of samsara. No karma can restrain this real body. But this mind is subtle and hard to see. It's not the same as the sensual mind. Everyone wants to see this mind, and those who move their hands and feet by its light are as many as grains in the sand along the Ganges. But when you ask them, they can't explain it. They're like puppets. It's theirs to use. Why don't they see it? The Buddha said people are deluded. This is why they fall into the river of endless rebirth. And when they try to get out, they only sink deeper. And all because they don't see their nature. 
If people weren't deluded, why would they ask about something right in front of them? Not one of them understands the movement of his own hands and feet. The Buddha wasn't mistaken. Deluded people don't know who they are. Something so hard to fathom is known by a Buddha and no one else. Only the wise know this mind, this mind called Dharma nature, this mind called liberation. Neither life nor death can restrain this mind. Nothing can. It's also called the unstoppable Tathagata, the incomprehensible, the sacred self, the immortal, the great sage. Its names vary, but not its essence. The Buddhas vary too, but none leaves his own mind. The mind's capacity is limitless, and its manifestations are inexhaustible, seeing forms with your eyes, hearing sounds with your ears, smelling odors with your nose, tasting flavors with your tongue. Every movement or state is all your mind. At every moment, where language can't go, that's your mind. The sutras say, a Tathagata's forms are endless, and so is his awareness. The endless variety of forms is due to the mind. Its ability to distinguish things, whatever their movement or state, is the mind's awareness. But the mind has no form, and its awareness no limit. Hence it is said, a Tathagata's forms are endless, and so is his awareness. A material body of four elements is trouble. A material body is subject to birth and death. But the real body consists without existing, because a Tathagata's real body never changes. The sutras say, people should realize that the Buddha nature is something they've always had. Kashapa only realized his own nature. Our nature is the mind. The mind is our nature. This nature is the same as the mind of all Buddhas. Buddhas of the past and future only transmit this mind. Beyond this mind, there's no Buddha anywhere, but deluded people don't realize that their own mind is the Buddha. They keep searching outside. They never stop invoking Buddhas or worshipping Buddhas and wondering where is the Buddha. Don't indulge in such illusions. Just know your mind. Beyond your mind, there's no other Buddha. The sutras say, everything that has form is an illusion. They also say, wherever you are, there's a Buddha. Your mind is the Buddha. Don't use a Buddha to worship a Buddha. Even if a Buddha or Bodhisattva should suddenly appear before you, there's no need for reverence. This mind of ours is empty and contains no such forms. Those who hold onto appearances are devils. They fall from the path. Why worship illusions born of the mind? Those who worship don't know, and those who know don't worship. By worshiping, you come under the spell of devils. I point this out because I'm afraid you're unaware of it. The basic nature of a Buddha has no such form. Keep this in mind. Even if something unusual should appear, don't embrace it and don't fear it, and don't doubt that your mind is basically pure. Where could there be room for any such form? Also, at the appearance of spirits, demons, or divine beings, conceive neither respect nor fear. Your mind is basically empty. All appearances are illusions. Don't hold on to appearances. If you envision a Buddha, a Dharma, or a Bodhisattva, and conceive respect for them, you relegate yourself to the realm of mortals. If you seek direct understanding, don't hold on to any appearances whatsoever, and you'll succeed. I have no other advice. The sutras say, All appearances are illusions. They have no fixed existence, nor constant form. They're impermanent. Don't cling to appearances, and you'll be of one mind with the Buddha. The sutras say, That which is free of all form is the Buddha. But why shouldn't we worship Buddhas and Bodhisattvas? Devils and demons possess the power of manifestation. They can create the appearance of Bodhisattvas in all sorts of guises but they're false. None of them are Buddhas. 
The Buddha is your own mind. Don't misdirect your worship. Buddha is Sanskrit for what you call aware, miraculously aware. Responding, perceiving, arching your brows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet. It's all your miraculously aware nature. But this nature is the mind, and the mind is the Buddha. And the Buddha is the path, and the path is jhana. But the word jhana is one that remains a puzzle to both mortals and sages. Seeing your nature is jhana. But unless you see your nature, it is not dhyana. Even if you can explain thousands of sutras and shastras, unless you see your own nature, yours is the teaching of a mortal, not a Buddha. The true way is sublime. It cannot be expressed in language. Of what use are the scriptures? But someone who sees his own nature finds the way, even if he can't read a word. Someone who sees his nature is a Buddha. And since a Buddha's body is intrinsically pure and unsullied, and everything he says is an expression of his mind, being basically empty, a Buddha can't be found in words or anywhere in the twelvefold canon. The way is basically perfect. It doesn't require perfecting. The way has no form or sound. It's subtle and hard to perceive. It's like when you drink water. You know how hot or cold it is, but you can't tell others. Of that which only a Tathagata knows, men and gods remain unaware. The awareness of mortals falls short. As long as they're attached to appearances, they're unaware that their minds are empty, and by mistakenly clinging to the appearances of things, they lose the way. If you know that everything comes from the mind, don't become attached. Once attached, you're unaware. But once you see your own nature, the entire canon becomes so much prose. Its thousands of sutras and shastras only amount to a clear mind. Understanding comes in mid-sentence. What good are doctrines? The ultimate truth is beyond words. Doctrines are words. They're not the way. The way is wordless. Words are illusions. They're no different from things that appear in your dreams at night, be they palaces or carriages, forest parks or lakeside pavilions. Don't conceive any delight for such things. They're all cradles for rebirth. Keep this in mind when you're approaching death. Don't cling to appearances, and you'll break through all barriers. A moment's hesitation, and you'll fall under the spell of devils. Your real body is pure and impervious, but because of delusions you're unaware of it, and because of this you suffer karma in vain. Wherever you find delight, you'll find bondage, but once you awaken to your original mind and body, you're no longer bound by attachments. Anyone who gives up the transcendent for the mundane, in any of its myriad forms, is immortal. A Buddha is someone who finds freedom in good fortune and bad. Such is his power that karma can't hold him. No matter what kind of karma, a Buddha transforms it. Heaven and hell are nothing to him. But the awareness of a mortal is dim compared to that of a Buddha, who penetrates everything inside and out. If you're not sure, don't act. Once you act, you wander through birth and death and regret having no refuge. Poverty and hardship are created by false thinking. To understand this mind, you have to act without acting. Only then will you see things from a Tathagata's perspective. But when you first embarked on the path, your awareness won't be focused. You're likely to see all sorts of strange, dreamlike scenes, but you shouldn't doubt that all such scenes come from your own mind and nowhere else. If, as in a dream, you see a light brighter than the sun, your remaining attachments will suddenly come to an end and the nature of reality will be revealed. Such an occurrence serves as the basis for enlightenment, but this is something only you know, you can't explain it to others. Or, if, while you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying in a quiet grove, you see a light, regardless of whether it's bright or dim, don't tell others and don't focus on it, 
it's the light of your own nature. Or if, while you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying in the stillness and darkness of night, everything appears as though in daylight, don't be startled. It's your own mind about to reveal itself. Or if, while you're dreaming at night, you see the moon and stars in all their clarity, it means the workings of your mind are about to end. But don't tell others. If your dreams aren't clear, as if you're walking in the dark, it's because your mind is masked by cares. This too is something only you know. If you see your nature, you don't need to read sutras or invoke Buddhas. Erudition and knowledge are not only useless, but also cloud your awareness. Doctrines are only for pointing to the mind. Once you see the mind, why pay attention to doctrines? To go from mortal to Buddha, you have to put an end to karma, nurture your awareness, and accept what life brings. If you're always getting angry, you'll turn your nature against the way. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. Buddhas move freely through birth and death, appearing and disappearing at will. They can't be restrained by karma or overcome by devils. Once mortals see their nature, all attachments end. Awareness isn't hidden, but you can only find it right now. It's only now. If you really want to find the way, don't hold on to anything. Once you put an end to karma and nurture your awareness, any attachments that remain will come to an end. Understanding comes naturally. You don't have to make any effort. But fanatics don't understand what the Buddha meant. And the harder they try, the further they get from the sage's meaning. All day long, they invoke Buddhas and read sutras, but they remain blind to their own divine nature, and they don't escape the wheel. A Buddha is an idle person. He doesn't run around after fortune and fame. What good are such things in the end? People who don't see their nature and think reading sutras, invoking Buddhas, studying long and hard, practicing morning and night, never lying down, or acquiring knowledge as the Dharma, blaspheme the Dharma. Buddhas of the past and future only talk about seeing your nature. All practices are impermanent. Unless they see their nature, people who claim to have attained unexcelled complete enlightenment are liars. Among Shakyamuni's ten great disciples, Ananda was foremost in learning, but he didn't know the Buddha. All he did was study and memorize. Arhats don't know the Buddha. All they know are so many practices for realization, and they become trapped by cause and effect. Such is a mortal's karma. No escape from birth and death. By doing the opposite of what he intended, such people blaspheme the Buddha. Killing them would not be wrong. The sutra says, such enchantikas are incapable of belief. Killing them would be blameless, whereas people who believe reach the state of Buddhahood. Unless you see your nature, you shouldn't go around criticizing the goodness of others. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. Good and bad are distinct. Cause and effect are clear. Heaven and hell are right before your eyes. But fools don't believe and fall straight into a hell of endless darkness without even knowing it. What keeps them from believing is the heaviness of their karma. They're like blind people who don't believe there's such things as light. Even if you explain it to them, they still don't believe, because they're blind. How can they possibly distinguish light? The same holds true for fools who end up amongst the lower orders of existence, or amongst the poor and despised. They can't live and they can't die, and despite their sufferings, if you ask them, they say they're happy as the gods. All mortals, even those who think themselves well-born, are likewise unaware. Because of the heaviness of their karma, such fools can't believe and can't get free. People who see that their mind is the Buddha don't need to shave their heads. Laymen are Buddhas too. Unless they see their nature, people who shave their heads are simply fanatics. But since married laymen don't give up sex, how can they become Buddhas? 
I only talk about seeing your nature. I don't talk about sex simply because you don't see your nature. Once you see your nature, sex is basically immaterial. It ends along with your delight in it. Even if some habits remain, they can't harm you because your nature is essentially pure. Despite dwelling in a material body of four elements, your nature is basically pure. It can't be corrupted. Your real body is basically pure. It can't be corrupted. Your real body has no sensation, no hunger or thirst, no warmth or cold, no sickness, no love or attachment, no pleasure or pain, no good or bad, no shortness or length, no weakness or strength. Actually, there is nothing here. It's only because you cling to this material body that things like hunger and thirst, warmth and cold and sickness appear. Once you stop clinging and let things be, you'll be free, even of birth and death. You'll transcend everything. You'll possess spiritual powers that can't be obstructed. You'll be at peace wherever you are. If you doubt this, you'll never see through anything. You're better off doing nothing. Once you act, you can't avoid the cycle of birth and death. But once you see your nature, you're a Buddha, even if you work as a butcher. But butchers create karma by slaughtering animals. How can they be Buddhas? I only talk about seeing your nature. I don't talk about creating karma. Regardless of what we do, our karma has no hold on us. Through endless kalpas without beginning, it's only because people don't see their nature that they'll end up in hell. As long as a person creates karma, he keeps passing through birth and death. But once a person realizes his original nature, he stops creating karma. If he doesn't see his nature, invoking Buddhas won't release him from his karma, regardless of whether or not he's a butcher. But once he sees his nature, all doubts vanish. Even a butcher's karma has no effect on such a person. In India, the 27 patriarchs only transmitted the imprint of the mind, and the only reason I've come to China is to transmit the instantaneous teachings of the Mahayana. This mind is the Buddha. I don't talk about precepts, devotion, or ascetic practices, such as immersing yourself in water and fire, treading a wheel of knives, eating one meal a day, and never lying down. These are fanatical, provisional teachings. Once you recognize your moving, miraculously aware nature, yours is the mind of all Buddhas. Buddhas of the past and future only talk about transmitting the mind. They teach nothing else. If someone understands this teaching, even if he's illiterate, he's a Buddha. If you don't see your own miraculously aware nature, you'll never find a Buddha, even if you break your body into atoms. The Buddha is your real body, your original mind. This mind has no form or characteristic, no cause or effect, no tendons or bones. It's like space. You can't hold it. It's not the mind of materialists or nihilists, except for a Tathagata. No one else, no mortal, no deluded beings can fathom it. But this mind isn't somewhere outside the material body of the four elements. Without this mind, we can't move. The body has no awareness, like a plant or stone. The body has no nature. So how does it move? It is the mind that moves. Language and behavior, perception and conception are all functions of the moving mind. All motion is the mind's motion. Motion is its function. Apart from motion, there's no mind, and apart from the mind, there's no motion. But motion isn't the mind, and the mind isn't motion. Motion is basically mindless, and the mind is basically motionless. But motion doesn't exist without the mind, and the mind doesn't exist without motion. There's no mind for motion to exist apart from, and there's no motion for the mind to exist apart from. Motion is the mind's function, and its function is motion. Even so, the mind neither moves nor functions. 
because the essence of its functioning is emptiness, and emptiness is essentially motionless. Motion is the same as the mind, and the mind is essentially motionless. Hence the sutras tell us to move without moving, to travel without traveling, to see without seeing, to laugh without laughing, to hear without hearing, to know without knowing, to be happy without being happy, to walk without walking, to stand without standing. And the sutras say, go beyond language, go beyond thought. Basically, seeing, hearing, and knowing are completely empty. Your anger, joy, or pain is like that of a puppet. You can search, but you won't find a thing. According to the sutras, evil deeds result in hardships and good deeds result in blessings. Angry people go to hell and happy people go to heaven. But once you know that nature of anger and joy is empty and you let go of them, you'll free yourself from karma. If you don't see your nature, quoting sutras is no help. I could go on, but this brief sermon will have to do. As Bodhidharma's lineage progressed through time, from one master to the next, it eventually fell to a man from the south of China known as Hui Nung, the sixth patriarch. Eighth century China was a tumultuous period, and the Chan school had yet to receive its due notoriety. So when Master Hui Nung, who was an illiterate layperson at the time of his awakening and recognition by the fifth patriarch, Master Hong Gren, he had to lay low so that he wasn't killed for the rope and bowl that he inherited. He later took ordination as a monastic and swiftly became recognized throughout China as the heir to Bodhidharma's lineage, the possessor of the true Dharma Eye. And thousands of disciples gathered around him, and thus all lineages of the Chan school stem from Hui Nung, and his life story and teachings are recorded in a text called the Platform Sutra. Hui Nung's teachings are sharp, bold, and penetrating, as his goal was to swiftly awaken those beings whose potentials were ripe enough for the fruit to drop with a gust of wind. The Chan teachings are not about philosophy, but about a direct experience of the Buddha nature. They are not about judging the behavior of others, but about shaping your own mind and realizing the meaning of the sutras and shastras for yourself in your own mind stream. If you want to know what a Buddha is, let the sixth patriarch explain it for you in plain English with a translation by the Buddhist Text Translation Society. From the second chapter, titled Prajna. Good knowing advisors, deluded people, recite with their mouths, but while they recite, they live in falsehood and error. When there is practice in every thought, that is the true nature. You should understand this dharma, which is the prajna dharma, and cultivate this conduct, which is the prajna conduct. Not to cultivate it is to be a common person, but in a single thought of cultivation, you are equal to the Buddhas. Good-knowing advisors, common people are Buddhas, and affliction is Bodhi. Past thoughts deluded are the thoughts of a common person. Future thoughts enlightened are the thoughts of a Buddha. Past thoughts attached to states of being are afflictions, and future thoughts separate from states of being are Bodhi. Master Hua's commentary on this says, Where does the Buddha come from? He starts out as a common person. Yes, the Buddha was a common person who cultivated and eventually achieved Buddhahood. Why are we common people? Simply because we do not cultivate the Prajna Dharma. Our nature flows out and becomes emotion. Our emotions flow out and become desire. Common people are that way. But the returning of desire to one's own nature, so that one is unmoved by ignorance, that is the Buddha. Affliction is Bodhi, in quotes. Without affliction, there is no Bodhi. So you say, then I will not get rid of my afflictions, I will keep them. If you keep them, they are still afflictions, and afflictions are just afflictions. You should use a scientific method to temper your afflictions. How? 
Actually, this change is no change. It is merely a returning to your original nature. My hand, for example, has a palm and a back to it. The back of the hand represents affliction, and the palm represents Bodhi. All you need to do is flip it over, and everything is all right. There is no addition or subtraction required. Just turn it over. If you do not turn it over, you are off by just that margin, and affliction is affliction, and Bodhi is Bodhi. But as soon as you turn it around, affliction is Bodhi, and birth and death is Nirvana. I have often spoken of this. At Berkeley, I said, Affliction is Bodhi, ice is water. Birth and death and nirvana are empty dharmas. If you understand, the dharmas are also empty. If you do not understand, then there are still dharmas. You should understand that people and dharmas are both empty. Past thoughts deluded are the thoughts of a common person. Future thoughts enlightened are the thoughts of a Buddha. Master Hua comments, With stupid thoughts you are a common person. With wisdom and enlightenment you are a Buddha. The Sixth Patriarch continues, Good-knowing advisors, unenlightened, the Buddha is a living being. At the time of a single enlightened thought, the living being is a Buddha. Therefore, you should know that the ten thousand dharmas exist totally within your own mind. Why don't you, from within your own mind, suddenly see the true suchness of your own original nature? The Bodhisattva Shila Sutra says, Our fundamental self-nature is clear and pure. If we recognize our own mind and see the nature, we shall all perfect the Buddha way. The Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra says, Just then, suddenly regain your original mind. Master Hua's Commentary If, in the shortest space of time, the space of a thought, you suddenly understand, you wake up and become a Buddha. Confused, you are a living being. Enlightened, you are a Buddha. One confused thought, you are a living being. Thought after thought confused, thought after thought a living being. One enlightened thought, you are a Buddha. Thought after thought enlightened, thought after thought a Buddha. What does it mean to be enlightened, you ask yourself? Ultimately, what advantage do emotion and desire have? Emotion and desire harm your body. That's a serious problem. They rob you of your life. They make you stupid. If in thought after thought you have desire, then thought after thought you are deluded. It is said, Karma ended, emotion emptied, is the true Buddha. Karma heavy, emotion turbid, is the living being. Enlightenment is here. Put down defiled thoughts and pick up the pure. What are defiled thoughts? Thoughts of desire are defiled thoughts. I will make it even clearer. Thoughts of sexual desire are defiled thoughts. You should clearly recognize your thoughts of sexual desire. Should you give way to sexual desire with your body, then the actions of your body, your body karma is impure. If you talk about sex, the action of your mouth is impure. If you constantly think about sex, your mind karma is impure. However, if you are without offense in body, mouth, and mind, you are not far from Buddhahood. So, I want to add my own commentary here, because I've thought about this a lot, and Master Hua is definitely not wrong. But to most people, especially if you're new to Dharma, you might think this is too puritanical and a very extreme judgment to say that sexual desire is delusional. But imagine this. To be enlightened is to see all other beings as you yourself. Now ask yourself, when you look at yourself naked in a mirror, do you get aroused? I'll tell you right now that there's not a single person on earth that gets sexually aroused looking at themselves. So if you are to look at another person and objectify them sexually, this is evidence of a lack of insight and delusion, for lack of a better word, or a lack of right view of seeing others as yourself. I am not free of this kind of desire myself, but I'm working on it, 
and I can recognize it for what it is now at least. Even the great tantrikas still have to cut off lust to achieve full awakening. So Master Hall continues, Most people turn their backs on enlightenment and unite themselves with the dust of external objects and states. Falling into states of emotion and desire, they become defiled. Leaving emotion and desire behind, you turn your back on the dust. You are united with enlightenment. You are clear and pure and can realize Buddhahood. However, as long as you have the slightest trace of defilement, you cannot realize Buddhahood. You remain a living being. One confused thought makes you a living being for the space of that thought. If every thought is confused, you are continually a living being. One enlightened thought makes you a Buddha for the space of that thought. If every thought is enlightened, you are always a Buddha. So the sixth patriarch continues. Good knowing advisors, the form body is an inn. It cannot be returned to. The three bodies of the Buddha exist within the self-nature of worldly people, but because they are confused, they do not see the nature within them, and so seek the three bodies of the Tathagata outside themselves. They do not see that the three bodies of the Buddha are within their own bodies. Listen to what I say, for it can cause you to see the three bodies of your own self-nature within your own body. The three bodies of the Buddha arise from your own self-nature and are not obtained from outside. What is the clear, pure Dharma body Buddha? The worldly person's nature is basically clear and pure, and the 10,000 dharmas are produced from it. The thought of evil produces evil actions, and the thought of good produces good actions. Thus all dharmas exist within the self-nature. This is like the sky, which is always clear, and the sun and moon, which are always bright. So if they are obscured by floating clouds, it is bright above the clouds and dark below them. But if the wind suddenly blows and scatters the clouds, there is brightness above and below, and the myriad forms appear. The worldly person's nature constantly drifts like those clouds in the sky. Good-knowing advisors, intelligence is like the sun, and wisdom is like the moon. Intelligence and wisdom are constantly bright. But if you are attached to external states, the floating clouds of false thought covers the self-nature so that it cannot shine. If you meet a good-knowing advisor, if you listen to the true and right dharma and cast out your own confusion and falseness, then inside and out there will be penetrating brightness, and within the self-nature all the ten thousand dharmas will appear. That is how it is with those who see their own nature. It is called the clear, pure dharma body of the Buddha. What is the perfect, full reward body of the Buddha, a.k.a. the Sambhogakaya? Just as one lamp can disperse the darkness of a thousand years, one thought of wisdom can destroy ten thousand years of delusion. Do not think of the past. It is gone and can never be recovered. Instead, think always of the future, and in every thought, perfect and clear, see your own original nature. Although good and evil differ, the original nature is non-dual. That non-dual nature is the ultimate nature. Undefiled by either good or evil, it is the perfect, full reward body of the Buddha. One evil thought arising from the self-nature destroys 10,000 eons worth of good karma. One good thought arising from the self-nature ends evil as numerous as the sand grains in the Ganges River. To reach the unsurpassed Bodhi directly, see it for yourself in every thought and do not lose the original thought. That is the reward body of the Buddha. What are the hundred thousand myriad transformation bodies of the Buddha? If you are free of any thought of the ten thousand dharmas, then your nature is basically like emptiness. But in one thought of calculation, transformation occurs. Evil thoughts are transformed into hell beings, and good thoughts into heavenly beings. Viciousness is transformed into dragons and snakes, and compassion into bodhisattvas. 
wisdom is transformed into the upper realms and delusion into the lower realms. The transformations of the self-nature are extremely many, and yet the confused person, unawakened to that truth, continually gives rise to evil and walks evil paths. Turn a single thought back to goodness and your wisdom is produced. That is the transformation body of the Buddha within your self-nature. Bhikshu Cherdong, a native of Anfeng in Shaochou, had read the Lankavatara Sutra over a thousand times, but still did not understand the three bodies and the four wisdoms. He made obeisance to the master, seeking an explanation of the meaning. The master said, The three bodies are clear, pure Dharma body, which is your nature, the perfect full reward body, which is your wisdom, and the hundred thousand myriad transformation bodies, which are your conduct. To speak of the three bodies as separate from your original nature is to have the bodies, but not wisdom. To remember that the three bodies have no self-nature is to understand the four wisdoms of Bodhi. Listen to my verse. Three bodies complete in your own self-nature, when understood become four wisdoms, while not apart from seeing and hearing, transcend them and ascend to the Buddha realm. I will now explain it for you. If you are attentive and faithful, you will never be deluded. Don't run outside in search of them. By saying Bodhi to the end of your days, Cherdong asked further, May I hear about the meaning of the four wisdoms? The master said, Since you understand the three bodies, you should also understand the four wisdoms. Why do you ask again? To speak of the four wisdoms as separate from the three bodies is to have the wisdoms but not the bodies, in which case the wisdoms become non-wisdoms. He then spoke this verse, The wisdom of the great perfect mirror is your clear, pure nature. The wisdom of equal nature is the mind without disease. Wonderfully observing wisdom is seeing without effort. Perfect wisdom is the same as the perfect mirror. Five, eight, six, seven. Effect and cause both turn. Merely useful names, they are without real nature. If, in the place of turning, emotion is not kept, you always and forever dwell in the Naga concentration. Commentary Bhikshu Cherdong studied the Lankavatara Sutra because Bodhidharma recommended it above all other texts in the Chan school. Although he had read it over a thousand times, he still had to ask the Master about the three bodies and the four wisdoms. The Master always teaches Dharma of and from the self-nature. The clear, pure Dharma body is your own original nature, he said, and the reward body is your wisdom. The transformation bodies are your conduct, because you are what you do. You are transformed according to what you practice. If you try to explain the three bodies as something apart from your self-nature, you have the bodies but not the wisdom. But when you understand that the three bodies are devoid of self-nature, you possess the four wisdoms of Bodhi. When you understand the three bodies as imminent in the self-nature, you realize the four wisdoms. Without being separated from the condition of sight and hearing, you ascend directly to the Buddha realm. Now I have spoken this verse. The sixth patriarch said, And you must truly believe it. Then you will never again be confused like those people who go around saying, Bodhi, 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 all day long but who never practice or understand Bodhi. Do not chatter, head-mouth Zen. You must truly understand the three bodies for it to count. The Master continued, Since you understand the three bodies, you should understand the four wisdoms as well. If you try to explain the four wisdoms as something apart from the three bodies, then although you know the name four wisdoms, you do not possess their actual substance or know their function. Your wisdoms are non-wisdoms. The Buddha has four wisdoms, the wisdom of the great perfect mirror is the eighth consciousness, the alaya vijnana, when it has been transformed from consciousness into wisdom. 
The eighth consciousness is also called the store consciousness because it stores up all the good and bad seeds you have planted in the past, all the good and bad things you have done in this and past lives. If you have planted good causes, you reap good effects. If you have planted bad causes, you reap bad effects. As the potential of all good and bad karma is stored in the eighth consciousness, it also comes to be called the field of the eighth consciousness because whatever you plant in it eventually sprouts. When you are unable to use it, it is merely consciousness. When you return to the root and go back to the source, the Eighth Consciousness is transmuted into the great perfect mirror wisdom, which in essence is pure and undefiled. The wisdom of equal nature is the Seventh Consciousness, when it has been transformed from consciousness into wisdom. Before you understand, it is the Seventh Consciousness, but once you are enlightened, it is the wisdom of equal nature. The Seventh Consciousness is also called the Transmitting Consciousness, because it acts as a transmitter between the sixth and eighth consciousness. It is called the wisdom of equal nature, because the mind of all Buddhas and living beings are equal when the latter's consciousness has been transformed into wisdom. The mind without disease means that there is no obstruction, no jealousy, no greed, hate, or stupidity. Without these defilements, the seventh consciousness is transmuted into the wisdom of equal nature. The wonderful observing wisdom is the sixth consciousness, when it has been transformed into wisdom, it is the wisdom of subtle observation. The sixth consciousness, what we think of as the ordinary mind, is the consciousness of discrimination. It discriminates good and evil, right and wrong, male and female. Such discrimination is not actually the work of intelligence, as it seems to be, but is merely a kind of consciousness. When you turn it into wisdom, it becomes wonderfully observing wisdom, which sees all realms without having to go through the process of discrimination. This wonderful observation is quite different from mere discriminative thoughts. When certified arhats wish to use the wonderful observing wisdom to know something, they must first sit quietly in meditation and intentionally observe, for unless they intentionally observe, their minds are no different from those of ordinary people. By intentionally observing, they can know the events of the past 80,000 eons. Perfecting wisdom comes from the transformation of the first five consciousnesses, ear, eye, nose, tongue, and body into wisdom. Five, eight, six, seven, effect and cause both turn. The five consciousnesses and the eighth consciousness are transformed into the period of reaping effects, and the sixth and seventh are transformed into the period of planting causes. In the transforming the consciousnesses into the four wisdoms, first turn the sixth and seventh in the period of planting causes, and next the eighth and five into the period of reaping effects. Merely useful names, they are without real nature. Although they are said to be changed in the realms of causes and effects, there is nothing in reality which corresponds to them. They are merely names and nothing more. If in the place of turning, emotion isn't kept. If in the place where your emotional feelings are being turned, you do not use your common mind and become caught up in the turning, you always and forever dwell in Naga concentration. At all times you are in Naga Samadhi. Naga means dragon. Dragons can magically appear in big or small bodies, because the three bodies are not to be found outside of my own body, he said, and the four wisdoms too are produced from my own bright understanding mind. When the bodies and wisdoms interpenetrate, then I may dispense the Dharma in accord with the needs of living beings, in accord with external conditions and yet not changing, unchanging and yet in accord with conditions. If you wonder, how can I cultivate the three bodies and four wisdoms? That is nothing but false thinking, false movement. The same is true of holding to them and being attached to them. From beginning to end, there is no stain of names. 
What is unstained by names is the original self-nature, which is untouched by worldly emotion. Unless you have no defilement, you cannot return to the root and go back to the source, which is undefiled. So the following is Master Hui Nung's final teaching to his disciples. So I guess you could say this is his last will and testament. So listen up. I will now teach you how to recognize the living beings within your mind and how to see the Buddha nature there. If you wish to see the Buddha, simply recognize living beings, for it is living beings who are confused about the Buddha and not the Buddha who is confused about living beings. When enlightened to the self-nature, the living being is a Buddha. When the self-nature is biased, the Buddha is a living being. If your thoughts are devious and malicious, the Buddha dwells within the living beings. But by means of one impartial thought, the living being becomes a Buddha. Our minds have their own Buddha, and that Buddha is the true Buddha. If the mind does not have its own Buddha, where can the true Buddha be sought? Your own minds are the Buddha. Have no further doubts. Nothing can be established outside the mind, for the original nature produces the ten thousand dharmas. Therefore, the sutra says, The mind produced, all dharmas are produced. The mind extinguished, all dharmas are extinguished. And here Master Hua comments, Buddha is mind, mind is Buddha. Right thoughts are the Buddha. Deviant thoughts are the demon. Pure thoughts are the Buddha. Defiled thoughts are the demon. Take a look at your thoughts. If you can keep your mind clean, that is the real Buddha. With a clear, pure, genuine Buddha mind, where can you go to find the Buddha? You'll never find him. The Buddha is made in your mind. Do not seek him outside. Nothing is separate from the self-nature. Nothing is separate from your own mind. The ten thousand dharmas are all produced from your own mind, not from outside. The Buddha spoke all dharmas for the minds of living beings. If there were no minds, what use would the dharma be? So for Master Huinang's final verse. Now to say goodbye, I will leave you with a verse called the Self-Nature's True Buddha Verse. People of the future who understand its meaning will see their original mind and realize the Buddha way. The verse runs, the true suchness, self-nature, is the true Buddha. Deviant views, the three poisons, are the Dharma king. At times of deviant confusion, the demon king is in the house. But when you have proper views, the Buddha is in the hall. Deviant views, the three poisons, produced within the nature, are just the demon king, come to dwell in the house. Proper views, casting out the three poisons of the mind, transform the demon into Buddha, true, not false. Fundamentally, the three bodies are one body. Seeing that for yourself within your own nature is the Bodhi cause for realizing Buddhahood. The pure nature is originally produced from the transformation body. The pure nature is ever-present within the transformation body. One's nature leads the transformation body down the right road, and in the future the full perfection is truly without end. The root cause of purity is the lust nature. For once rid of lust, the substance of the nature is pure. Each of you, within your natures, abandon the five desires. In an instant, see your nature, it is true. If in this life you encounter the door of the sudden teaching, you will suddenly enlighten to your self-nature and see the honored of the world. If you wish to cultivate and aspire to Buddhahood, you won't know where the truth is to be sought unless you can see the truth within your own mind. This truth which is the cause of realizing Buddhahood. Not to see your self-nature, but to seek the Buddha outside, if you think that way, you are deluded indeed. I now leave behind the Dharma door of the sudden teaching to liberate worldly people who must cultivate themselves. I announce to you, and to future students of the way, if you do not hold these views, 
you will only waste your time. Having spoken the verse, the master continued, All of you should take care. After my extinction, do not act with worldly emotion. If you weep in sorrow, receive condolences, or wear mourning clothes, you are not my disciples. For that is contrary to the proper dharma. Simply recognize your own original mind, and see your own nature, which is neither moving nor still, neither produced nor extinguished, neither coming nor going, neither right nor wrong, neither dwelling nor departing. Because I'm afraid that your confused minds will misunderstand my intention, I will instruct you again so that you may see your nature. After my extinction, continue to cultivate accordingly, as if I were still present. Should you disregard my teachings, then even if I were to remain in the world, you would obtain no benefit. He further spoke this verse. Firm, firm, do not cultivate the good. High, high, do not do evil. Still, still, cut off sight and sound. Vast, vast, the mind unattached. So to end this part, uh, I'll give Master Hua's commentary on Master Hui Nung's final verse. Firm, firm means not moving. Thus, thus, unmoving. Clear, clear, and constantly bright. Do not cultivate the good does not mean that you should not cultivate good. It just means that you should not be attached when you cultivate the good. Do not be like that greedy-minded ghost emperor Wu of Liang, who thought, look at all my merit. High, high means happy and cheerful, independent and content from morning to night. Do not do evil does not mean that you can think, I'm not attached to doing evil, so it's no problem. Attached or not attached, you should not do evil. What is evil? Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Of the ten thousand evils, licentiousness is the worst. Do not walk down this road of death. Do not walk this road. Do not do evil. Still, still, cut off sight and sound. This state is peaceful, comfortable, and happy. Still, still, quiet, quiet. You cut off sight and sound by not producing deviant thoughts at the gates of the six sense organs. It is all right to have proper thoughts, but cut off deviant ones. Cut off deviant sights and sounds. For example, if people are speaking improperly, don't listen. Vast, vast, the mind unattached. This mind's capacity extends throughout the universe and fills up heaven and earth. It is high, great, broad, vast, limitless, and unbounded. It is not attached anywhere. In the 8th century Japan, 71 years after the passing of the 6th patriarch, Buddhism was only several centuries into its evolution, and although various schools from Korea and China were established there, there was vast room for improvement and innovation, as China itself had yet to see its zenith in the spread of the Dharma. In the Sanuki province on the island of Shikoku, an aristocratic child of the Otomo clan was born and destined for legendary status, becoming known as the heroic and towering figure Kobodaishi Kukai, who established the Shingonshu, or True Words Order of Vajrayana Buddhism in Japan. Renowned for his learning and dedication to his practice early on, at age 30, Kukai left for China to study the esoteric teaching of Buddha that were enigmatic and not well understood at the time. Meeting his root guru, Master Hui Guo, a disciple of Amoga Vajra, and within a few months received the complete initiation and mastery of the esoteric teachings available from Hui Guo, especially concerning the Mahavarochana Sutra, and Kukai returned to Japan with an understanding and approach to the Dharma unheard of in his home country. Sometime after his return, with support from Emperor Saga and then Emperor Juna, Kukai's Shingonshu became a widely respected essential aspect of Buddhism in Japan. 
One story recounted through the ages is his encounter with the various heads of the other schools of Buddhism concerning his new and supreme interpretation of the Dharma. From the Koyasan website, it says, On New Year's of Konin, 1813, Emperor Saga, beginning with Daishi, invited the high priests of every Buddhist sect to the imperial court and heard discussions about the Buddha. Nara Buddhism at the time said, One who does not spend a long time practicing cannot become a Buddha, but Daishi explained, a person has the ability in this existence to become a Buddha. Because the high priest of Nara did not believe in his attainment of Buddhahood during his life, Daishi folded his hands, chanted a mantra, and became the great son Buddha Varochana. In doing so, at once his body radiated an enlightened, multicolored shine. A Dhyani Buddha crown appeared over his head, and he became the great son Buddha sitting on a golden lotus petal. Even the priests who criticized him until now worshipped Daishi, and the emperor's faith was deepened. What Kukai brought from China was not just new sutras and a new philosophy, but like Nagarjuna and Bodhidharma, brought the experience of Bodhi manifested in himself. He realized the inconceivable liberation of a Buddha, and for the rest of his life wrote extensively about his experience, understanding, and methods for practice for others to reproduce it in their own experience. In his work, Buddhahood in This Very Body, Kobodaishi Kukai gives a further explanation of Buddhahood and its relationship to the elements, and thus reality as a whole, according to the Mahavarochana Sutra. The text begins with a question and answer. Question. Various sutras and treatises all explain that it takes three eons to become a Buddha. What evidence is there for now positing the principle of becoming a Buddha in this very body? Answer. The Tathagata has explained it in the secret treasury of esoteric Buddhist scriptures. Question. How was it explained in those sutras? Answer. In the Adamantine Pinnacle Sutra, it stated, He who practices this samadhi will actually realize the Buddha's bodhi. This samadhi is the samadhi of the honored one, Varochana, as it also says, If a sentient being should encounter this teaching and practice it diligently during the four watches of the day and night, i.e. early morning, midday, evening, and midnight, he will realize the stage of joy in his present lifetime and accomplish perfect enlightenment in his subsequent sixteen lives. It also says, If one is able to practice according to this supreme principle, one will succeed in accomplishing unsurpassed enlightenment in one's present lifetime. In the Mahavarochana Sutra, it says, Without abandoning this body, one obtains supernatural powers over the objective world, roams about the station of great space and accomplishes the mystery of the body. It also says, If you wish to enter city in this life, follow an appropriate practice and contemplate on it. If you personally receive initiation from a vidya rite from a venerable teacher, observe it and intercorrespond with the deity, you will be successful. The text then goes on to examine proof of these statements according to a verse in the Mahavarochana Sutra. And the verse goes, The six elements are unobstructed and eternally in a state of yoga, essence. The four kinds of mandalas are not separate from one another, aspect. When empowered by the three mysteries, Buddhahood is quickly manifested, function. The manifold interconnectedness of Indra's net is called this very body, non-obstruction. Naturally endowed with sarvajana or omniscience, mental functions in mind king are more numerous than the dust motes of countless lands, each possessed of the five wisdoms of infinite wisdom, and because of the power to function as a perfect mirror, there is the real wisdom of enlightenment, becoming a Buddha. 
These two stanzas in eight lines extol the four words becoming a Buddha in this very body. That is to say, these four words contain infinite meaning, and none of the Buddha's teachings go beyond this single phrase. Therefore, these two stanzas were composed in brief so as to reveal its infinite virtues. So for the first part, number one, the six elements are unobstructed and eternally in a state of yoga. Remarks. The six elements are the five elements plus consciousness. In the Mahavarochana Sutra, it says, I, Varochana, awoke to original non-birth, transcended the path of speech, obtained liberation from all faults, disassociated myself from causes and condition, and no emptiness, which is like empty space. This represents the meaning of the six elements. His, Varochana's, seed mantra is, A, Vi, Ra, Hum, Kam, Hum. That the letter A signifies the original non-birth of all dharmas corresponds to the earth elements. That the letter Va stands for disassociation from speech signifies the water elements. That which is pure and without defilement corresponds to the letter Ra and the fire elements. The inapprehensibility of causes and karma, i.e. conditions, represents the gateway to the letter Ha and the wind elements. And like empty space, Ka is the superficial meaning of the letter Ka, and it corresponds to the space element. I awoke represents the consciousness element. In the causal stage of practice, it is called consciousness, and in the resultant stage of awakening, it is called wisdom. For wisdom is equivalent to awakening. The Sanskrit word for Buddha and Bodhi are derived from the same word, Bud, to awaken. And Buddha denotes awakened one, while Bodhi means wisdom. Therefore, the term Samyak Sambodhi, perfect awakening, mentioned in various sutras, was formerly rendered in Chinese as universal knowledge and later translated as equal awakening, since the meaning of awakening and knowledge are interconnected. The reason that this sutra refers to consciousness as awakening in the phrase I awoke is that it takes the dominant sense of the resultant stage. It is only the distinction between cause and result, a difference between fundamental and derivative, the verse from this sutra makes the statement with the reference to the samadhi of the five Buddhas. Again, in the Mahavarochana Sutra, it says, I am identical with the station of the mind, sovereign everywhere, and universally pervade various sentient and non-sentient beings. The letter A stands for primary life. The letter Va refers to water. The letter Ra refers to fire. The letter Ha refers to wind. And the letter Ka is the same as empty space. In the first half line of this scriptural passage, I am identical with the station of the mind. Mind refers to consciousness wisdom. The last five half lines refer to the five elements. The middle three half lines express the function of sovereignty and attributes of non-obstruction of the six elements. These six elements create all Buddhas, all sentient beings and the physical world, that is, the fourfold Dharma body and the threefold world. Therefore, Honored One, Varochana, expounded the following verses on generation of the Tathagata. The six elements produce in forms according to their kind, dharmas and dharma marks. Buddhas, Shravakas, world-saving Prachika Buddhas, hosts of valiant bodhisattvas, and likewise the honored among men. Sentient beings in the physical world are established in succession. And dharmas that are born, abide, and so on are perpetually produced in this manner. Question. What meaning do these verses express? Answer. They show that the six elements produce the fourfold dharma body, the four kinds of mandalas, and the threefold world. Dharma is mental dharmas, and dharma marks is material dharmas. 
Then again, dharmas gives the general term and dharma marks indicates their distinction. Therefore, in the following lines it says that Buddhas, Shravakas, Prachika Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, sentient beings in the physical world are established in succession. Then again, dharmas is the dharma mandala, and dharma marks is the samaya bodies or the symbolic figures represented in the samaya mandala. And the Buddhas, Shravakas, Prachika Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and sentient beings is the bodies, i.e. figures, represented in the great mandala. The physical world represents the ground by which they are supported, and this physical world is a generic term for the Samaya Mandala. Then again, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and the two vehicles represent the world of the wise and enlightened, sentient beings is the world of sentient beings, and physical world is namely the physical world. Then again, the subject of produce is the six elements, and in forms according to their kind is the dharmas that are produced, and these are namely the fourfold dharma body and the threefold world. In the Mahavarochana Sutra, it says, The Honored One Varochana said, Vajrapani, there are born of the minds of Tathagatas, the play of activity and dance of practice, which display a wide variety of forms, encompass the four realms, abide in the mind king, are like empty space, accomplish the vast fruits visible and invisible, and give birth to the stages of all Shravakas, Pracheka Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas. Question. What meaning does this passage express? Answer. It shows that the six elements produce everything. Question. How can this be known? Answer. Mind king is the consciousness element. Encompass the four realms is the four elements. In equivalent to empty space is the space element. These six elements are the producer. Visible and invisible are the realms of desire and form, and the realm of non-form. The rest is as stated in the text, and it corresponds to the dharmas that are produced. Scriptural passages such as these all regard the six elements as the producer and regard the four dharma bodies in the three worlds as produced. These dharmas that are produced range from the dharma body above to the six paths below, and although there are divisions between gross and fine and differences between large and small, they still do not go beyond the six elements. Therefore, the Buddha taught that the six elements constitute the essential nature of the dharma realm. In the exoteric teachings, the four elements are regarded as non-sentient, but the esoteric teachings explains that they are the samaya bodies of the Tathagata. The four elements are not separate from the mind element. Although mind and matter are different, their nature is the same. Matter is mind and mind is matter, and they are mutually unhindered and unobstructed. The knower, wisdom, is the known, object, and the known is the knower. The knower is the truth principle that is known, and the truth principle is the knower. They are mutually unobstructed and absolutely free. Although there are both producer and produced, they completely transcend distinctions between active and passive. In the truth principle, as it naturally is, what kind of creative action can there be? Terms such as active and passive are all secret designations, and clinging to their conventional and superficial meanings, one should not engage in various frivolous arguments. Bodies composed of these six elements the essential nature of the Dharma realm, are unhindered and unobstructed. They interpenetrate and intercorrespond. They are everlasting and immutable, and they abide in the same way in ultimate reality. Therefore, it says in the stanza, the six elements are unobstructed and eternally in a state of yoga. Unobstructed means interpenetrating freely. Eternally means immovable, indestructible, and so on. Yoga is translated as intercorrespondence, 
in intercorrespondent interpenetration is namely the meaning of very in the phrase becoming a Buddha in this very body. Two, the four kinds of mandalas are not separate from one another. The great mandala, it refers to each Buddha's and Bodhisattva's physical body, endowed with the major characteristics and minor marks. Painting their images is also called a great mandala. Again, accomplishing deity yoga by means of the five phrases is also called great wisdom seal, and this too corresponds to the great mandala. 2. Samaya mandala. It is namely the insignia held by the deities, such as the sword, wheel treasure, vajra, lotus, and the like. If one draws their images, this is also a samaya mandala. Again, joining one's two hands together with the fingers interlocked in adamantine bind and generating the formation of seals or mudras is also called Samaya Wisdom Seal, and this too corresponds to the Samaya Mandala. 3. The Dharma Mandala. It is the seed syllable and mantra of one's deity. If one writes the seed syllables of various deities, each in its proper position, this is also a Dharma Mandala. Again, the samadhis of the Dharma body and the words and meanings of all the scriptures are also called the Dharma wisdom seals, and these two correspond to the Dharma mandala. 4. Karma mandala. It is, namely, the various deportments and activities of the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and so on. Images either cast in metal or molded in clay, too, are also called the karma wisdom seals, and these two correspond to the karma mandala. These four kinds of mandalas, or four kinds of wisdom seals, are immeasurable in their number, and the measure of each is equal to empty space. That is not separate from this, and this is not separate from that. Just as space and light are unobstructed by each other, and do not resist each other, therefore it says, the four kinds of mandala are not separate from one another. Not separate is, namely, the meaning of very in the phrase, becoming a Buddha in this very body. 3. When empowered by the three mysteries, Buddhahood is quickly manifested. As for, when empowered by the three mysteries, Buddhahood is quickly manifested. The three mysteries are, one, the mystery of the body, two, the mystery of the speech, and three, the mystery of the mind. The three mysteries of the Dharma Buddha are so profound and subtle that even bodhisattvas of equal enlightenment and the ten stages are unable to see or hear them, and therefore they are called mysteries. Sutras such as these all explain the methods of this samadhi of swift effect and inconceivable supernatural power. If someone should exert himself day and night without neglecting the ritual rules, he will obtain the five supernatural faculties within his present body, and if he gradually trains himself, he will advance and to enter the stage of the Buddha without abandoning this body. It is as explained in detail in the sutras. On the basis of this meaning, it says, when empowered by the three mysteries, Buddhahood is quickly manifested. Empower, literally add and hold, expresses the great compassion of the Tathagata and the faithful minds of sentient beings. The reflection of the Buddha sun appearing on the mind water of sentient beings is called adding, and the mind water of the practitioner sensing the Buddha sun is called holding. If the practitioner contemplates well on this guiding principle, through the intercorrespondence of his three mysteries with those of the Tathagata, he will quickly manifest and realize in his present body the originally existent three bodies. Therefore, it is said, Buddhahood is quickly manifested. 4. The manifold interconnectedness of Indra's net is called this very body. Indra's net is Indra's jeweled net. Body means my body, the Buddha's body, and the bodies of sentient beings. These are called body. There are also four kinds of bodies, namely, own nature body, the enjoyment body, the transformation body, and the homogenous body. 
These are called body. There are also three kinds. They are letter, seal, and form. Bodies such as these are manifoldly interconnected, vertically and horizontally, like the reflections of a single object in many mirrors, or the interpenetration of the light of many lamps. That body is this body, and this body is that body. The Buddha's body is the bodies of sentient beings, and the bodies of sentient beings are the Buddha's body. They are not the same, and yet they are the same. They are not different, and yet they are different. Therefore, the mantra of the non-obstruction of the three equals says, Salutation, Asame, Trisame, Sammaye Swaha. The meaning of the first word, Asame, is unequaled. The next, Trisame, is three equals. And that of the last word, Sammaye, is equality of the three. The three are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Body, speech, and mind are also three. In the mind, the Buddha, and sentient beings are three. These three dharmas are completely equal and one. They are one and yet immeasurable in number, immeasurable in number and yet one, and they never become confused. Therefore it says, the manifold interconnectedness of Indra's net is called this very body. 5. Naturally endowed with sarvajana, or omniscience, or knowing everything. As for naturally endowed with the sarvajana, in the Mahavarochana Sutra it says, I am the original beginning of everything and am called the support of the world. My expounding of the Dharma is peerless, originally quiescent and unsurpassed. Remarks I is the self-designation of the Honored One Varochana. Everything refers to innumerable entities. Original beginning is the original patriarch from whom the very beginning is naturally realized in dharmas characterized by this great freedom. The Tathagata's Dharma body and the original nature of sentient beings both possesses this principle of original quiescence, but the sentient beings are unaware and ignorant of it. Therefore, the Buddha expounds this guiding principle to awaken sentient beings. 6. Mental functions and mind kings are more numerous than the dust motes of countless lands, each possessed of the five wisdoms of infinite wisdom. The next two lines, mental functions and mind kings are more numerous than the dust motes of countless lands, each possessed of the five wisdoms of infinite wisdom, expresses this meaning of all-knowing wisdom. When indicating the quality of judgment, it is known as wisdom, jhana. For showing the sense of accumulative arising, it is termed mind, chitta. And for showing the sense of norm support, it is termed dharma gateway or dharma. Each of these designations is not separate from a person, and the number of such persons exceeds the dust motes of countless lands. It is therefore called all-knowing wisdom, because it is possessed by all beings. And its meaning is not the same as in the case of exotericists, who use this term to set one wisdom over against everything. Mind kings is the wisdom of the essential nature of the Dharma realm and so on, and mental functions is the many and one consciousness. Each possessed the five wisdoms indicates that every mind king and mental function each has these five wisdoms. Infinite wisdom means that the wisdom is lofty, extensive, and innumerable. 7. And because the power to function as a perfect mirror, there is the real wisdom of enlightenment. As for, and because the power to function as a perfect mirror, there is the real wisdom of enlightenment gives the reason. On what account are all Buddhas described as having the wisdom of enlightenment? Namely, just as all forms are reflected in a bright mirror on a high stand, so too is it with the mirror of the mind of the Tathagata. The perfectly bright mirror of his mind hangs high on the pinnacle of the Dharma realm and quietly illuminates everything without distortion and without error, 
What Buddha does not possess such a perfect mirror? Therefore it says, and because of the power to function as a perfect mirror, there is the real wisdom of enlightenment. Around four centuries after Kukai, in the Kamakura period, in the city of Kyoto, in the year 1200, a child was born to a family of the imperial court, who would later be known as Dogen, and become the heir to the lineage of Bodhidharma. In much the same trajectory as Kukai, Dogen studied the common traditions that were popular at the time, but frustrated with his own progress in finding a lack of understanding of the Dharma masters of his time, he traveled to China to investigate the Chan school. Meeting his teacher, Master Ru Jing of Mount Song, within two years, Dogen realized Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi and then returned to Japan to establish the lineage of the Kaodong or Soto school of Zen. He settled in Mount Eihei in the Fukui prefecture, training and writing for the sake of all sentient beings until his death at the age of 52. His collected writings of 96 chapters is called the Shobogenzo, or Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and is Dogen's exposition of his understanding and transmission of the heart and meaning of the Chan or Zen school that he received from his teacher. Dogen's writing is masterful, poetic, and extremely dense in meaning. And while all that I've read is several translations in English, I'm sure its original content in classical Japanese is even more breathtaking still. What stands out to me most about Dogen's writing is his repeated clarification about prajna or wisdom, what it means to be a Buddha, what it means to have true practice, and what the true interpretation of the Buddha and the Chan teachings are, and most of all, the concept of transmission of the Dharma from Buddha to Buddha, how only a Buddha can turn the Dharma wheel, recognize another Buddha, and pass on the lineage of the Buddhas, and anything less is considered nothing short of heresy. But as combative as Dogen's writings can seem, I truly feel that it comes from a genuine authenticity and sense of humor as well as compassion about the state of us sentient beings and how important it is to preserve the Dharma that has been so carefully and painstakingly preserved for us. And as he expresses, as does basically every great master through the ages, that without the correct understanding and realization, there is no way to achieve the final and complete liberation. Dogen's writing contains many, many references to Chan parables and allusions to Chan concepts that will be lost to anyone not very familiar with the subject matter like I am not, which are explained in the footnotes of our Taisho translation by Gudo Wafu Nishijima. But there are so many footnotes in his writing that there is no way to even get through a chapter for this podcast, so please just listen in if you want to and try to absorb this expression of the true Dharma I as just that. The words of a Buddha. In the Shobo Genzo, Sanju Shichihon, Bodai Bunpo, Dogen said, The great teacher, Shakyamuni, abandoned succeeding his father's rank of king, not because it was ignoble, but because he was to succeed the rank of Buddha, which was incomparably precious. The rank of a Buddha is the rank of a homeless monk. This is the rank revered by all heavenly and human beings. This is the rank of supreme awareness, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. From Shobogenzo chapter 44, the Buddha's eternal mind, the Kobushin. The succession of the Dharma by ancestral patriarchs is 40 patriarchs from the seven Buddhas to Huinung, and 40 Buddhas from Huinung to the seven Buddhas. Because each of the seven Buddhas has the virtue of ascending and descending, they extend to Huinung and extend to the seven Buddhas. Because Huinung has the virtue of ascending and descending, he receives the authentic transmission from the seven Buddhas. 
he receives the authentic transmission from Hui Neng, and he passes the authentic transmission to later Buddhas. But it is beyond only former and later. At the time of Shakyamuni Buddha, all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions are present. At the time of Xingxi, Huairong is present. At the time of Huairong, Xingxi is present, and so on. At the time of Shichian, Mazu is present. Their not hindering each other may be different from having no connection. We should investigate the presence of such virtue. Each of the forty Buddhist patriarchs mentioned above is an eternal Buddha. At the same time, each has a mind, a body, a state of brightness, and a national land. Each has passed away long ago, and has never passed away at all. It may be that both never having passed away and having passed away long ago are equally the virtue of an eternal Buddha. Those who learn and practice the truth of eternal Buddhas realize and experience the truth of eternal Buddhas. They are the eternal Buddhas of each age. Although the eternal of eternal Buddhas is exactly the same as the old in new and old, eternal Buddhas have completely transcended past and present. They belong directly in eternity. My late master says, I have met with the eternal Buddha, Zheng Jue. Clearly, an eternal Buddha is present in the house of Tendo, and Tendo is present in the house of an eternal Buddha. Zen master Ke Qin says, I bow to the ground before the true eternal Buddha, Hui Neng. Remember, we should bow down to the 33rd patriarch from Shakyamuni Buddha, bowing to him as an eternal Buddha. Because Zen master Ke Qin has the resplendent brightness of an eternal Buddha, in the state of having met with an eternal Buddha, he is able to prostrate himself like this. This being so, mindful of the state of Hui Neng, which is right from the beginning to end, we should remember that eternal Buddhas are the grasping of a nose ring like this. One who has this ability to grasp a nose ring is just an eternal Buddha. Guang Run says, On the peak of Dai Yurei Mountain, an eternal Buddha is present, and he is radiating brightness that shines on this place. Remember, Guang Run has already met with an eternal Buddha. We need not search elsewhere. The place where an eternal Buddha exists is the peak of Dai Yurei Mountain. Those who themselves are not eternal Buddhas cannot know the place where eternal Buddhas appear. One who knows the concrete place where an eternal Buddha exists may be an eternal Buddha. Remember, even though Kang Shun is an eternal Buddha, if Yi Chun had not been endowed with his own share of an eternal Buddha's power, it might be hard for him to realize the secret of how to pay homage to an eternal Buddha. In his action now, as he relies on the influence of an eternal Buddha and learns from an eternal Buddha, there is effort beyond conversing, which is, in other words, old man Yi Chun, the great stout fellow himself. The everyday customs of eternal Buddhas and the dignified behavior of eternal Buddhas are not similar to and never have been the same as those people who are not eternal Buddhas. This being so, by learning and practice the state of Kong Shun, which is good in the beginning, middle, and end, we should learn and practice the lifetime of an eternal Buddha. National Master Nanyang Huizhong of Kotaikuji in the western capital is a Dharma successor of Hui Neng, revered and venerated by human emperors and celestial emperors alike, and one who is rarely seen and heard even in China. Not only is he the teacher of four generations of emperors, but the emperors themselves led his carriage into the imperial court. Still more, invited to the palace of the god Indra, he ascends far into the heavens, and for Indra, among celestial multitudes, he preaches the Dharma. The national master is once asked by a monk, What is the mind of eternal Buddhas? The master says, 
fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. The question says, this has got it, and says, that has got it. The monk has taken this expression of the truth and made it into a question. And this question far and wide has become an eternal expression of the truth. Thus, myriad trees and hundreds of weeds, which are flowers opening, are eternal Buddhas, expressions of the truth and eternal Buddha's questions. The nine mountains and eight oceans, which are the occurrence of the world, are eternal Buddha's sun faces and moon faces and eternal Buddha's skin, flesh, bones, and marrow. Furthermore, there may be instances of the eternal mind practicing Buddha. There may be instances of the eternal mind experiencing Buddha. There may be instances of the eternal mind making Buddha. And there may be instances of the eternal Buddha making up a mind. The reason we speak of the eternal Buddha is that the mind is eternal. Because the unity of the mind and Buddha is inevitably eternal, the eternal mind is a chair of bamboo and wood, is not being able to find a person who understands the Buddha Dharma, even if we search the whole earth, and is the present master calling this what? The moment and causes and conditions of the present, and the lands of dust and space of the present, are both nothing other than the eternal mind. They maintain and rely upon the eternal mind, and they maintain and rely upon the eternal state of a Buddha. It is maintenance and reliance upon two heads with one face, two things in a picture. The master says, fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. The point here is that there is a line of attack, whereby, facing fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles, we express them. Fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. And there is another mode of expression. There is a line of retreat whereby, inside the concrete places of fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles, fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles speak. In the state of round realization and perfect realization, in which these expressions are realized, there are walls standing a thousand feet or ten thousand feet high. There are fences standing around the earth and around the heavens. There is a covering of tile or half a tile, and there are sharp edges of pebbles, big ones and small ones. What exists like this is not only the mind, but also the body itself, and even object and subject. This being so, we should ask, and we should say, what are fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles? And if we want to converse, we should answer, the mind of eternal Buddhas. Maintaining and relying upon the state like this, we should investigate further. Just what are fences and walls? What do we call fences and walls? With what forms and stages are they furnished at this moment? We should investigate them like this in detail. Are fences and walls caused to appear through a process of production? Or is production caused to appear on the basis of fences and walls? Are they products or are they beyond production? Should we see them as sentient or as insentient? Are they appearing before us now or are they beyond appearance in the present? In the state like this of mental effort and of learning and practice, whether it is in the heavens above or in the human world, and whether it appears in this land or in other worlds, the mind of eternal Buddhas is fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. No additional speck of dust has ever protruded to taint it. Great Master Jin Yuan Zhongxing, the story goes, is asked by a monk, What is the mind of eternal Buddhas? The Master says, The world is shattered. The monk says, Why is the world shattered? The Master says, How is it possible to be without our own body? As regards this world, its ten directions are totally the world of Buddha, and there has never been any world that is not the world of Buddha. As regards the form and stages of being shattered, 
we should learn them in practice in this whole world in ten directions, never learning of them as self. Because we do not learn them as self, the very moment of shatteredness is one thing, two things, three, four, and five things, and therefore limitless things. Each thing is its own body, in the undecided state of being without. In our own body is the undecided state of being without. Do not selfishly begrudge the moment of the present, and thus fail to make your own body into the mind of eternal Buddhas. Truly, prior to the seven Buddhas, the mind of eternal Buddhas stands as a wall, and after the seven Buddhas, the mind of eternal Buddhas sprouts. Prior to all the Buddhas, the mind of eternal Buddhas flowers, and after all the Buddhas, the mind of eternal Buddhas bears fruit. Prior to the mind of eternal Buddhas, the minds of eternal Buddhas is liberated. And I'm noting here that I only read a few paragraphs from that chapter. So in chapter 6, the mind here and now is Buddha, Shokushinze Butsu, Master Shi Yun, National Master Dai Shou of the Great Kingdom of Tang, asks a monk, From which direction have you come? The monk says, I have come from the south. The master says, What good counselors are there in the south? The monk says, Good counselors are very numerous. The master says, How do they teach people? The monk says, The good counselors of that quarter teach students directly that mind here and now is Buddha. Buddha means consciousness itself. You now are fully endowed with the essence of seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition. This essence is able to raise the eyebrows and to wink, to come and go, and to move and act. It pervades the body, so that when something touches the head, the head knows it, and when something touches the foot, the foot knows it. Therefore, it is called the true, all-pervading intelligence. Apart from this, there is no Buddha at all. This body must appear and disappear, but the mental essence has never appeared or disappeared since limitless past. The appearance and disappearance of the body is like a dragon chasing its bones, a snake shedding its skin, or a person moving out of an old house. This body is inconstant. The essence is constant. What they teach in the South is, for the most part, like this. The Master says, If it is so, they are no different from the non-Buddhist Seneca. He said, In our body there is a single spiritual essence. This essence can recognize pain and irritation. When the body decays, the spirit departs. Just as when a house is burning, the master of the house departs. The house is inconstant. The master of the house is constant. When I examine people like this, they do not know the false from the true. How can they decide what is right? When I was on my travels, I often saw this kind. Recently, they are very popular. They gather assemblies of three or five hundred people, and eyes gazing towards the heaven, they say, This is the fundamental teaching of the South. They take the Platform Sutra and change it, making it folk stories and erasing its sacred meaning. They delude and disturb students. How could theirs be called the oral teaching? How painful it is that our religion is being lost. If seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition could be equated with the Buddha nature, Vimalakirti would not have said, The Dharma is transcendent over seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition. When we use seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition, it is only seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition. It is not pursuit of the Dharma. National Master Dai Shou is an excellent disciple of the Eternal Buddha Hui Nung. He is a good counselor in heaven above and in the human world. We should clarify the fundamental teaching set forth by the National Master and regard it as a criterion for learning and practice. Do not follow what you know to be the viewpoint of non-Buddhist Seneca. 
among those of recent generations who subsist as masters of mountains in the great kingdom of Song, there may be no one like the national master. From the ancient past, no counselors to equal the national master have ever manifested themselves in the world. Nevertheless, people of the world mistakenly think that even Lin Qi and Xuanjian might equal the national master. Only people who think like this are great in number. It is a pity that there are no teachers with clear eyes. This mind here and now is Buddha, that the Buddhist patriarchs maintain and rely upon, is not seen by non-Buddhists and people of the two vehicles, even in their dreams. Buddhist patriarchs alone, together with Buddhist patriarchs, possess hearing, action, and experience that have enacted and that have perfectly realized, mind here and now is Buddha. Buddhas have continued to pick up and throw away hundreds of weeds, but they have never represented themselves as a 16-foot golden body. The immediate universe exists. It's not awaiting realization, and it's not avoiding destruction. This concrete triple world exists. It is neither receding nor appearing. It is not just mind. Mind exists as fences and walls. It never gets muddy or wet, and it is never artificially constructed. We realize in practice that mind here and now is Buddha. We realize in practice that mind which is Buddha is this. We realize in practice that Buddha actuality is just the mind. We realize in practice that mind in Buddha here and now is right. And we realize in practice that this Buddha mind is here and now. Realization in practice like this is just mind here and now is Buddha. Picking itself up and authentically transmitting itself to mind here and now is Buddha. Authentically transmitted like this, it has arrived at the present day. The mind that has been authentically transmitted means one mind as all dharmas and all dharmas as one mind. For this reason, a man of old said, When a person becomes conscious of the mind, there is not an inch of soil on the earth. Remember, when we become conscious of the mind, the whole of heaven falls down and the whole ground is torn apart. Or in other words, when we become conscious of the mind, the earth grows three inches thicker. An ancient patriarch said, What is fine, pure, and bright mind? It is mountains, rivers, and the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Clearly, mind is mountains, rivers, and the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But what these words say is, when we are moving forward, not enough, and when we're drawing back, too much. Mind as mountains, rivers, and the earth is nothing other than the mountains, rivers, and the earth. There are no additional waves or surf, no wind or smoke. Mind as the sun, the moon, and the stars is nothing other than the sun, the moon, and the stars. There is no additional fog or mist. Mind as living and dying, coming and going, is nothing other than living and dying, coming and going. There is no additional delusion or realization. Mind as fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles is nothing other than fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. There is no additional mud or water. Mind as the four elements in five aggregates is nothing other than the four elements in five aggregates. There is no additional horse or monkey. Mind as a chair or a whisk is nothing other than a chair or a whisk. There is no additional bamboo or wood, because the state is like this. Mind here and now is Buddha is untainted. Mind here and now is Buddha. All Buddhas are untainted Buddhas. This being so... Mind here and now is Buddha, is the Buddhas themselves who establish the will, undergo training, realize bodhi, and experience nirvana. If we have never established the will, undergone training, 
realized Bodhi and experienced nirvana, then the state is not mind here and now is Buddha. If we establish the mind and do practice and experience even a single kshana, this is mind here and now is Buddha. If we establish the will and do practice and experience in a single molecule, this is mind here and now is Buddha. If we establish the will and do practice and experience in countless kalpas, this is mind here and now is Buddha. If we establish the will and do practice and experience in one instant of consciousness, this is mind here and now is Buddha. If we establish the will and do practice and experience inside half a fist, this is mind here and now is Buddha. To say, on the contrary, that undergoing training to become a Buddha for long kalpas is not mind here and now is Buddha, is never to have seen, never to have known, and never to have learned, mind here and now is Buddha. It is never to have met a true teacher who proclaims, mind here and now is Buddha. The term Buddhas means Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha is just mind here and now is Buddha. When all the Buddhas of the past, present, and future become Buddha, they inevitably become Shakyamuni Buddha. That is, mind here and now is Buddha. In chapter 22, entitled Buddha Nature or Busho, Shakyamuni Buddha says, All living beings totally have the Buddha nature. The Tathagata abides in them constantly, without changing at all. This is the turning of the Dharma wheel, as a lion's roar of our great master Shakyamuni. At the time, it is the brains and the eyes of all the Buddhas and all the patriarchs. It has been learned and practiced for 2,190 years, through barely 50 generations of rightful successors, until the late master Tiantong Rujing. The 28 masters in India have dwelled in it and maintained it from one generation to the next. 23 patriarchs in China have dwelled in it and maintained it from one age to the next. The Buddhist patriarchs in the Ten Directions have each dwelled in it and maintained it. What is the point of the world-honored one's words that all living beings totally exist as the Buddha nature? It is the words, this is something ineffable, coming like this, turning the Dharma wheel. Those called living beings, or called the sentient, or called all forms of life, or called all creatures, are living beings, and are all forms of existence. In short, total existence is the Buddha nature and the perfect totality of total existence is called living beings. At just this moment, the inside and outside of living beings are the total existence of the Buddha nature. The state is more than only the skin, flesh, bones, and marrow that are transmitted one to one, because you have got my skin, flesh, bones, and marrow. Remember, the existence described now, which is totally possessed by the Buddha nature, is beyond the existence of existence, and non-existence. Total existence is the Buddha's words, the Buddha's tongue, the Buddha's patriarch's eyes, and the nostrils of a patch-robe monk. The words total existence are utterly beyond beginning existence, beyond original existence, beyond fine existence, and so on. How much less could they describe conditioned existence or illusory existence? They are not connected with the mind and circumstances, or with essence and form, and the like. This being so, object and subject as living beings and total existence is completely beyond the ability based on karmic accumulation, beyond the random occurrence of circumstances, beyond accordance with the Dharma, and beyond mystical powers and practice and experience. If the total existence of living beings were ability based on karmic accumulation, where the random occurrences of circumstances were accordance with the Dharma and so on, 
than the saint's experience of the truth, the Buddha's state of bodhi, and the Buddhist patriarch's eyes would also be ability based on karmic accumulation, the occurrence of circumstances in accordance with the Dharma. That is not so. The whole universe is utterly without objective molecules. Here and now there is no second person at all. At the same time, no person has ever recognized the direct cutting of the root, for when does the busy movement of karmic consciousness ever cease? The total existence is beyond existence that arises through random circumstance, for the entire universe has never been hidden. The entire universe has never been hidden does not necessarily mean that the substantial world is existence itself. At the same time, the entire universe is my possession is the wrong view of non-Buddhists. Total existence is beyond originally existing existence, for it pervades the eternal past and pervades the eternal present. It is beyond newly appearing existence, for it does not accept a single molecule. It is beyond separate instances of existence, for it is inclusive perception. It is beyond the existence of beginningless existence, for it is something ineffable coming like this. It is beyond the existence of newly arising existence, for the everyday mind is the truth. Remember, in the midst of total existence, it is difficult for living beings to meet easy convenience. When understanding the total existence is like this, total existence is a state of penetrating to the substance and getting free. Hearing the word Buddha nature, many students have misunderstood it to be like the self described by the non-Buddhist Seneca. This is because they do not meet people, they do not meet themselves, and they do not meet with a teacher. They vacantly consider mind, will, or consciousness, which is the movement of wind and fire, to be the Buddha nature's enlightened knowing and enlightened understanding. Who has ever said that enlightened knowing and enlightened understanding are present in the Buddha nature? Those who realize enlightenment, those who know, are Buddhas. But the Buddha nature is beyond enlightened knowing and enlightened understanding. Moreover, in describing the Buddhas as those who realize and those who know, we are not describing the wrong views randomly expressed by those others as realization and knowing. And we are not describing the movement of wind and fire as realization and knowing. One or two concrete manifestations of a Buddha, or concrete manifestations of a patriarch, are just realization and knowing. For many ages, venerable predecessors have been to India and back, and have instructed human beings and gods. From the Han to the Song dynasties, they have been numerous as rice plants, flax plants, bamboo, and reeds, but many of them have considered the movement of wind and fire to be the knowing and realization of the Buddha nature. It is pitiful that, because their pursuit of the truth became further and further removed, they are guilty of this error. Later students and beginners in Buddhism today should not be like that. We learn realization and knowing, but realization and knowing are beyond movement. We learn movement, but movement is not the state like this. If we are able to understand real movement, we will be able to understand real knowing and understanding. Buddha and nature have arrived at that place and have arrived at this place. The Buddha nature is always total existence, for total existence is the Buddha nature. Total existence is not smashed into hundreds of bits and pieces, and total existence is not a single rail of iron. Because it is the holding up of a fist, it is beyond large and small. What already has been called the Buddha nature should not be equated with saints, and should not be equated with the Buddha nature. But there is one group that thinks as follows. The Buddha nature is like the seed of a plant or a tree.
As the rain of the Dharma waters it again and again, its buds and sprouts begin to grow. Then twigs, leaves, flowers, and fruit abound, and the fruit once more bears seeds. Views like this are the sentimental thinking of the common person. If we do hold such views, we should investigate that seeds and flowers and fruits are all separate instances of the naked mind. In fruits there are seeds. The seeds, though unseen, produce roots, stalks, and so on. They do not gather anything to themselves. They grow into a profusion of twigs, branches, and trunks. They are beyond discussion of inside and outside, and in time past and present. They are not void. Thus, even if we rely on the view of the common person, roots, stalks, branches, and leaves may all be the Buddha nature that is born within them, which dies with them, and which is just the same as their total existence. The Buddha says, Wanting to know the meaning of the Buddha nature, we should just reflect real-time causes and circumstances. When the time has come, the Buddha nature is manifest before us. This, wanting to know the meaning of the Buddha nature, does not only mean knowing. It means wanting to practice it, wanting to experience it, wanting to preach it, and wanting to forget it. Such preaching, practicing, experiencing, forgetting, misunderstanding, not misunderstanding, and so on, are all the causes and circumstances of real time. To reflect the causes and circumstances of real time is to reflect using the causes and circumstances of real time. It is mutual reflection through a whisk, a staff, and so on. On the basis of imperfect wisdom, faultless wisdom, or the wisdom of original awakening, fresh awakening, free awakening, right awakening, and so on. The causes and circumstances of real time can never be reflected. Just reflecting is not connected with the subject that reflects, or the object of reflection, and should not be equated with right reflection, wrong reflection, and the like. It is just reflection here and now. Because it is just reflection here and now, it is beyond subjective reflection and it is beyond objective reflection. It is the oneness of real time and causes and circumstances itself. It is transcendence of causes and circumstances. It is the Buddha nature itself, the Buddha nature rid of its own substance. It is Buddha as Buddha himself, and it is the natural function of the natural function itself. People in many ages from the ancient past to the present have thought that the words, when the time has come, are about waiting for a time in the future when the Buddha nature might be manifest before us. They think that, continuing their practice with this attitude, they will naturally meet the time when the Buddha nature is manifest before them. They say that, because the time has not come, even if they visit a teacher and ask for dharma, and even if they pursue the truth and make effort, the Buddha nature is not manifest before them. Taking such a view, they vainly return to the world of crimson dust and vacantly stare at the Milky Way. People like this may be a variety of naturalistic non-Buddhists. The words wanting to know the meaning of the Buddha nature mean, for example, really knowing the meaning of Buddha nature just here and now. Should just reflect real-time causes and circumstances means no causes and circumstances as real-time, just here and now. If you want to know this Buddha nature, remember, causes and circumstances as real-time are just it. When the time has come means the time has come already. What could there be to doubt? Even if there is a time of doubt, I leave it as it is. It is the Buddha nature returning to me. Remember, the time having come describes not spending any time in vain through the twelve hours. When it has come is like saying it has come already. 
and because the time has come, Buddha nature does not arrive. Thus, now that the time has come, this is just the manifestation before us of the Buddha nature, whose truth, in other words, is self-evident. In summary, there has never been any time that was not the time having come, nor any Buddha nature that was not the Buddha nature manifesting itself before us. When the sixth patriarch in China, Zen master Hui Neng of Sokezan, first visited Hong Ren, the fifth patriarch, the story goes, he asks him, where are you from? The sixth patriarch says, I am a man from the south of the peaks. The fifth patriarch says, what do you want to get by coming here? The sixth patriarch says, I want to become Buddha. The fifth patriarch says, a man from the south peaks is without the Buddha nature. How can you expect to become a Buddha? These words, a man from the south of the peaks is without Buddha nature, do not mean that a man from the south of the peaks does not have the Buddha nature, and does not mean that a man from the south of the peaks has the Buddha nature. They mean that the man from the south of the peaks, being without, is the Buddha nature. How can you expect to become Buddha means, what kind of becoming Buddha are you expecting? Generally, the past masters who have clarified the truth of the Buddha nature are few. It is beyond the various teachings of the Agama Sutras, and cannot be known by teachers of sutras and commentaries. It is transmitted one-to-one -one by none other than the descendants of the Buddhist patriarch. The truth of the Buddha nature is that we are not equipped with the Buddha nature before we realize the state of Buddha. We are equipped with it following realization of the state of Buddha. The Buddha nature and realization of Buddha inevitably experience the same state together. We should thoroughly investigate and consider this truth. We should consider it and learn it in practice for 30 years or 20 years. It is not understood by bodhisattvas in the 10 sacred stages or the three clever stages. To say living beings have Buddha nature or living beings are without the Buddha nature is this truth. To learn and practice that the Buddha nature is something that is present following realization of Buddha is accurate and true. Teaching that is not learned like this is not the Buddha Dharma. Without being learned like this, the Buddha Dharma could not have reached us today. Without clarifying this truth, we neither clarify nor see and hear the realization of Buddha. This is why the fifth patriarch, in teaching the other, tells him, People from the South Peaks, being without, are the Buddha nature. When we first meet Buddha and hear the Dharma, the teaching that is difficult to get and difficult to hear is living beings being without are the Buddha nature. In sometimes following good counselors and sometimes following the sutras, what we should be glad to hear is living beings being without are the Buddha nature. Those who are satisfied in seeing, hearing, realizing, and knowing that all living beings being without are the Buddha nature have never seen, heard, realized, or known the Buddha nature. When the sixth patriarch earnestly seeks to become a Buddha, the fifth patriarch is able to make the sixth patriarch become a Buddha. Without any other expression and without any other skillful means, just by saying, a man from the south of the peaks, being without, is the Buddha nature. Remember, saying and hearing the words, being without the Buddha nature, is the direct path to becoming Buddha. In sum, just at the moment of being without the Buddha nature, we become Buddha at once. Those who have neither seen and heard nor expressed being without the Buddha nature have not become Buddha. The sixth patriarch preaches to the disciple Gyosho that without constancy is the Buddha nature. That which has constancy is the mind that divides all dharmas into good and bad. 
that without constancy expressed by the sixth patriarch is beyond the suppositions of non-Buddhists, the two vehicles and the like. Founding patriarchs and latest offshoots among non-Buddhists and the two vehicles are without constancy, though they cannot perfectly realize it. Thus, when that without constancy itself preaches, practices, and experiences that without constancy, all may be that without constancy. If people can now be saved by the manifestation of our own body, we manifest at once our own body and preach for them the Dharma. This is the Buddha nature. Further, it may be sometimes the manifestation of a long Dharma body, and sometimes the manifestation of a short Dharma body. Everyday saints are that without constancy, and everyday commoners are that without constancy. The idea that everyday commoners and saints cannot be the Buddha nature may be a stupid view of small thinking and a narrow view based of the intellect. Buddha is a bit of body, and nature is a bit of action. On this basis, the sixth patriarch says, that without constancy is the Buddha nature. The constant is the unchanging. The meaning of the unchanging is as follows. Even though we turn it into the separating subject and transform it into the separated object, because it is not necessarily connected with the traces of leaving and coming, it is the constant. In sum, that without constancy of grass, trees, and forests is just the Buddha nature. And that without constancy of the body and mind of a human being is the Buddha nature itself. National lands and mountains and rivers are that without constancy, because they are the Buddha nature. The truth of Anuttara Samyaksambodhi, because it is the Buddha nature, is that without constancy. The great state of Parinirvana, because it is that without constancy, is the Buddha nature. The various people of small views of the two vehicles, together with the scholars of the Tripitaka, who teach sutras and commentaries and the like, might be astonished, doubting, and afraid at these words of the sixth patriarch. If they are astonished or doubting, they are demons and non-Buddhists. The rest of this chapter is very long, and I'll admit it's super confusing, so I'm going to leave it there. But there's much, much more to that chapter, and if you're up to the challenge, it's very much worth investigating. So, chapter 91, Buddha alone, together with Buddhas, Yui Butsuno Buts. The Buddha Dharma cannot be known by people. For this reason, since ancient times, no common person has realized the Buddha Dharma, and no one in the two vehicles has mastered the Buddha Dharma. Because it is realized only by Buddhas, we say that Buddhas alone, together with Buddhas, are directly able to perfectly realize it. When we perfectly realize it, while still as we are, we would never have thought previously that realization would be like this. Even though we had imagined it, it is not a realization that is compatible with that imagining. Realization itself is nothing like we imagined. That being so, to imagine it beforehand is not useful. When we have attained realization, we do not know what the reasons were for our being now in the state of realization. Let us reflect on this. To have thought, prior to realization, that it will be like this or like that, was not useful for realization. That it was different from how we had supposed it to be, in all our miscellaneous prior thoughts, does not mean that our thinking, being very bad, had no power in it. Even the thinking of that time was realization itself, but because we were then directing it the wrong way round, we had thought and said that it was powerless. Whenever we feel that we are useless, there is something that we should know. Namely, that we have been afraid of becoming small. If realization appears through the force of thoughts prior to realization, 
it might be an unreliable realization, because it does not rely upon realization, and it has come far transcending the time prior to realization. Realization is assisted solely by the force of realization itself. Delusion, remember, is something that does not exist. Realization, remember, is something that does not exist. When the supreme state of Bodhi is a person, we call it Buddha. When Buddha is in the supreme state of Bodhi, we call it the supreme state of Bodhi. If we fail to recognize the feature of the moment of being in this truth, that might be stupid. That feature, namely, is untaintedness. Untaintedness does not mean forcibly endeavoring to be aimless and free of attachment and detachment, nor does it mean maintaining something other than one's aim. Actually, without being aimed at, or attached to, or detached from, untaintedness exists. But, for example, when we meet people, we fix in the mind what their features are like, and when we see a flower or the moon, we think upon them as an extra layer of light and color. Again, we should recognize that just as it is inescapable for spring to be simply the spirit of spring itself, and for autumn likewise to be the beauty and ugliness of autumn itself, even if we try to be other than ourselves, we are ourselves. We should reflect also that even if we want to make these sounds of spring and autumn into ourselves, they are beyond us. Neither have they piled up upon us, nor are they thoughts just now existing in us. This means that we cannot see the four elements in the five aggregates of the present as ourselves, and we cannot trace them as someone else. Thus the colors of the mind, excited by a flower or the moon, should not be seen as self at all. But we think of them as ourself. If we consider what is not ourself to be ourself, even that can be left as it is. But when we illuminate the state in which there is no possibility of either repellent colors or attractive ones being tainted, then action that naturally exists in the truth is the unconcealed original features. A man of old said, The whole earth is our own Dharma body, but it must not be hindered by a Dharma body. If it were hindered by a Dharma body, to move the body even slightly would be impossible. There should be a way of getting the body out. What is this way by which people get the body out? For those who fail to express this way of getting the body out, the life of the Dharma body ceases at once and they are long sunk in the sea of suffering. If asked a question like this, what should we express to let the Dharma body live and so as not to sink into the sea of suffering? At such a time we should express, the whole earth is our own Dharma body. If this truth is present, the moment expressed as the whole earth is our own Dharma body is beyond expression. Moreover, when it is beyond expression, we should promptly notice the possibility of not expressing it. There is an expression of an eternal Buddha who did not express it. In death there are instances of living. In living there are instances of being dead. There are the dead who will always be dead, and there are the living who are constantly alive. People do not forcibly cause it to be so. The Dharma is like this. Therefore, when Buddhas turn the wheel of Dharma, they have light and they have sound like this, and we should recognize that in their manifesting the body to save the living, also they are like this. This state is called the wisdom of non-birth. Their manifesting the body to save the living is their saving the living to manifest the body. When we behold their saving, we do not see a trace of manifestation, and when we watch them manifesting, they may be free of concern about salvation. We should understand, should preach, and should experience that in this saving, the Buddha Dharma is perfectly realized. We hear and we preach that both manifesting and the body are as one with saving. 
Here also, the unity of manifesting the body to save the living makes it so. When Buddhas have substantiated this principle, from the morning of their attaining the truth to the evening of their nirvana, even if they have never preached a word, words of preaching have been let loose all around. An eternal Buddha said, The whole earth is the real human body. The whole earth is the gate of liberation. The whole earth is one eye of Varochana. The whole earth is our own Dharma body. The point here is that the real is the real body. We should recognize that the whole earth is not our imagination. It is the body that is real. If someone asks, why have I not noticed this so far? We should say, give me back my words that the whole earth is the real human body. Or we might say, that the whole earth is the real human body, we know like this. Next, the whole earth is the gate of liberation, describes there being nothing at all to tangle with or to embrace. The words the whole earth are familiar to time, to the years, to the mind, into words. They are immediate, without any separation. We should call that which is limitless and boundless the whole earth. If we seek to enter this gate of liberation, or seek to pass through it, that would be utterly impossible. Why is it so? We should reflect on the asking of the question. Even if we hope to visit a place that does not exist, that is not feasible. Next, the whole earth is the one eye of Varochana. Though Buddha is one eye, do not think that it must necessarily be like a person's eye. In people there are two eyes, but when speaking of our eye, we just say the human eye. We do not speak of two or three. When those who learn the teaching also speak of the Buddha's eye, the Dharma eye, and the supernatural eye, and so on, we are not studying eyes. To have understood them as if they were eyes is called unreliable. Now we should just be informed that the Buddha's eye is one, and in it the whole earth exists. There may be a thousand eyes, or ten thousand eyes, but to begin with, the whole earth is one among them. There is no error in saying that it is one among so many. At the same time, it is not mistaken to recognize that in the state of Buddha, there is only one eye. Eyes may be of many kinds. There are instances of three being present. There are instances of a thousand eyes being present. There are instances of 84,000 being present. So the ears should not be surprised to hear that the eye is like this. Next, we must hear that the whole earth is our own Dharma body. To seek to know ourselves is the inevitable will of the living. But those with eyes that see themselves are few. Buddhas alone know this state. Others, non-Buddhists and the like, vainly consider only what does not exist to be their self. What Buddhas call themselves is just the whole earth. In some, in all instances, whether we know or do not know ourselves, there is no whole earth that is other than ourself. The matters of such times we should defer to people of yonder times. In ancient times a monk asked a venerable patriarch, When a hundred thousand myriad circumstances converge all at once, what should I do? The venerable patriarch said, Do not try to manage them. The meaning is, Let what is coming come. In any event, do not stir. This is immediate Buddha Dharma. It is not about circumstances. These words should not be understood as an admonition. They should be understood as enlightenment in regard to reality. Even if we consider how to manage circumstances, they are beyond being managed. An ancient Buddha said, Mountains, rivers, the earth, and human beings are born together. The Buddhas of the three times and human beings have always practiced together. Thus, if we look at the mountains, rivers, and earth, while one human being is being born, 
we do not see this human being now appearing through isolated superimposition upon mountains, rivers, and earth that existed before this human being was born. Having said this, still the ancients' words may not be devoid of further meaning. How should we understand them? Just because we have not understood them, we should not disregard them. We should resolve to understand them without fail. They are words that were actually preached, and so we should listen to them. Having listened to them, then we may be able to understand them. A way in which to understand them is as follows. Who is the person that has clarified by investigating this birth, from the side of this human being being born, just what is, from beginning to end, this thing called birth? We do not know the end or the beginning, but we have been born. Neither indeed do we know the limits of mountains, rivers, and the earth, but we see them here. And at this place it is as if they are walking. Do not complain that mountains, rivers, and the earth are not comparable with birth. Illuminate mountains, rivers, and the earth as if they have been described as utterly the same as our being born. Again, the Buddhas of the three times have already, through their practice, accomplished the truth and perfect realization. How then are we to understand that this state of Buddha is the same as us? To begin with, we should understand the actions of Buddha. The action of Buddha takes place in unison with the whole earth and takes place together with all living beings. If it does not include all, it is never the action of Buddha. Therefore, from the establishment of the mind until the attainment of realization, both realization and practice are inevitably done together with the whole earth and together with all living beings. Some doubts may arise in regard to this, when we seek to clarify that which seems to be mixed into ideas that are unknowable, such doubting voices are heard, but we should not wonder whether the state of oneness is the situation of other people. This is a teaching to be understood, and so we should recognize that when we establish and practice the mind of the Buddhas of the three times, the principle is inevitably present, and we do not let our own body and mind leak away. To have doubts about this is actually to disparage the Buddhas of the three times. If we quietly reflect on ourselves, the truth exists in the fact that our own body and mind has been practicing in the same manner as the Buddhas of the three times, and the truth is evident also that we have established the mind. If we reflect upon and illuminate the moment before and the moment behind this body and mind, the human being under investigation is not I and is not another person. In which case, as what stagnant object can we see it, and thereby consider it to be separate from the three times? All such thoughts do not belong to us. When the truth is being practiced by the original mind of the Buddhas of the three times, how is it possible for anything at all to hinder that moment? The truth, in short, should be called beyond knowing and not knowing. An ancient person said, Even the crashing down of illusions is nothing different. Fluency is beyond discussion. Mountains, rivers, and the earth are just the total revelation of the Dharma king's body. People today also should learn in accordance with the saying of this person of ancient times. Mountains, rivers, and the earth already are the body of a king of Dharma. Therefore, there existed a king of Dharma who understood that even the crashing down was nothing different. This idea is like the mountains beginning on the earth, and like the earth bearing the mountains. When we understand, the time when we did not understand does not return to impede understanding. At the same time, there is no case of understanding being able to destroy past non-understanding. Still, both in understanding and in non-understanding, there is the mind of spring, and the voice of autumn. 
The reason we have not understood even them is that, although spring and autumn have been preaching at the top of their voices, those voices have not entered our ears. Our ears have been idly wandering inside the voices. Understanding will take place when, with the voices already having entered the ears, samadhi becomes evident. We should not think, though, that this understanding is small, whereas non-understanding was great. We should remember that, because we are beyond matters we have conceived privately, the Dharma king is like this. As to the meaning of the body is the Dharma king, the eye is like the body, and the mind may be equal to the body. It may be both the mind and the body, without the slightest separation, are totally revealed. We understand that in the brightness of light and in the preaching of Dharma, there exists, as described above, the body of the Dharma king. There is a saying from ancient times that none other than fish know the minds of fish. None other than birds know the traces of birds. Few people have been able to know this principle. Those who have interpreted only that human beings do not know the mind of fish and that human beings do not know the minds of birds have misconstrued the saying. The way to understand it is as follows. Fish together with fish always know each other's mind. They are never ignorant of each other as human beings are. When they are going to swim upstream through the dragon's gate, this is known to all, and together they make their minds one. The mind to get through the nine rapids of Zhekiang also is communicated in common, but none other than fish know this mind. Again, when birds are flying through the sky, walking creatures never imagine, even in a dream, the knowing of these tracks or the seeing of the following of these traces. Walking creatures do not know that such traces exist, and so there is no example of walking creatures imagining such traces. Birds, however, can see in the many ways that hundreds of thousands of small birds have flocked together and flown away, or that these are the traces of big birds that have gone south or flown north in so many lines. To birds these traces are more evident than wheel tracks in a lane, or horses' hoofprints visible in the grass. Birds see the traces of birds. This principle also applies to Buddhas. They suppose how many ages Buddhas have spent in practice, and they know small Buddhas and great Buddhas, even among those who have gone uncounted. These are things that, when we are not Buddha, we never know at all. There might be someone who asks, Why can I not know it? Because it is in the eye of the Buddha that those traces can be seen. And those who are not Buddha are not equipped with the eye of Buddha. Buddhas are counted among those that count things, without knowing. However, they are totally able to trace the tracks and paths of Buddhas. If with our own eyes we can see these traces, we may be in the presence of Buddhas, and we may be able to compare their footprints. In the comparing, Buddha's traces are known. The length and depth of Buddha's traces are known, and through consideration of Buddha's traces, the illumination of our own traces is realized. To realize these traces may be called the Buddha Dharma. I want to turn our attention now towards Tibet, the land of snows home of the snow lion and the yeti, the home of the Potala palace, and the heir to the Nalanda tradition of Buddhist logic and Indian tantric teachings of the Vajrayana. The Tibetan people are the last bastion of preserving and upholding the entire system of the Buddha Dharma, from the most basic pratimoksha, or monastic vows, to the most advanced tantric teachings and everything in between. And although much was lost during the Cultural Revolution of the 50s and 60s, the great beings of Tibet put their own lives at risk to carry sacred texts and instructions to India, Nepal, and Bhutan, as well as those that remained in Tibet 
hiding them in houses and caves to protect them from the Red Guard. It speaks very much to the reality of clinging and grasping to ideas and a rigidity of views that one person would torture and kill another just for having a book and saying, I take refuge in the Buddha. But this is the very attachment that Buddhism seeks to free us from. It's no surprise that ego, self-righteousness, and arrogance in any culture and place would see the teachings of the Buddha as an affront to their way of thinking and engaging with reality. In the land of snows, since the time of Guru Rinpoche, there have never been a shortage of those who understand, practice, and uphold the true and proper Dharma, as Tibet receives its teachings straight from Nalanda University, as well as the great Indian masters such as Atisha, Naropa, and Virupa, and due to its relative proximity to India and great effort on the part of Tibetan kings to bring the real thing to their people out of great concern for their well-being. In the 11th century, a young man from western Tibet, who had come to be known as Milarepa, came from a well-to-do family. When his parents died and his relatives took all of his property from him, he became enraged and sought out a sorcerer to learn the dark arts to take his revenge. He sent a devastating hailstorm to strike his family, killing their entire livestock and many of his family members. Once his anger subsided, he was struck with regret and sought out a Dharma teacher in the hopes of absolving his sins. When he heard of the great master Marpa, the Lotsawa, the translator who went to India and met the mighty Naropa, the former abbot of Nalanda who became a great Mahasiddha, or greatly accomplished one, Milarepa set out to find him. Once he found him, Marpa subjected Milarepa to unbearable trials and hardships, and right when Milarepa was at his wit's end, Marpa bestowed on him all that he sought and sent Mila out to practice what he had been given. Milarepa became legendary for his extreme austerity and dedication to practice, spending his entire life in various caves around Tibet, giving teachings and singing verses to monastic and lay people about the wonders of his realizations and the joys of practicing the Dharma. It was very well recorded that Milarepa attained full and complete Buddhahood, and his fame spread throughout the land of snows, and his words and teachings were recorded in what are now called the Hundred Thousand Songs of Milarepa. The lineage that continued from Milarepa and Marpa is called the Kagju lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, and it has produced amazing and profound Dharma masters and siddhas of the same ilk as Milarepa. So who better to hear about the Buddha from the Jetsun himself, Milarepa? From Chapter 7, The Song of a Yogi's Joy, Milarepa sings, O oh my Guru, the exemplar of the view, practice, and action, pray, vouchsafe me your grace, and enable me to be absorbed in the realm of self-nature. For the view, practice, action, and accomplishment, there are three key points you should know. All the manifestation, the universe itself, is contained in the mind. The nature of mind is the realm of illumination, which can neither be conceived nor touched. These are the key points of the view. Errant thoughts are liberated into the Dharmakaya. The awareness, the illumination, is always blissful. Meditate in a manner of non-doing and non-effort. These are the key points of practice. In the action of naturalness, the ten virtues spontaneously grow. All the ten vices are thus purified by corrections or remedies. The illuminating void is never disturbed. These are the key points of action. There is no nirvana to attain beyond. There is no here to renounce. Truly to know the self-mind is to be the Buddha himself. These are the key points of accomplishments. 
reduce inwardly the three key points to one. This one is the void nature of being, which only a wondrous guru can clearly illustrate. Much activity is of no avail. If one sees the simultaneously born wisdom, he reaches his goal. For all practitioners of Dharma, this preaching is a precious gem. It is my direct experience from yogic meditation. Think carefully and bear it in your minds, O my children and disciples. From Chapter 10, Milarepa's First Meeting with Rechungpa, where he speaks with a group of workers who are questioning him about his lifestyle. The workers said, What you have sung is most enlightening. Please also tell us whether in your way of life you have anything like our arms, properties, relatives, companions, wives, and children. It seems to us that these things are worth more than you have suggested. Please tell us what possessions you have that are so much better than ours. Why do you look upon our way of life as worthless? Milarepa answered, The Alaya consciousness is the good earth. The inner teachings is the seed that is sowed. Achievement in meditation is the sprout, and the three bodies of Buddha are the ripened crop. These are the four lasting mainstays of heavenly farming. Your worldly farming, delusive and deceiving, is merely the slave labor of the hungry. Without hesitation, I discard it. The fine warehouse of Shunyata, the supramundane jewels, the service and action of the ten virtues, and the great happiness of non-outflows, these four jewels are the lasting properties of heaven. Your worldly jewels and possessions are deceiving and delusive. Like deceptive magic spells, they lead you astray. Without hesitation, I discard them. The father and mother Buddha are my parents. The immaculate Dharma is my face. The assembly of Sangha are my cousins and nephews, and the guardians of Dharma are my friends. These four are my lasting, heavenly kinsmen. Your worldly kinsmen are deceitful and delusive. Without hesitation, I throw all ephemeral associates away. The blissful passing is like my father. The blissful illumination and well-done work is my background. The two-in-one is my glossy, lustrous skin. The experience and realization are my glorious clothing. These four are my heavenly and lasting wives. Delusive and deceiving are your worldly companions. They are but temporary friends, inclined to quarrel. Without hesitation, I throw them all away. Mind awareness is my newborn babe. Experience of meditation is my infant. Understanding and realization is my child, and the grown youth who can keep the doctrine is my young companion. These four are my lasting heavenly sons. Your worldly offspring are delusive and deceitful. Without hesitation, I throw them all away. I wish sincerely that I and you, the good folk of Guntong, through karma affinity of this conversation, may meet once more in the pure land of Ojin. The villagers, strongly moved with faith, then made obeisance and offerings to Milarepa. Later they all became his sincere disciples. From Chapter 13, The Song of Realization Hear me, you well-gifted man. Is not this life uncertain and delusive? Are not its pleasures and enjoyments like a mirage? Is there any peace here in samsara? Is not its false felicity as unreal as a dream? Are not both praise and blame as empty as an echo? Are not all forms the same as the mind-nature? Are not self-mind and Buddha identical? Is not the Buddha the same as the Dharmakaya? Is not the Dharmakaya identical with truth? The enlightened one knows that all things are mental. Therefore, one should observe one's mind by day and night. If you watch it, you can still see nothing. Fix then your mind in this non-seeing state. 
There is no self-entity in Milarepa's mind. I myself am the Mahamudra. Because there is no difference between static and active meditation, I have no need for the different stages in the path. Whatever they may manifest, their essence is voidness. There is neither mindfulness nor non-mindfulness in my contemplation. I have tasted the flavor of non-existence. Compared to other teachings, this is the highest. The yoga practice of the nadis, prana, and bindu, the teaching of karma mudra and of mantra yoga, the practice of visualizing Buddha and the four pure positions, these are only the first steps in Mahayana. To practice them uproots not lust and hate. Bear what I now sing firmly in your minds. All things are of the self-mind, which is void. He who never departs from the experience and realization of the void, without effort, has accomplished all practices of worship and discipline. In this are found all merits and marvels. In chapter 43, Songs of the Eight Wondrous Joys, it says, When Jetson Milarepa was staying at the Red Rock height of Drin, a monk of the Dre tribe, who had never seen the Jetson before, but was greatly impressed by his fame, came in great faith to visit him. Reaching Milarepa's abode, he saw only a cooking pot in the cave and thought, There is nothing here, not a single page of Buddhist scripture, not a Buddha image, not even a small symbol of the Dharma, let alone the necessary supplies for amusement and livelihood, since there is no holy symbol, such as sutras or an image of the Buddha, of which he can put his whole reliance, I wonder what will happen to him when he dies. The Jetson knew his thought at once and said, Venerable monk, you need not worry about that. I do have my holy scriptures, images, in reliance on the Dharma. I shall have no regret, but shall rejoice when I die. Now listen to my song. I bow down to all father gurus. My body is the holy mandala itself wherein resides the Buddhas of all times. With their blessings I am freed from all needs and attachments. By day and night I offer to them. Happy I am to do without material things. Knowing that all beings in the six lokas are latent Buddhas, in all three realms the self-creating beyond-measure palace, whatever I do is the play of Dharmadhatu. Whoever I am with is the patron deity. Wherever I stay is the Buddha's abode. With my great wisdom I clearly see them all. Happy I am to forgo outside help and symbols. On the paper of the red and white forces, I use the ink of wisdom, writing the words of the five senses. All forms then become the Dharmakaya. Happy I am without those foolish books. All sentient beings in samsara have thatness, but realize it not. Applying the profound instructions, I absorb myself in the samadhi of the three-in-one trikaya. Oh, whenever death may come, I shall feel naught but joy. And chapter 29, The Conversion of the Goddess Seringma Sentient beings in the three kingdoms possess the different passion bodhis. Among them there may be many kinds of egoism and many types of behavior. They have a myriad ways of ego clinging. To suit the minds of ignorant men, the Buddha said, All things are existent. But in the realm of absolute truth, Buddha himself does not exist. There are no practices, no practicers, no path, no realization, and no stages, no Buddha's bodies, and no wisdom. There is then no nirvana. For these are merely names and thoughts. Matter and beings in the universe are non-existent from the start. They have never come to be. There is no truth, no innate-born wisdom, no karma, and no effect therefrom. Samsara even has no name. Such is the absolute truth. Yet, if there are no sentient beings, 
how could Buddha in the three times come to be? For if there is no cause, there will be no effect. Therefore Buddha says, in mundane truth, all samsaric and nirvanic things exist. In ultimate truth, manifestations and the void, existence and non-existence are the same, being one in taste. There is no difference such as this and that. All dharmas are two in one in the greatness. This is understood by those enlightened ones who see no consciousness but wisdom, who see but Buddhas and no sentient beings, who see no dharma forms but dharma essence. Spontaneously a great compassion flows out from their hearts. Their powers and virtues never decline. They possess all merits and wish-granting powers. They have realized all virtues and the truth. Milarepa's great disciple, Gampopa, carried on his lineage, eventually passing it on to the first Karmapa, Dusum Kempa. In his famous work, The Jewel Ornament of Liberation, he says the following of Buddha nature. We need to attain unsurpassable enlightenment by freeing ourselves from the confused state of samsara. But is it possible for inferior persons like ourselves to achieve enlightenment even if we make the effort? Why wouldn't we attain enlightenment if we made the effort? All sentient beings, including ourselves, already possess the primary causes for enlightenment, the essence of the well-gone one. As it is stated in the King of Meditative Absorption Sutra, the essence of the well-gone one pervades all migrators. The small Parinirvana Sutra says, All sentient beings have the essence of the thus-gone one. Also, the Sutra of the Great Parinirvana says, For example, as butter permeates milk, Likewise, the essence of the thus come one pervades all sentient beings. And in the ornament of the Mahayana Sutra, even though suchness is not different for any being, one is called thus gone one when it is fully purified. Therefore, all beings are of its essence. By what reasoning can it be shown that sentient beings have Buddha nature? Because all sentient beings are pervaded by the emptiness of Dharmakaya, because there are no differences in the natures of suchness, and because all beings have a family. For three reasons, all sentient beings are of the Buddha nature. The unsurpassed Tantra says, because the perfect form of the Buddha radiates, because there are no distinctions within suchness, and because all are in a family, all sentient beings are always of the essence of enlightenment. To explain the first reason, all sentient beings are pervaded by the emptiness of Dharmakaya, means that the ultimate Buddhahood is Dharmakaya. Dharmakaya is all-pervading emptiness, and emptiness pervades all sentient beings. Therefore, all sentient beings are of the Buddha nature. Saying, there are no differentiations in the nature of suchness, means that suchness of the Buddha is identical to the suchness of sentient beings. None is better or worse, none is bigger or smaller, none is higher or lower. So, because of that, all sentient beings are of the Buddha nature. So Gampopa then describes the families, which are the disconnected family, meaning those who don't care about others, the indefinite family, meaning those who have not entered into a family yet and depend on conditions to do so, the Shravaka family, which are those who seek only their own liberation, the Prachekya Buddha family, meaning those who only want to liberate themselves, are arrogant, who keep their master's identities secret, and who stay in isolated areas, and then finally the Mahayana family. And about the Mahayana fam, he says this. What kind of family is the Mahayana? The summary, classification, definition, synonyms, reason it's superior to other families, causal characteristics, and marks. These six comprise the Mahayana family. A. Classification. 
This family has two classifications, the naturally abiding family and the perfectly workable family. B. Definition. Second is the explanation of the respective essences of these individuals. The naturally abiding family has, from beginningless time, had the potential to develop all Buddha's qualities through suchness. 4. The perfectly workable family has the potential to achieve all the Buddha's qualities through the power of habituating themselves in root virtue. 5. Thus both have the chance to achieve enlightenment. C. Synonyms. The synonyms of the family are potential, seed, sphere element, and natural mode of abiding. D. Superiority. The hearer and solitary realizer families are inferior by virtue of the fact that they fully purify their families by dispelling only the obscurations of afflicting emotions. The Mahayana is superior because it fully purifies its family by dispelling two obscurations, afflicting emotions and the subtle obscurations to enlightenment. Therefore, the Mahayana family is superior and unsurpassed. E. Causal Characteristics. The causal characteristics of the family are described as awakened and unawakened. The awakened family has achieved the fruit perfectly, and the signs are very obvious. The unawakened family has not achieved the fruit perfectly, and its marks are not obvious. What would cause this family to awaken? This family can awaken through freedom from unfavorable contributory causes and through the support of favorable conditions. If the opposite occurs, then they cannot awaken. There are four unfavorable conditions being born in unfavorable circumstances, having no habitual tendency towards enlightenment, entering into wrong conditions, and being heavily shrouded by the obscurations. There are two favorable conditions, the outer condition of a teacher and the inner condition of a mind with the proper desire for the precious dharma and so forth. F. Marks. The marks of this family are the signs which indicate the bodhisattva's family. The Ten Noble Bhumi Sutra says, the family of wise bodhisattvas can be recognized by its signs, just as fire is known by its smoke, and water is known by water birds. In that case, what kind of marks are there? Their bodies and speech are naturally gentle, without dependence on a remedy. Their minds are less deceitful, and having loving-kindness and clarity towards sentient beings. Thus the Ten Noble Bhumi Sutra says, No harshness or arrogance, avoiding all deceit and cunning having a clear, loving attitude towards all sentient beings. This is a bodhisattva. In other words, in whatever preparatory actions a bodhisattva undertakes, he always cultivates compassion for all sentient beings. He has great inclination towards the Mahayana teachings, has no hesitation to endure hardships, and perfectly performs the root of virtue of the perfections. Thus the ornament of the Mahayana Sutra says, Developing compassion at the preparation stage, devoted interest, patience, perfectly performing the virtues, these are the signs of the Mahayana family. Thus, of these five families, those who are the Mahayana family are very close to the causes of enlightenment. The hearer and solitary realizer families will eventually lead to Buddhahood, but the cause is farther away and it will take a longer time. In the indefinite family, some are close and some will take a long time. The disconnected family is known by the Buddha to wander in samsara for a long time but this does not mean that they absolutely will not attain Buddhahood. They can attain Buddhahood, but it will take a very long time. Therefore, since all sentient beings belong to one of these families, all sentient beings are of the Buddha nature. Thus, by the above three reasons, it has been demonstrated that all sentient beings have the Buddha nature. Furthermore, consider these examples, silver abiding in its ore, oil abiding in a mustard seed, and butter abiding in milk. 
From silver ore, we can produce silver. From mustard seed, we can produce oil. And from milk, we can produce butter. Likewise, sentient beings can become Buddhas. And so in his chapter 20 on perfect Buddhahood, Gampopa says, Thus, one attains the perfect Buddhahood of the three kayas by completely passing through all paths and bumis. The lamp for the path to enlightenment says, The enlightenment of a Buddha is not too far away. Thus, the summary of Buddhahood is nature, significance of the name, classification, definition, definite number, characteristics, and special traits. These seven comprise the kayas of the complete perfect Buddha. 1. Nature The nature of a complete perfect Buddha is a. Perfect purification and b. Perfect primordial wisdom. a. Perfect purification The two obscurations of afflicting emotions and obscurations to knowledge were suppressed on the bumis and paths, and right at the vajra-like absorption they are fully abandoned without remainder. The obscurations to equipoise and so forth are included in these two obscurations. Therefore, by purifying these two, all obscurations are abandoned. b. Perfect primordial wisdom. There are different opinions about the Buddha's primordial wisdom. Some believe that the Buddha possesses discursive thought as well as primordial wisdom. Some say the Buddha does not possess discursive thought, but does possess primordial wisdom, which is very clearly aware of everything. Others say that the continuity of the primordial wisdom has ceased. Some say that the Buddha never had primordial wisdom. Possession of primordial wisdom. Both sutras and shastras explain that Buddha does possess primordial wisdom. The condensed perfection of wisdom sutra says, Therefore, one who wishes to achieve the supreme transcendent awareness of the Buddha should have confidence in the mother of Buddhas, or Prajnaparamita. Also, the hundred thousand stanzas perfection of wisdom says, the complete, perfect Buddha perfectly achieved primordial wisdom without any obscuration to any phenomenon. The 21st chapter of the same sutra says, There is primordial wisdom of the unsurpassed Buddha. There is turning the wheel of Dharma. There is fully maturing the sentient beings. There are many other sutras that explain about primordial wisdom. According to the Shastras, the ornament of the Mahayana Sutra says, As when the rays of the sun rise, all rays of light occur. Likewise, one should understand the arising of the primordial wisdom of all the Buddhas, and so forth. And, mirror-like wisdom is unshakable. The other three primordial wisdoms depend on that. Equanimity, discrimination, and activity accomplishment. Other Shastras also explain about the Buddha's primordial wisdom. Those saying that Buddha possessed primordial wisdom depend on these texts. How primordial wisdom is possessed. In brief, there are two primordial wisdoms. 1. The primordial wisdom of actualizing reality as it is, and 2. That of omniscience. 1. Actualizing reality as it is means understanding the ultimate meaning. As mentioned earlier, by perfecting the complete suchas at the final vajra-like absorption, one sees complete liberation of the object through which all the gross thoughts are pacified. Through this one realizes the one taste of freedom from elaboration, the dharmadhatu, and primordial wisdom. For example, this is like mixing two waters into one, or melting two butters at once. It is like saying, I saw space, when there are no forms to be seen. The great awareness wisdom, without appearance, is the basis of all precious qualities. As it is said, for example, as one water is mixed into another, or as butters melt into one, the inseparable primordial wisdom is fully unified with the object of knowledge, free from elaboration. This is called the Dharmakaya 
which is the nature of all Buddhas, and people express in words that they see space, but investigate by asking how they could see it. Likewise, Buddha explained how dharmas are to be seen. There is no other example to express this. 2. The primordial wisdom of omniscience means the knowing the meaning of all the conventional states. Supported by the Vajra-like absorption, one achieves the great wisdom awareness by annihilating all the seeds of obscurations. By that power, all the knowledge of the three times can be seen very clearly, like seeing a fresh crystal fruit in your palm. The sutras also mention that the conventional is known by the Buddha. As it is said, One feather of a peacock has many different causes. They cannot all be known without complete knowledge. Knowing that it is the power of omniscience, the unsurpassed Tantra says, Through great compassion, knowing all worlds, having seen all worlds, in what way is this seen and known? It is not like seeing phenomenon as real. It is seen and understood as illusion. The accomplishment of Dharmadhatu Sutra says, For example, when magicians conjure up a magical display, they fully understand this and do not become attached to their illusion. Likewise, all the three worlds are like magic displays and the wise, completely enlightened Buddha is aware of that. The Meeting of Father and Son Sutra says, The magician manifests magic, and because he understands it as magic, is not confused on that subject. You see all beings like that. I prostrate to and praise the omniscient one. Arguments Buddhas do not possess omniscient knowledge of conventional. Some say that the complete, perfect Buddha possesses understanding of the ultimate meaning, which is called the wisdom of actualizing reality as it is but does not possess the wisdom of the conventional states, which is called the primordial wisdom of omniscience. It is not that Buddha is unaware of something that could be known, but that there is no conventional level, and therefore the primordial wisdom of knowing it does not exist. Furthermore, they argue that the conventional appears subjectively to the ordinary childish ones, who are caused by the ignorance of the afflicting emotions, and to the three noble ones, who are caused by ignorance without affliction. For example, these perceptions are like those of persons with cataracts, who seeing falling hair and fuzzy images. The Buddha fully purified ignorance during his Vajra-like absorption and realized the meaning of suchness, a state in which there is no phenomenon to be seen. Therefore, the Buddha does not possess the confused conventional state as, for example, someone with cured cataracts has no vision of falling hair or fuzzy images. Thus, the conventional state appears through the power of ignorance and exists relatively to the world. Depending on Buddhahood, the conventional state does not exist, so there can be no primordial wisdom to know it. If the Buddha had cognition of appearances, then he would be seeing the object of delusion and would himself be confused. This would contradict all the sages remaining in the absorption state and so forth. The Noble Profound Representation Sutra says, The complete perfect Buddha always abides in total absorption. Refutation Buddhas do possess omniscient knowledge of the conventional. Those who believe the earlier argument that the Buddha does possess wisdom of the conventional state says that the mind will not be scattered and so forth just by being in a post-meditative state. And so, there is no contradiction with the quotation about always abiding in absorption and so forth. It is not right to assume that one will be confused just by knowing the object of confusion. Even though one understands all the objects of confusion known to others, that mind, which knows all confusion and shows it to be the very cause of temporary status and the liberation of enlightenment of all sentient beings, how could it be confused? Therefore it is said, 
just knowing the confusion, that mind is non-confusion. Others say there is no logical harm in bringing a conventional object into the mind without grasping it as real. Even though Buddhas project the object, he will not be confused. Post-meditative primordial wisdom. Therefore, those who hold the earlier argument that the Buddha does possess wisdom of the conventional state, believing that Buddhas possess post-meditative primordial wisdom, which is called all-knowing. As it is said, formally actualizing reality as it is, without discursive thought, he engages in an unconfused, equipoised state. Later, knowing all conventional knowledge with conceptual thought, he engages in post-meditation in the confusion appearance. The latter opinion, that Buddha does not possess post-meditative primordial wisdom, is expressed in the vast noble door of Accomplishment Sutra. The Tathagata achieves nothing after attaining the direct, complete Buddhahood. This is because there are no objects to be known. Still others say, Some heretics say that liberation is a place to go. When you achieve the completely peaceful state, there is nothing left, like an extinguished fire. Thus all the different opinions have been explained. The Kadampa Position Geshe believes that the nature of the body of the actual perfect, complete Buddha is Dharmakaya. Dharmakaya is the exhaustion of all mistakes, or just a return to the inherent nature, but these are just labels. In reality, Dharmakaya is unborn, free from elaboration. The ornament of Mahayana Sutra says, Liberation is just the exhaustion of confusion. Therefore, the Buddha is Dharmakaya. Since Dharmakaya is unborn and free from elaboration, it cannot possess primordial wisdom. In that case, you may say that this contradicts the two primordial wisdoms as stated in the sutras, but it does not. When the eye consciousness is stimulated by a blue object, one says, I saw blue. Likewise, that primordial wisdom which transforms into the Dharmadhatu is called the wisdom of actualizing reality as it is. This knowledge of actualizing all phenomenon is relative, so it is laid out in dependence on the perceptions of trainees. This system is comfortable. Milarepa's position. The Jetsun Mila's position regarding primordial wisdom. He said, this unfabricated awareness is beyond words and conceptual thoughts, such as existence or non-existence, eternalism or nihilism, and so forth. It will not be contradicted, whatever name is used to express it. Primordial wisdom is also like this. Those who would be expected to be scholars, even if they asked the Buddha himself, I don't think he would say one way or another. Dharmakaya is beyond conception, unborn, free from elaboration. Don't ask me, just look at your mind, indicates that there is no special opinion in Milarepa's system. Therefore, the nature of the Buddha is perfect purification and perfect primordial wisdom. The unsurpassed Tantra says, Buddhahood is indivisible, yet one can categorize it according to its qualities of purity, the two qualities of primordial wisdom and freedom, comparable to the sun and the sky. And the ornament of Mahayana Sutra says, The seeds of the obscurations of afflicting emotions and the obscurations of knowledge, although present for a long time, are fully uprooted and purified by renunciation. Buddhahood is possessed by those with excellent virtuous qualities. Significance of the Name why is one called Buddha? And Buddha in Tibetan is called Sangje. One who is fully awakened, Sang, from ignorance as from sleep, and fully blossomed, Jie. The discriminating wisdom of the two knowledges is called Buddha, Sangje. Thus it is said, 
because of having awakened from the sleep of ignorance and having blossomed the discriminating wisdom into the two knowledges, he is called Buddha. Awakened from the sleep of ignorance is the perfect purification as described earlier. Blossom the discriminating wisdom into the two knowledges means the purification of primordial wisdom as was explained before. Classification The Buddha's forms are classified as three, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. The Golden Light Sutra says, All Tathagatas possess three forms, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. Some scriptures mention two forms, even four or five forms, even though they say that all forms are included in the three. The ornament of Mahayana Sutra says, One should understand that all forms of the Buddha are included in the three. Definition Dharmakaya is the identity of the actual Buddha. The 8,000 stanzas on perfection of wisdom says, One should not see the Buddha as the form bodies. The Tathagata is Dharmakaya. The King of Meditation Absorption Sutra says, One should not see the Victorious One as the form bodies. The two form bodies should be understood to manifest through the combination of these three. A. Magnificent Blessings of the Dharmakaya. B. Projection of the Trainees. And C. Previous Devoted Aspiration Prayers. A. Furthermore, if they appeared only through the magnificent blessings of the Dharmadhatu, then since all sentient beings are pervaded by the Dharmadhatu, all would be liberated without effort and able to see the face of the Buddha. This is not the case. Therefore, they do not appear only by the magnificent blessings of the Dharmadhatu. B. If the form bodies were solely the projection of the trainees, it is an error to project an appearance which does not exist. Since all sentient beings have been acting in this error since beginningless time, then if one attained Buddhahood by depending on this error, all would have attained enlightenment. This is not the case. Therefore, they do not appear solely through the projection of trainees. C. If the form bodies appeared only through devoted aspirational prayers. Has the complete, perfect Buddha mastered devoted aspiration prayer or not? If this was not mastered, then he could not be omniscient. If this was mastered, then all beings should be liberated without effort just by his devoted aspiration prayers, just because the prayers were made without partiality. This is not the case. Therefore, they also do not appear solely through devoted aspiration prayers. Thus, the two form bodies appear through the combination of these three forces. Reasons there are definitely three kayas. It would be out of necessity. Dharmakaya is for one's own benefit, and the two form bodies are for others' benefit. How does Dharmakaya benefit oneself? Obtaining the Dharmakaya is the basis for all good qualities. Good qualities like strength, fearlessness, and so forth gather there as if they had been summoned. Not only does this happen when the Dharmakaya has been obtained, but even those devoted to the Dharmakaya who are slightly, partially, or greatly realized obtain different stages of these good qualities. They respectively obtain small, many, more, and infinite qualities. The supreme worldly experiences, all the perfect powers, clairvoyance and meditative absorption, and so forth, are achieved through devotion to the Dharmakaya. Obscuration, abandonment, clairvoyance, miracle powers, and so forth, all the qualities of Hira Arhats are achieved by slight realization of Dharmakaya. Obscuration, abandonment, meditative absorption, clairvoyance, and so forth, all the qualities of solitary realizer Arhats are achieved by partial realization of Dharmakaya. Obscuration, abandonment, meditative absorption, clairvoyance, and so forth, all the qualities of Bodhisattvas who attained Bhumis 
are achieved by greater realization of Dharmakaya. The two form bodies are presented to benefit others. The Sambhogakaya is shown to the more purified trainees, and the Nirmanakaya is shown to impure trainees. Therefore, it is definite that the Buddha has three forms. Characteristics of the Three Kayas A. Dharmakaya Dharmakaya is merely labeled as an exhaustion of all errors through the realization of the meanings of the all-pervading emptiness of all phenomenon, or as the mere reverse of the nature of confused projection. In reality, it does not possess in any way whatsoever the identification, characteristics, or the designation of Dharmakaya. This is just as Milarepa said. If expressed from another angle, Dharmakaya has eight characteristics, sameness, profundity, permanence, openness, perfection, purity, radiance, and relationship to enjoyment. 1. Sameness. There is no difference between the Dharmakaya of all Buddhas. Profundity. Because it is free from all elaboration, it is difficult to realize. 3. Permanence. It is not compounded. It has no beginning, middle, or end. It is free from birth and death and cessation. 4. Oneness. It is indivisible because the Dharmadhatu and primordial wisdom cannot be differentiated. 5. Perfection. It is unmistaken because it is beyond exaggeration and underestimation. 6. Purity. It is free from the three obscurations. 7. Radiance. There are no discursive thoughts. Only non-conceptual thoughts are projected into the non-conceptual states. 8. Relationship to enjoyment. Embodying the nature of vast good qualities, it is the foundation of the complete enjoyment, Sambhogakaya. The unsurpassed Tantra says, Beginningless, centerless, and endless, completely indivisible, free from the two, free from the three, stainless and concept-free, such is the Dharmadhatu. Understanding of its nature is the vision of the yogin who abides in meditation. The ornament of the Mahayana Sutra says, the nature body is sameness, subtle, and related to enjoyment. B. Sambhogakaya Sambhogakaya also has eight characteristics. Surroundings, field, form, marks, dharma, activity, spontaneity, and naturally non-existent. 1. Surroundings The surrounding retinue of his body are the bodhisattvas abiding in all the bhumis. 2. Field of enjoyment the field in which enjoyment is experienced is the completely pure Buddha field. 3. Form of enjoyment. The body of enjoyment of Buddha Varochana and so forth. 4. Marks. The marks that are possessed by the 32 major and 80 minor marks. 4. Full enjoyment of the Dharma. The full enjoyment of Dharma is the complete Mahayana teaching. 6. Activities. Activities are prophesizing bodhisattvas enlightenment and so forth. 7. Spontaneity. All its activities and so forth are free from effort. Like the supreme Mani gem, it manifests spontaneously. 8. Naturally non-existent. Even though it manifests in various forms and so forth, it's actually like the color of crystal, free from the nature of all diversity. The ornament of the Mahayana Sutra says, Sambhogakaya in all the Buddha fields is differentiated by the gathered surroundings, field, marks, form, complete enjoyment of dharmas and activities. Also, the ornament of clear realization says, being master of the 32 major and 80 minor marks, and because it enjoys the Mahayana teachings, it is called Sambhogakaya of the Sage. 3. Nirmanakaya Nirmanakaya also has eight characteristics. Basis, cause, field, time, nature, 
engaging, maturing, and liberating. 1. Basis. Its basis is the Dharmakaya, which is unmovable. 2. Cause. It arises from the great compassionate wish to benefit all sentient beings. 3. Field. Its fields are the fully pure and the fully impure fields. 4. Time. It is unceasing for as long as the world exists. 5. Nature. It manifests in three forms. The artistic emanation is an expert in all the various arts, such as playing the lute and so forth. The birth emanation manifests various inferior bodies like a rabbit and so forth. The superior emanation descends from the Tushita, enters the mother's womb and so forth, until it passes into Parinirvana. The ornament of Mahayana Sutra says, This emanation body of the Buddha is the great method for full liberation, which manifests consistently as an artist, birth, great enlightenment, and Parinirvana. The unsurpassed Tantra says, Through various forms, apparitional by nature, the one excellently born into the highest birth descends from that realm of great joy, enters the royal womb, and is nobly born on earth, perfectly skilled in every science and craft, delighting in his royal consort's company, renouncing, enduring hardship, going to the place called Enlightenment's very heart. He vanquishes the hosts of Maras. Then, perfect enlightenment, he turns the wheel of Dharma and passes into Nirvana. In all those places, so impure, the Nirmanakaya shows these deeds as long as the worlds endure. 6. Engaging. He induces a variety of ordinary beings to engage in entering the path by creating interest in the three types of nirvana. 7. Maturing. It fully matures all the accumulations of those who have entered the path. 8. Liberating. It liberates those who are fully mature by virtue of the bondage of existence. The unsurpassed Tantra says, This form causes beings to enter into the path of nirvana and become fully mature. These are the eight characteristics of the nirmanakaya. The ornament of clear realization says, The impartial activities of the body, the unceasing nirmanakaya of the sage, variously benefits all sentient beings as long as samsara exists. Special Traits There are three special traits of Buddhahood. A. Equality B. Permanence and C. Appearance A. First, the special traits of equality. The dharmakayas of all Buddhas are inseparable from their basis, the dharmadhatu. Therefore, they are equal. The Sambhogakayas of all Buddhas are inseparable in their realization, therefore they are all equal. The Nirmanakayas of all Buddhas manifest common activities, therefore they are equal. The ornament of Mahayana Sutra says, They are equal in basis, realization, and activities. B. Second, the special trait of permanence. The Dharmakaya is, by nature, permanent because it is the ultimate state free from birth and cessation. The Sambhogakaya is permanent because of its continuous enjoyment of the Dharma. The Nirmanakaya is permanent because of its activities, which manifest again and again. Even though it disappears, even though the stream of continuity ceases, it appears without missing any opportunity. The ornament of Mahayana Sutra says, These are permanent by nature, by unceasing continuity and by continuity of action. C. Third, the special trait of appearance. The Dharmakaya appears through the purification of obscurations of knowledge in the Dharmadhatu. The Sambhogakaya appears through the purification of afflicting emotions. The Nirmanakaya appears through the purification of karma. In chapter 21, Gambopa talks about the activities of the Buddha. First, cultivating the mind of enlightenment, then in the middle, practicing the teachings and the path, and eventually, at the end, attaining the result of Buddhahood, 
All these are done for the sole purpose of dispelling suffering and establishing the happiness of all sentient beings. When one attains Buddhahood, there are no conceptual thoughts or efforts. Therefore, can Buddhas manifest any benefit for sentient beings? Without conceptual thoughts or efforts, Buddhas manifest benefit for sentient beings spontaneously and unceasingly. Explanation of how this occurs. The Summary The body benefits sentient beings without conceptual thoughts. Likewise, the speech and mind also benefit sentient beings without conceptual thoughts. These three comprise the activities of a Buddha. Benefiting sentient beings without conceptual thoughts of body, speech, or mind is explained with examples from the unsurpassed tantras, like Indra, the drum, clouds, Brahma, the sun, a wish-fulfilling gem, space, and earth is the Tathagata. 1. Activities of the body Appearing as Indra This is a simile for how the body benefits sentient beings without conceptual thought. For example, Indra, king of the gods, abides in a victorious palace with a retinue of goddesses. That palace has the nature of clear and clean lapis lazuli, and because of that, Indra's image is reflected outside the palace. From the earth, men and women see the reflections of Indra with all his enjoyments, and they say aspiration prayers that they may also be born there quickly and make effort to develop virtue for that purpose. By that, they are born there after death. The appearance of that reflection has no conceptual thought or movement. Likewise, those who enter into the great purpose, meditating and so forth, would see the body of the perfect Buddha, which is marked by major and minor signs, manifest various activities, walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, giving Dharma teachings, being absorbed in meditation and so forth. By seeing them, they develop devotion and motivation, and then, in order to achieve Buddhahood, they engage in its cause the cultivation of bodhicitta and so forth, and eventually achieve it. The appearance of that body has no conceptual thoughts or movement. It is said, Just as the reflection of the form of the king of gods appears in the clear lapis lazuli ground, so does the reflection of the king of mighty sages form appear in the clear ground, which is being's mind. This is the body benefiting sentient beings without conceptual thought. Activities of speech, like the drum of the gods, this is a simile for how the speech benefits sentient beings without conceptual thought. For example, above the palace of the victorious gods, the drum of the gods, which is called holding the power of Dharma, is established through the power of the gods' previous virtuous actions. Without conceptual thoughts, that drum reminds the heedless gods by sounding the Dharma that composite phenomenon are impermanent, all phenomenon are without self, all the afflicted states are of the nature of suffering, and all cessations are peace. It is said, through the power of the gods' former goodness, the Dharma drum in the divine realms, without effort, location, mental form, or concept, exhorts all the uncaring gods over and over again with its throbs of impermanence, suffering, no self, and peace. Likewise, even though there is no effort or conceptual thought, the speech of the Buddha manifests the teachings depending on the dispositions of the fortunate ones. It is said, like this, the all-pervading Dharmakaya is without effort, and so on. Yet his Buddhist speech permeates all beings without exception, teaching the noble doctrine to those of good fortune. This is the speech benefiting sentient beings without conceptual thoughts. 3. Activities of the Mind Like a cloud, this is a simile for how the wisdom mind benefits sentient beings without conceptual thoughts. For example, in the summer, clouds gather in the sky without effort, causing drops and so forth to grow perfectly through its rain falling on the ground without conceptual thought. It is said, 
The rainy season's clouds continually and effortlessly downpour vast amounts of water onto the earth and are the cause for good and bountiful crops. Likewise, the activity of the wisdom mind ripens the trainee's crop of virtue through the rainfall of dharma without conceptual thought. It is said, Likewise, clouds of compassion, without any conceptualization, rain down the waters of the victor's noble teachings and cause the harvest of virtue for sentient beings. This is the wisdom mind benefiting sentient beings without conceptual thought. Like Brahma, for example, without moving from the Brahma palace, Brahma, king of the gods, can be seen in all the god realms. Likewise, Buddha, while not moving from the Dharmakaya, benefits all trainees by manifesting the twelve deeds and so forth. Thus it is said, without effort and without leaving the Brahma heaven, Brahma in any divine abode can manifest his presence. Similarly, without ever departing from the Dharmakaya, the great victor effortlessly manifests his emanations in any sphere to the fortunate. Like the sun. For example, the radiant light of the sun opens lotuses and so forth, an infinite diversity of flowers, at one time without conceptual thought. Likewise, the radiant light of the Dharma opens the virtuous lotus of the mind of infinite families in the dispositions of trainees while without conceptual thought and without effort. It is said, the sun, without ideation, by its own light's radiation, simultaneously makes lotuses bloom and other things ripen. Similarly, without ideation, the Tathagata's sun pours forth rays of noble Dharma onto those lotuses who are beings to be trained. Or in other words, the image of the sun is simultaneously reflected in all the clear water vessels at one time. Likewise, the Buddha is simultaneously reflected in all the pure vision trainees. It is said, Due to this, the infinite reflections of the sun of the Sugata appear in all the water vessels of pure trainees simultaneously, like the wish-fulfilling jewel. For example, even though the wish-fulfilling jewel has no conceptual thought, it manifests whatever one needs if one prays to it. Likewise, depending on the Buddha accomplishes all the purposes associated with the various wishes of hearers and so forth, it is said, A wish-fulfilling gem, though thought-free, fulfills simultaneously all the wishes of those within its sphere of activity. Likewise, though those of varying aspirations hear various teachings, when relying on the wish-fulfilling Buddha he does not so conceive. Likewise, the loot, space, and earth are similes for benefiting sentient beings without conceptual thought. A few hundred years after the Jetsan Milarepa, in the 14th century, one of the great masters of meditation and composition of Tibetan Buddhism was active. I'm referring to the great Longchen Rabjampa, also known as Longchenpa. Longchenpa was born in the upper Draw Valley of south-central Tibet to a family of yogins of epic descent, learning reading, writing, medicine, and astrology before even entering the monastery. He received ordination at age 12. By the time he was 25, he studied with over 20 masters on all aspects of Buddhism and had spent many years in retreat and had visions of many deities receiving predictions. At age 25, he met his main teacher, Kumaradza, who conferred the entire collection of tantric empowerments and instructions on him, making Longchenpa his primary heir. He had a brilliant teaching career and continued to receive transmissions and treasure teachings from deities and visions. He spent some years in Bhutan, due to political turmoil in Tibet, and established lineages and training centers there, some of which remain today, and upon his return to Tibet, established a hermitage where he composed hundreds of exegeses on existing texts of the time, and writing his own compositions, consisting of instructions to practitioners, 
poems about his realizations, and other testaments of his understanding of the Dharma. Nyosho Kempo mentioned that Longchenpa signed over 300 works in varieties of names, including Solchem Lodro, Longchen Rabjam, Pema Ledritsel, and Longsel Drime. Most notably, Longchenpa is known as having appeared to Rigzen Jigme Lingpa in a series of visions in 1759, bestowing on him what would later be called the Longchen Ningtig, a dharma or revealed treasure text cycle that would be the central focus of Nyingma practitioners, thus contributing to the revival of the school in the 18th and 19th century. Longchenpa was truly one of the greatest scholars, meditators, and composers of his time, and the true level of his mastery may have been overlooked during his lifetime. But due to his vast corpus of writings and proven efficacy of his instructions, he is held in the highest of esteems amongst all Tibetan Buddhist orders, and without a doubt is considered one of the Buddhas of our age. One of his most popular texts, the Finding Rest Trilogy, begins with his Finding Rest in the Nature of Mind, and has a great amount of detail about many, many aspects of the Dharma, but about the Buddha, I found some more than relevant material. So reading from The Great Chariot, which is an auto-commentary to finding rest in the nature of mind, will proceed. Chapter 13, The Fruition, The Great Self-Existence Now, according to the presentation of the great miracle, from the way of attaining peace in the divisions of the Kayas, there is a brief explanation of the first. At the time of the pure, ultimate wisdom of the path, that wisdom is gathered together as the continuity of the three realms to be abandoned. These realms have the aspect of grasping and fixation, which are of the nature of conceptual examination and analytical discernment. By mind and mental contents together with Alaya, entering into the Dharmadhatu, the time of the fourth, space and wisdom are non-dual and of one taste. Possession of the two purities then pacifies complexity. The phenomenon of motion producing mind and mental contents, included under the aspect of grasping and fixation, are at the level of the three realms. The two truths of the essence of wisdom says, mind and mental contents are of the three realms. These thoughts are superimposed upon phenomenon. According to that, the eight consciousnesses in Alaya are pacified and dissolved in the luminous nature of mind, naturally pure dharmadhatu. At that time, the ground of primordial space and the wisdom of the things to be dissolved are non-dually mixed. Their one taste is ultimate dharmakaya, possessing the two purities. The two complete purities are purity of the primordial undefiled nature and purity from incidental stains. The letter of the drop of Amrita says, Like water poured into water and oil extracted by oil are the simple suchness of knowables mixed with inseparable wisdom. This is called Dharmakaya, the nature of all Buddhas. Whenever there is a gap in the continuous entering of mental contents, there is the single taste of the great wisdom. Yaprajna Paramita Sanchayagata says, Having burned away the dry firewoods of knowables is peace, the Dharmakaya of the victorious ones. Then there is no birth and there is no cessation. Cessation of mind produces perceptions of the Kayas. At that time, Dharmakaya, free from the extremes of complexity, manifests as the great peace in completely unborn luminosity. Completely unborn, within the essence of luminosity, this is like the new moon, subsided into space. The lotus of the subtle wisdom remains in the space of the sky. With no conceptualization, peace has been obtained. This is the pure ultimate. When we reach the luminous state of peace, the space of Datu, 
within the sky that is the new moon of wisdom, the inner luminosity of omniscience. This is the support or basis of arising of the Buddha qualities. At this point, aside from that, the phenomena or appearance of Sambhogakaya do not exist externally from the viewpoint of those who are to be tamed. This is the time of solitary Dharmakaya, transcending the defilements of the four extremes. The new moon is in the sky, but its luminosity is invisible to others, so the profound and subtle wisdom of Dharmakaya is gathered into space. The appearance of wisdom says, Gathered into space, though it is not seen, it is not non-existent because of being subtle. The former play of dharmas, like the invisible moon, is peaceful and profound, as well as very subtle. Within the extensive explanation of the divisions are the changeless vajrakaya, the kaya of manifest enlightenment, the peaceful dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, and kaya of emanation, of everything whatever. Now from the five sections there is the changeless vajrakaya, the kaya of the manifestation of enlightenment, the peaceful dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. First there is the changeless Vajrakaya, beyond the complex objects of thought and expression. Conceptionless Dharmata is changeless throughout the three times. This nature, in its aspects of primordial purity, has been expressed by the name, the changeless Vajrakaya. In this ultimate Dharmata, the space of the ground is exhausted. The changeless nature of the ground, primordially luminous Dharmadhatu, the final destination of the Buddhas is called the unchanging Vajrakaya. The net of wisdom says, The purity of space is called the Vajrakaya. Transcending thought, it is changeless and indestructible. The Kaya of the manifestation of enlightenment is the essence of ultimate renunciation and realization. Thus, because the nature has become completely pure of the two obscurations which are merely incidental, the ocean of omniscience regarding all dharmas is reached. Due to all the qualities having become complete, those of renunciation that is also realization, dealing with the aspects of perfection of power and so on, this is called the kaya of manifesting enlightenment. This is the ground of arising of Buddha's exclusive qualities. At the time of the ultimate luminous nature of mind, the aspect possessing the two purities has the qualities of realization, these are the ten powers, four fearlessnesses, eighteen exclusive dharmas of the Buddhas, the great compassion, the thirty-seven factors of enlightenment, and so forth, as discussed above. This aspect, also possessing the powers of supreme knowledge and kindness, is the kaya of manifestation of enlightenment. It is the ground of arising of all the exclusive qualities of the Buddha. The net of wisdom says, To separate all stains, it undergoes purification. When blossoming qualities expand into perfection, because of their non-dual mixing, these are in perfect union. Thus it is called the kaya of manifesting enlightenment. The seventeen refuges says, Because it is purified of ignorance and sleep, because the mind expands as all that can be known, Buddhahood blossoms forth like the petals of a lotus. The Uttara Tantra says, Buddhahood is completely inseparable. Yet purified dharmas are fully discriminated. Wisdom is like the sun, and space is like the dualistic marks that are left behind. The two are made inseparable, luminous aspects. It is like the pervasive river Ganges being beyond the sand grains in its bed. Buddhahood is possession of all dharmas. The nature of Buddhahood is unestablished. As for the universal and incidental obscurations of kleshas and knowables, 
are said to be like the clouds floating in the sky. The cause of being free of the two obscurations is the twofold wisdom of Buddhahood. No thought in its post-meditation are called wisdom. These are what are called by the name of wisdom. There are four sections. 1. Explanation of the nature. As for the third kaya, the peaceful dharmakaya, in the state of space beyond extremes, abides the very subtle wisdom, the essence of the kayas and wisdoms, the mere aspect of the moon subsiding into the space of the sky. Because such a mind does not enter into knowables, there is also no apprehension of a knowing mind who grasps them. There is an inner luminosity, like the moon, when it has completely subsided into space. Supreme but subtle wisdom, not dulled in its dissolving. As the essence and ground of arising of the aspects of omniscience, from this omniscient rupakaya proliferates. A treasury of good qualities is made to appear for others. The very subtle wisdom is utterly pacified. Therefore has been called a peaceful dharmakaya. The element or datu, the space which is the nature of the mind, is inseparably mixed in one taste with wisdom. At this time, which is like that of the new moon, the hosts of complexities are fully pacified. Since the aspect of omniscience is not obstructed, wisdom is said to be not dulled in its dissolving. The wisdom of inner luminosity, the aspect of meditation, is where the wisdom of outer luminosity, the essence of proliferation, is produced. This special inner wisdom of non-thought, in which the object and perceiver are not fixated as two, is called the peaceful dharmakaya. The guru of miracle says, The very subtle wisdom, the inner luminosity, the perceptionless ground of arising, is known as dharmakaya. The Uttara Tantra says, Spotless, complete non-thought, this is the realm of yogins. Since the essence of dharmadhatu is pure, it is luminous. Nihilistic emptiness is not said to be dharmakaya, because it is not insight wisdom. When dharmata is maintained to be dharmakaya, that refers to the vajrakaya as already explained. 2. It is being beyond the four extremes, because it does not enter into objects. Regarding these three kayas, these are never found among external objects, as something very subtle, they are not nothingness. They are beyond the limits of the four extremes, such as the views of eternalism and nihilism, as the state of prajna paramita unexpressed by speech or thought. This empty nature, where all conceptions are pacified, is realized by no one except the victorious ones. These kayas are without thought. These three kayas, abiding as luminosity in space, exist as the support of the rising of external luminosity. They are not eternal objects, because they are not objects of perception or thought. They are not nothingness, because they are individual and personal wisdom. They do not exist in the extremes of both or neither, because neither eternalism and nihilism are established, and therefore both those extremes are refuted. Since the kayas are the ground of arising, the form kayas appear to the eyes of the Buddha's children, dwelling on the bhumis and the host of sentient beings. They hear the audible speech of the Dharma, smell the fragrance of the discipline of the noble ones, experience the taste of the Dharma, and touch the bliss of samadhi. By the prajna of examination and analysis, they ponder such dharmas and produce their causes of arising. But those other than the Buddhas do not realize the wisdom of inner luminosity in which these manifestations arise from that place like the moon which has subsided into space. The Uttara Tantra says, 
undefiled, pervasive, having indestructible dharmas, steady, peaceful, eternal, this is changeless existence. The sky-like ultimate state, which is the Tathagata, is the cause of experiencing the objects of the six senses. True forms are viewed as unborn. As for good discussion, its pure sound is heard, and of the Tathagata's discipline, we smell its pure fragrance. The taste of the great noble one's holy dharma, we touch experience and samadhi, knowing their bliss. The way which is profound, which is that of one's own essence, is the cause of realization. When subtly contemplated, the one who produces absolute bliss, the Tathagata, is one who, like the sky, is separate from reasons. Also, these which are the supports of self and other benefit possess such qualities as being beyond conception. These are objects of the wisdom of omniscience. Thus they are not objects of the three Buddha knowledges. For those who have attainment of this body of wisdom, that which is inconceivable will be realized. Since it is subtle, it is not an object of hearing. Since it is absolute, it is not something that is thought. 3. Its abiding as the peace of Dharmadhatu. The aspects of possession of this wisdom is called the teacher of perfect mastery, Samantabhadra. As for this, though in this utterly birthless palace of Dharmadhatu eternally dwell the conqueror Buddhas of the three times, as they are all Dharmata, they do not see each other. This is called abiding in the profoundly peaceful nature. It consists of the single space of realization, known as the deepest meaning of all the victorious ones, as space in a jar will be the same as what it was. At the time of inner luminosity in the field of Dharmata, the teacher, Samantabhadra, abiding in the palace of the simplicity of Dharmadhatu, is one with the realization of all the Buddhas of the three or four times. Mixed like the earlier and latter space in a vase, at this time of primordial inseparability, abiding as conceptionless, perceptionless dharmata, having become of one taste, the Buddhas do not see each other's nature, that itself. That is because they abide externally in self-existing transcendence of seer and seen. The secret essence says, It is free from one, and also free from many. Suchness that is free from center as well as limit, only non-existent appearance of naturally present wisdom is not to be seen, even by the Buddhas. 4. The Teaching of the Assembly of Dharmakaya Wisdoms As for its manner, this is empty dharmata, the goal of prajna, the accumulation of wisdom and also the stage of fulfillment. This is the goal of the accumulation of wisdom. By meditating on prajna, the completion stage or emptiness, obscurations of the nature of mind are cleared away. Then the inner luminosity, the dharmakaya, the perfected space of the datu, without center or limit, is made to manifest. The precious garland says, The king of dharmakaya, briefly told, is born from the accumulation of wisdom. That is the meaning being explained. Now as for teaching of the fourth kaya, the spontaneously present sambhogakaya, as for the space-like datu of inner luminosity, from this comes the self-experience of sambhogakaya, having the five perfections, those of time and place, along with those of teacher, dharma, and retinue. From within the space of inner luminosity, dharmata, comes the experience of Sambhogakaya, possessing the five certainties, the external luminosity of self-appearance. The teachers are the regents, the principal ones of the five families. As empty form, these appearances of Buddhahood are not the same as others. 
the palaces and so forth of the fields are established from the fundamental luminosity of self-experience. If such things are examined, none of their individuating characteristics exist. The text at this point gives a vivid description of what are called the peaceful or mild and fierce Buddhas of the Sambhogakaya Mandala, and since I've made certain commitments and these are sacred and easily misunderstood or misconstrued images of this highest realm or expression of reality, I'm going to skip this section. But the following gives bits of information about the characteristics of the most rarefied and advanced experience that reality has to offer. The text continues. The body practice mandalas of Guya Samaja, Hevajra, Chakra Samvara, and so forth as many as are taught in the Anuttara Tantras, are self-appearances of Sambhogakaya, and not appearances for others. Some say that these complexities of the mandalas of wrathful ones, which exist for the purpose of obtaining obstructing spirits and agents of perversion, are nirmanakayas, rather than part of the mandala of the field of Akanishta. Since they are projected self-appearance mandalas of these obstructing spirits, they are like dreams. Now as for the final summary, the self-displays of the great appearance that are the self-appearances of Sambhogakaya are the fields of the five perfections. Since all these are only self-appearances, for the reason that they are neither good nor bad, they emanate in abundance of bright and brilliant rays, they shimmer and lucidly stream, and are brilliantly sparkling. This is what is experienced by the leaders of beings. One of them sees another, and then they express their praise." The principal and retinue deities of the Buddha fields, appearing as the external luminosity of wisdom, are neither good nor bad, like good and bad dreams collected in one continuum. Though the principal deities and their retinues may appear, they are not really either good nor bad. Since they are real as internally existing realization, the arising of the fields, palaces, lights, the principal and retinue deities, and so forth, are therefore completely obscured play included within the single continuum of unobscured Buddhahood. Moreover, these abide as the radiant mind of complete non-thought, the silence of the great freedom from speech and expression, and the resplendent clarity of the kaya of great brilliance. These are therefore the self-appearance of the mandalas of the eye that sees external appearances purely. Since all the Buddhas see each other without obstruction, the Buddhas each praise the other's good qualities, these appearances are obscured even for the tenth bhumi. But even pure students do not have the power to see these pleasant Buddha fields that are everywhere arrayed. Even the bodhisattvas, from the first through the tenth bhumi, do not see the Sambhogakaya self-appearance of Buddhahood. This is because they are still not free of all obscurations. They are not able to see these realms, nor the Buddha qualities and Buddha activity and so forth, limitlessly filling the whole of space. This is because, except for the qualities of their own bhumi, they have not attained the pure mental eye that sees all good qualities. The Uttara Tantra says, The realm of Buddhahood and the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha qualities and Buddha activities, are unthinkable even to the purest sentient beings. This is a realm belonging only to the leaders. Also, since it is not the pure realm, it is part of the absolute. Since it is not conceptual, it is beyond example. Since it is not within the mind, it is not in samsara or peace. Even the noble ones cannot conceive of the conqueror's objects. Also, with the qualities like the highest wisdom and great compassion, the victorious one's perfect qualities are unthinkable. The ultimate way it is with these self-arising ones, by even empowered great rishis, cannot be understood. Well, who does realize it? 
Self-appearance as empty form is unthinkable. It is the self-experience of conquerors of the three times. When the prajna enters into the central channel, yogins see nothing else but the empty reflections of self-appearance, though even the bodhisattvas do not see the fields that appear to the Buddhas, for the Buddhas themselves they continuously appear. That is because they are the intrinsically and spontaneously present appearances of the space of the Datu. The secret essence says, Within that same bindu of wisdom is that wisdom bindu's appearance, inconceivable and unthinkably excellent. There are the perfect, unthinkable, utterly pure Buddha fields throughout the ten directions and four states of time. Here the causeless palaces of the divinities are the circle of ornament and the music of the feast. When all these mandalas, beyond the scope of thought, have all been apprehended, there is perfect delight. The meaning of the vast teachings arising at that time exists as the self-appearance of this harmonious wisdom. The bindu of wisdom is the pure sight of the Buddha eye. The reciting the names of Manjushri says, The single spotless eye of wisdom. As for that wisdom bindu's appearance, the fields of self-appearance are of luminously radiant rainbow light. As for its being inconceivable, such appearances appear only to other Buddhas. They are unthinkably excellent because they are measureless. The limitless pure fields are the Buddha fields of self-appearance. The Buddhas see one another there. The ten directions are the east and so forth. The perfect self-appearances of the four times are those of the Buddhas of past, future, and present, and the uncertain time of the Buddhas dwelling in Akanishta. The causeless palaces and so forth are in the fields of luminous self-appearance. As for the meaning of the vast teachings, the meaning spoken only by that same inexpressible speech is understood. As for the harmonious wisdom, the principal deity and the retinue have one realization and one essence, and these are inseparably in harmony. As for the self-appearance, though these things appear to the eyes of the Buddhas themselves, they do not appear to others, the bodhisattvas, and so forth. That is their characteristic. The fifth kaya, nirmanakaya, leads the Buddha children, noble ones, and so on, to the land of peace. Therefore it is called the teacher who is the precious guide. Moreover, from the Sambhogakaya reflections appearing to the excellent students and the various emanations appearing to ordinary ones, the first appear having the five certainties, the place of Akanishta and so forth. The second are craftsmen and so forth, who benefit ordinary beings, Shravakas and Pracheka Buddhas. From where do these two kinds of emanations arise? They arise from the field of self-appearance of Sambhogakaya. Coming from within this into the world of students, here are the different taming teachers that appear, the self-existing, taming, and various nirmanakayas. These three are producers of benefit for beings. From the state of self-appearance, bodies proliferate again to benefit sentient beings. Here there are self-existing, taming, and various nirmanakayas. The extended explanation of the three kinds of nirmanakayas, the self-existing, taming, and various nirmanakayas. The teachers of Sambhogakaya are reflections that first appear to bodhisattvas, like the self-appearances of Sambhogakaya, these are not solid or real, like reflections in a mirror. From the explanation of the way of the five perfections, as for the teacher as self-existing Nirmanakaya. The teachers of the self-existing Nirmanakaya exist as forms of the various Buddhas of the five families, such as Varochana, Akshobhya, and the rest. In their five fields, Akanishta, Abhirati, Srimat, Sukhavati, and also Karma Prasidi. The major and minor marks are blazing with rays of light. 
by their rising in countless peaceful and wrathful forms, beings to benefits are spontaneously performed. The pure bodhisattvas also are made to attain the five kayas and five wisdoms, depending on their having purified the five kleshas, the teachers of the five families, the fields, the dharma, and the retinue and so forth appear to them. In the center in Akanishta, the highest realm is the teacher Varochana. In the east in Abhirati, the realm of true joy is Vajrasattva. In the south in Srimat, the realm endowed with splendor is Ratnasambhava. In the west in Sukhavati, the realm of great bliss is Amitabha. In the north is Karma Prasiddhi, the realm of supreme accomplishment of action and Amoga Siddhi. Their bodies, blazing with the major and minor marks, appear like the moon in water as the self-appearing Sambhogakaya. The Uttara Tantra says, Like the form of the moon in a cloudless sky, autumn rain clouds and lakes are visible. Like that, the form of the Lord and the host of the Buddha's children are seen in the completely wakeful mandala. As to how, the Abhisamaya Lamkara says, As for the thirty-two that are major marks, as well as the eighty that are minor marks, because of enjoying the wealth of Mahayana, are said to be the sage's enjoyment body. As for how from inner luminosity the self-appearing Sambhogakaya appears to the bodhisattvas, as a reflection like the moon in space, a second Sambhogakaya satisfies those bodhisattvas. The Nirmanakayas, or emanation bodies, supported within completely pure space, are called far and near. The Uttara Tantra says, These are the thirty-two qualities that satisfy when seen. They depend on the two form bodies, that of emanation and perfect expression of Dharma. For those near and far from purity, seeing this, there are two aspects, in the world and the conqueror's mandala, like the moon in the sky and the water. The two aspects are the Sambhogakaya of pure space seen on the level of Buddhahood, and the reflected Sambhogakaya seen by the Bodhisattvas. Subsequently, the supreme Nirmanakaya ornamented with similar major and minor marks is joined to the sight of individual beings, etc. So the following section labeled Wisdom, this refers to what are called the five Buddha families. And there are many descriptions and definitions about what exactly the five families are. A really good one I found is Chogyam Trungpa's Introduction to Tantra and Lama Sotram Alioni's Wisdom Rising, Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine. And I can't really say that I have a complete grasp on the implications of these five families, but in short, the five families represent the five aspects of primordial wisdom. Master Hoinung touched on these a little bit before, briefly, uh, but Long Chimpa goes into more detail. So the text goes on. The short teaching. The Sambhogakaya appearing to the Bodhisattvas has the five natures of the five wisdoms. Each self-existing teacher has all of the five wisdoms. This occurs by having the other four as a retinue. The five are the Dharmadhatu and the mirror-like wisdoms, those of equality and discriminating awareness, and finally the wisdom that is all-accomplishing. They are all of one taste, complete in a single state. For the five teachers, there are the five sets of the five wisdoms. Twenty-five are possessed in all. They do not move from the continuity of a single nature. Thus Varochana chiefly possesses the Dharmadhatu wisdom. Akshobhya, the mirror-like wisdom, Ratnasambhava, the wisdom of equality, Amitabha, the discriminating awareness wisdom, and Amogasiddhi, the all-accomplishing wisdom, but each also possesses the other four wisdoms as a retinue. The Extended Explanation From the Five Sections, the Dharmadhatu Wisdom What are these wisdoms, as for the first? By pacifying ignorance into space, there is simple, space-like wisdom, 
Dharmadhatu wisdom is utterly motionless, transcending complex extremes of grasping and fixation. The Sutra of the Levels of Buddhahood says, As for the Dharmadhatu wisdom, for example, if everything has gone into the form of space, though it exists in some sense, its nature is inexpressible. It is of one taste with no variety. Similarly, in the Dharmadhatu wisdom, all knowables exist inexpressibly without variety in one taste. As for the second wisdom, mirror-like wisdom, as the luminous empty source, it is the great place of arising of all the later wisdoms. Alaya Vijnana is the ground of arising and proliferation of all the other consciousnesses. The wisdom of anger, subsiding into space, is the ground of arising of the remaining three. Without defilements of grasping and fixation, it is like the surface of a clean mirror. The same text says, As for the mirror-like wisdom, for example, although reflections of things appear in the surface of a mirror, those things do not really exist. This appearance is effortless, and such things have no conditional formations at all. Similarly, though the various reflections of omniscience arise within the mirror-like wisdom, they do not exist, are effortless, and are unconditioned. The Mahayana Sutra Lamkara says, The mirror-like wisdom is completely immovable. The three wisdoms that come later all depend on it the wisdoms of equality and discrimination, and the wisdom that is all-accomplishing. The Wisdom of Equality Within the equality wisdom, all the dharmas are equal. Here samsara and nirvana are non-dual. This is the equality of the great perfection. By pride being pacified into space, the equality of self and other is known, and samsara and nirvana are non-dual. The Sutra of the Levels of Buddhahood says, in the wisdom of equality, all dharmas are apprehended as markless equality, so that pleasure and pain are of one taste, therefore they are established as equality or equanimity. The former text says, The wisdom of equality, as found in sentient beings, is maintained to be the purity of meditation. As for non-dwelling, remaining in a state of peace, this is maintained to be the wisdom of equality. Discriminating Wisdom for discriminating wisdom, objects are known distinctly. The visions of nature and extent are completely pure. By the subsiding of passion into space, discriminating awareness wisdom knows the empty nature of knowables as it is, and knows the extent of all the essences of various appearances along with their causes and effects. The above sutra says, As for discriminating awareness wisdom, for example, in the realm of the world, bodies of land, the sun, the moon, and so forth are discriminated. Similarly, discriminating awareness wisdom truly discriminates all the world transcending perfections with their causes and effects and discriminates the Shravakas, Pracheka Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas. The Mahayana Sutra Lamkara says, As for the wisdom of discriminating awareness, perceptions of all knowables are not obstructed at all. The occurrence of various samadhis and dharanis are like nothing else than having found a treasure. As for this, within the mandala of samsara, because it teaches all the connections of everything, every kind of doubt is totally cut through. There is a great descent of the excellent reign of dharma. All-accomplishing wisdom All-accomplishing wisdom is perfect Buddha activity. It is not obstructed by knowing everything all the time. By the subsiding of envy into space, as for the wisdom that unremittingly acts to accomplish benefit for sentient beings, the same sutra says, As for the all-accomplishing wisdom, for example, the actions of body, speech, and mind of sentient beings are accomplished. Likewise, as for the all-accomplishing wisdom, 
the purposes of body, speech, and mind of sentient beings are spontaneously established. The former text says, As for the wisdom that is all accomplishing, in all the variety of all the different realms, by immeasurable emanations beyond the scope of thought, it accomplishes all the goals of sentient beings. The Dharma and Retinue Beings on the ten bumis are the retinue of students. The Dharma is samadhi with radiation of light. When the mind rises cleansed of the obscurations of these levels, miserliness and the rest, the victorious ones, are seen. When we can see the distinction of purity of these teachers, and ourselves as we are now, that purifies obscuration. Thus we establish ourselves in universal light. This is accomplished as if our wonderful reflection had been shown to us within a perfect mirror. The perfect retinue are the bodhisattvas of the ten bumis. The small commentary says, Together with the bodhisattvas dwelling on the great bumis, they have the joy of enjoyment of the Mahayana Dharma and of faultlessness. Since they experience happiness without faults, therefore theirs is the body of enjoyment, the Sambhogakaya of the Buddha Bhagavat. Moreover, the perfect Dharma is the Mahayana, made to appear by emanating rays of light. As by looking in a mirror, we remove dirt from our faces, those bodhisattvas, by looking at the teacher of Sambhogakaya, see the obscurations of their own level, and then gradually purify avarice and so forth. Having looked at the teacher and seen the teacher's superior purity, as the dharmas marked by the symbols of understanding arise within them, they are blessed again. By rays of light being emanated, their obscurations are cleared away. The secret essence says, In the best, highest place of Akanisha, Kaya has the mode of Vairochana. None of the bodhisattva retinues ever speak with speech so excellent. By kaya, dharmas are taught and evaluated, as if they were being shown within a mirror. All the evil color of things is cleared away, once the retinue has looked at kaya. The measureless obscurations of enlightenment appear in kaya, as if they were in a mirror. Then the ten bumis are gradually purified. True, unsurpassable Buddhahood is attained. The Time the time continues until all beings are liberated. The field of Sambhogakaya always presents itself. The inexhaustible wheel of the ornament lasts for as long as there are bodhisattvas dwelling on the ten bumis who have not attained enlightenment. It always continuously remains. The Madhyamaka Vitara says, until beings are liberated, it is always there. The Uttara Tantra says, the Lord of Dharma has overcome the Mara of death, since there is no nature the world's eternal protector. Distinguishing what is to be purified by the field and teacher. Varochana. As to how, though students of certain nature among the five families, when their predominant ignorance has been removed, the field is Akanishta and the teacher Varochana. The Dharma is Dharmadhatu wisdom, completely pure. As defilements of the five kleshas are purified in bodhisattvas by stages, the first appearing of the five teachers and dharmas at the time of abandoning the defilement of ignorance is Varochana, with the Dharma of Dharmadhatu wisdom, which is heard in Akanishta. Those of the other four families, as to how, just by so, removing aggression, there is the field of Akshobhya, by removal of pride, there is the field of Ratnasambhava, by removal of desire, there is the field of Amitabha, by removing jealousy, the field of Amogasiddhi. For aggression, the dharma of mirror-like wisdom of Akshobhya is taught. For pride, the wisdom of equality of Ratnasambhava. For passion, the discriminating awareness wisdom of Amitabha. Jealousy is purified by teaching the all-accomplishing wisdom of Amogasiddhi. 
For those on the ten bhumis, it is taught that there are five transformations of the five dharmas of the five families. At the time of the path of seeing, the ignorance of imputed false conceptions is transformed into the dharmadhatu wisdom. Attaining the first bhumi, supremely joyful, we see varochana. On the three of the lesser path of meditation, transforming pride into the wisdom of equanimity, we see ratnasambhava. On the three of the middle path of meditation, transforming all kinds of passion into discriminating awareness wisdom, we see Amitabha. On the greater, the eighth bhumi, the seeds of aggression, the pain of conceptualization and alaya vijnana are transformed into the mirror-like wisdom, so that we attain complete non-thought and see akshobhya. On the ninth and tenth bhumis, as we purify the seeds of jealousy, the field of the five gates are purified by the four modes of genuine individual awareness. Perfect Buddha activity produces benefit for sentient beings. The all-accomplishing wisdom is attained. Seeing Amoga City, we are empowered by great light rays. This is the perfection of the great deeds of the Buddhas. The miraculous awakening says, By mastery of the pure levels, with perfection of the five teachers, the five dharmas and their five wisdoms, we go to enlightenment. The commentary describes what this is like. The Actual Field by the distinction between the teacher and retinue, there is half-emanation. By appearance for others of the field of the five families, and appearance of the teacher, as for how benefit is produced for the bodhisattvas. Since, regarding a teacher, in the realm of Sambhogakaya, the retinue and such are other than the teacher, for this reason not everything is Sambhogakaya. Such half-emanation is self-existing Nirmanakaya. This appears for sentient beings who are purified, but for the noble ones who are dwelling on the bhumis, those who are to be tamed are not other than themselves. So it is called half-emanated nirmanakaya. The genuine field of sambhogakaya, the perfection of being without good and bad, is always changeless. The reflected sambhogakaya appearing to the bodhisattvas, showing the major and minor marks and so forth, appears to be other than the field and retinue and so forth. Therefore it is included within the appearance of the ten bhumis, and is called half-emanated Sambhogakaya. This is taught in the Tantra, the wedding of the sun and moon, and so forth. It is also called half-emanation, because the field does not appear to be other for the bodhisattvas of the ten bhumis. Though Sambhogakaya appears, since really it is not other than self-appearance, its reflection is a half-appearing simulacrum, and so it is called half-emanation. By emanating with the nature of self-appearance, it is also called a naturally existing Nirmanakaya. The Four Peaceful Fields These fields are alike in their delightful palaces. They are built on the seven precious substances. They emanate rays of light to all of the directions. Countless Buddha children are born from lotus flowers. Everything that is desired falls like rain. Throughout the four times, the sound of Dharma rings like sleigh bells. These are the emanations of a peaceful nature. In the fields of the five families, on the ground of the seven precious substances, Divine palaces, brilliant with rays of light, are adorned with garlands of jewels. From bells and palm trees, dharma sounds of emptiness, marklessness, and so forth, unheard of before, arise by themselves and pacify harmful kleshas. As pools of water adorned with the eight virtues emanate like the play of fountains, the torments of the kleshas are cleared away. A rain of all that is desired falls from the sky and so forth. The power and enlightenment of the Buddhas is adorned by the immeasurable display that arises because of the wondrously arisen, virtuous roots of the Bodhisattvas. This display of the good qualities of the undisturbed fields, Sukhavati and so forth, is extensively explained in the sutras. 
as these qualities are nothing but the appearances of their own virtuous minds, those maintaining the conception that they are other are impure. When they try to cross over to somewhere else, they never get there. As from virtuous habitual patterns, good dreams arise. The self-appearances of the bodhisattvas accord with the half-emanations of the Buddhas. The secret essence says, A wish-fulfilling tree or wishing gem, and a rising of everything that is desired, these do not exist substantially, but supported by the merit of one's mind. The wondrous miracle, wondrous marvelous dharma, does not come from any other existence. From prajna, independence on upaya, these arise like a fetus in the body. The celestial field. As the peaceful self-arising nirmanakaya appears to the bodhisattvas dwelling on the bhumis. Likewise, there are countless wrathful mandalas, celestial realms that emanate heaps of clouds of dakinis, the field of the five families of glorious herukas, they fully appear to those who accomplish secret mantra. Nowadays this is called the celestial realm of bliss. It is highly praised by the learned and accomplished. The self-appearance of inner luminosity arises as the luminous mandala of the wrathful ones of the five families. This is like the reflection of the moon appearing here. For individuals dwelling on the levels of vijidara, of the secret mantra, and power over life, for the insight holders of Mahamudra, the five poisons are abandoned. Because of that, from the self-arising appearance of the five kayas and five wisdoms, when ignorance is tamed, the mandala of the wrathful ones of the Tathagata family, the Buddha Heruka, appears in Akanishta. Having traveled there, Dakas and Dakinis and lords of yogins, who have the same fortune as other Vijidatas, enjoy the feast within the abundance of the view and action of Mantrayana. Similarly, in the Vajra field, there is a display of the mandala of the field of Vajraharuka, in the Ratna field of Ratnaharuka, in the Padma field of Padmaharuka, and in the Karma field of Karmaharuka realm. There is the companionship of accomplished Dakinis, being of the celestial realm, of the earthly beings born in the pure fields and so forth, who are of equal fortune with the assembly of Vajrayogini. Giving assistance in the field of the moment of death, the wrathful ones invite with heaps of clouds of parasols, victory banners, and music. These are seen by the Vijayadatta gurus, and they are drawn in. The five places classified as those of Vijayadattas are called the celestial realms of great bliss. These Vijayadattas are equal fortune with those who have attained the Buddha fields by the Bodhisattva Bhumis. Each field has realization of the perfect Dharma, teacher, retinue, view, and accomplishment of Samadhi, from which no other is conceivable. The precious ocean says, as they appear to those who are dwelling on the Bhumis, the fields of the wrathful ones appear to the Vijayadatas, with all the great feasts of good qualities of the celestial realm. They are then adorned by the marks of accomplishment, and the signs and marks of attaining the city all appear. The Vajragurus abide as Vijayadatas, training on this very path, so it is proclaimed. Second, there is the teaching by the sages of how being-taming Nirmanakayas appear in accord with individual realms of beings. As for their appearance as teachers who benefit beings, as said above, from the six places of Sambhogakaya of Akanishta, emanate six rays of light to the places of the six kinds of beings. At their tips are letter garlands, which perform benefits by appearing as the individual teachers. What is so known is the field of Sambhogakaya. From this come Nirmanakaya, who are the tamers of beings. They dwell within the six realms, appearing teachers in each. There are Indra, Aravala, Shakyamuni, and Sengi Rabten, Javala Mukadeva, and Yamaraja.
Each of these six sages purifies the minds of beings of one of these realms throughout the ten directions. From Sambhogakaya light rays, circular garlands of syllables emanate as teachers in the places of the six kinds of beings. In the place of gods are divine sages, Lord Indra and so forth. In the place of Ashuras is Aravala. In the place of human beings are the great sage Shakyamuni and so forth. In the place of the animals are Singhi Rabtan and so forth. In the place of the Pretas are Javala Mukadeva and so forth. In the place of the hell beings is Yamaraja and so forth. These individual tamers are self-existing, accomplishing benefits for beings without motion or effort. This is the blessings of the great compassion. It arises from the cause of the increasing white virtue of beings. The Dharma appears in a threefold way, like water, the moon's reflection, and the disk of the moon. As the moon has the power of establishing reflections, the moon of Sambhogakaya has the power of making emanations arise from the viewpoint of those to be tamed. As water in a vessel has the power of holding reflections, those to be tamed have the merit of an emanation appearing. When those two come together, as the moon effortlessly arises in the water, the reflection emanated from the moon of the teacher arises when there are those to be tamed, and never at an untimely moment. The hundred actions says, In the ocean where water dragons live, waves may rise at an inappropriate time, but the Buddha's coming to children to be tamed never comes at an inappropriate time. In the four directions of the world, with above and below making six directions, as limitless as space, including the intermediate directions above and below, as to many of the six kinds of beings as exist, by their own karma these emanations are shown. They appear to those above in the celestial realms, to human beings and animals in the middle, and to hell beings and pretas below. To these beings who experience various joys and sorrows, benefiting as many as them as there may be, countless inconceivable and immeasurable sages appear. The secret essence says, Then from all the Tathagatas, as the blessings of the great compassion, come the so-called insight beings, the six sages. They come forth from the body, speech, and mind vajras of the Tathagata, having come forth by the power of karma, above, below, and everywhere in the ten directions of the six realms, in each limitless three-thousand-fold realm, the Bhagavan, these great sages, benefit beings in each world by the four kinds of taming. The four kinds of taming are taming by the great merit of the body, taming through speech by the dharmas of various vehicles, taming through the mind of great higher perceptions, taming through inconceivable Buddha activity. The Buddha qualities are all-pervading and not separately counted. In the first, there is taming by the twelve deeds of a Buddha and so forth. The Uttara Tantra says, By great compassion, the knower of the world, having seen all the world, not moving from Dharmakaya, by various kinds of emanations manifesting in birth, he emanates from Tushita, enters the womb, is born, is skilled in the arts and sciences, enjoys his harem of queens, renounces, performs austerities, goes to the essence, enlightenment, overcomes hosts of maras, attains complete perfection, turns the wheel of dharma, and passes into nirvana. In as many worlds as there are, these are shown in the impure fields. As for his taming by speech, the secret essence says, By his power of taming, as antidotes to the 84,000 kinds of conceptualizations and kleshas, he teaches the vehicles of gods and human beings, the Shravaka-yana, the Pracheka-buddha-yana, the Bodhisattva-yana, and the unsurpassed vehicle. 84,000 dharmas have been taught, are taught, and will be taught. As Shakyamuni turns the wheel of dharma in different realms of samsara, the melodious speech of dharma has 60 limbs.
with the teaching according with the interest and openness that each being has, as such teachings are given at one time to limitless different sentient beings, the teachings of the 84,000 gates of Dharma and so on are simultaneously heard like an echo. The sound and words of the apparent speech of Nirmanakaya have no individuating characteristics. They are self-appearances of the minds of those to be tamed and blessings of the Buddha. The Uttara Tantra says, Just as reverberations of an echo arise within the apprehensions of others, without any thoughts or making anything, not really existing outside or internally, so the speech of the Tathagata arises within the apprehension of others, without any thoughts or making anything, not really existing outside or internally. This same speech, in the ears of those to be tamed, achieves the sixty limbs of melodiousness. The summary of the intention says, The roots are like this, like Brahma, like the sound of cymbals, like songs and dances, like the Kalavika bird, like the music of thunder, like an echo. Lord of Lanka, the limbs are like this, producing ideas, intelligible, worthy of being listened to, without disharmony, very profound, interesting to hear, completely undisturbing, pleasant and interesting to the ear, completely without clashing, supremely clear. Arising for the array of gates, these and their limbs arise entirely perfect. The six roots multiplied by each of the ten limbs make sixty altogether. As for the ten natures of these sixties, the same text says, Lord of Lanka, what are its natures? They are like this, a great show melody, all-pervadingly abiding, quickly understandable, cutting off doubts, equal in its single vision, ephemeral manifestation, entering everywhere, producing yearning, specially acting, taming everything. Each of the ten natures, multiplied by the six roots, mates sixty, the sixty multiplied among themselves become the thousand limbs of melody, called the ocean of limbs and melody. Thus the reflected emanations of the Supreme Buddha are seen. As on a background of Vaidurya or lapis lazuli, the reflection of a statue of Indra appears, so the mental appearances of the pure karma of beings appear. The Uttara Tantra says, Just as the ground of polished Vaidurya, the reflection of the king of gods appears, so on the polished grounds of the minds of beings, the reflection of the Lord of Sages rises. That reflection for beings does not have any arising, setting, or disturbance. Disturbance gets in by the power of one's own mind. As for the taming by mind, the secret essence says, Knowing all and everything in the four modes of time, knowing all continua of the minds of all, seeing all phenomenon with the miraculous eye, hearing all phenomenon with the miraculous ear, by miraculous awareness experiencing them all. The undefiled experience of Samantabhadra, the great, completely perfect, six higher perceptions is like that. There are these six higher perceptions, the vision of the divine eye, the divine ear, non-obscuration, knowing the thoughts of others, by knowing the four times and remembering many lives, remembering former existences, displaying whatever miracles will tame beings. By these stages, all minds are accepted and known. Then, by performing benefits, they are tamed. Regarding taming by Buddha activity, the secret essence says, His form being everywhere is inconceivable. His mind being everywhere is inconceivable. His face being everywhere is inconceivable. His speech being everywhere is inconceivable. There are countless such inconceivable appearances in the ten directions. 
each of the details of body, speech, and mind also exist as an inconceivable assembly, pervading the ten directions of the Buddha field and doing merits. Moreover, by body, speech, and mind real, substantial benefits are produced, and all these Buddha activities within all things and continua are explained as being different. The Explanation of Emanations and Further Emanations The six sages in the six realms of beings, which have been discussed, are the number of the principal ones. These six chief emanations have countless sub-emanations. They are also found in each of the realms of the gods. From the Brahma and Ishvara realms, right up to Akanishta, they appear as teachers in every one of them. The six sages are included among the six kinds of beings, existing in the realization of those to be tamed. The six names, Lord Indra, among the gods and so forth, are mere examples. The sages are emanations from space, and by these emanations, from the viewpoint of sentient beings, countless further emanations perform benefits. Even in the realms of the gods, from the four great kings up to Akanishta, the principal ones of the god realms perform taming. Taming whatever needs to be tamed. They also appear wherever humans are tameable, manifesting as Shravakas and Pracheka Buddhas. As bodhisattvas or kings, they tame those human beings. Among the asuras are also such different kinds of teachers. Among the animals they may appear as birds to birds, or to deer like excellent lions, and the other ways. The different kinds of teachers transcend the scope of thought. Likewise among pretas and also beings of hell, they appear in forms that are appropriate. In the human world too, there is not only one emanation. There is taming by innumerable kshatriyas, brahmins, women, and so forth. The single Buddha emanates Shravakas, Pracheka Buddhas, kings, and so forth, who similarly perform benefits. Similarly, produced among animals, they tame them. For taming wild animals, they appear as lions, and so forth. Among hell beings and pretas, it is similar. Wherever there are sentient beings, benefits are performed by the Buddha emanations. The Avatamsaka Sutra says, Chi, son of noble family, as for the emanations of the Buddha, Whatever sort of beings there are to be tamed, these immeasurable ones perform benefits by that sort of form, color, and name. It is like this. In the realm of the Lord of the Gods, having emanated as the Lord of the Gods, they genuinely transmit the path of the Ten Commandments of virtuous actions. Similarly, for those who are to be tamed by renunciates, Brahmins, Pratas, or hell beings, the Buddha emanates in those forms and benefits them. How Benefits Are Performed by Wisdom how individual benefits are performed. As to how, each of these tamers are beings possessed of two kinds of wisdom. These are the wisdom of nature and wisdom of extent. Knowing dharmata and distinctly knowing dharmas, they produce the two benefits for those who are to be tamed. As for the wisdom of tamers, of beings and the supreme emanation, depending on dharmata, there is the wisdom of nature, and depending on dharman, there is the wisdom of extent. The way of knowing, it is like this. The wisdom of nature sees emptiness as reality. It teaches beings the meaning of total pacification. The wisdom of extent knows minds and their various powers. Distinctly knowing these, it shows limitless styles of dharma. Having come to know the empty essence of dharmata, these emanations teach sentient beings the dharma of unborn nature. The middle-length Prajnaparamita says, Ki, sentient beings come here. All dharmas are by nature unborn. Because I shall teach you the dharma of how the kleshas are, you shall discriminate emptiness. 
seeing all the nature, powers, and propensities of those who are to be tamed by their wisdom of extent, they teach the Dharma in accord with that. The same text says, Having fully seen the natures of sentient beings, two sentient beings, all of whom have the kleshas, to tame their kleshas, I teach the Dharma. The way of appearing to impure beings. Thus these emanations of the six sages are appearances for impure sentient beings. These are the teachers appearing to beings that are impure. The realms of the sixfold world of the beings of the six realms. The teacher will match the projections of those who are to be tamed. The various vehicles of the Dharma are never fixed. The time will equal a kalpa of the beings who are to be taught. The place of the Nirmanakaya is any place where sentient beings appear. The teacher appears in accord with what appears to them. Because of different mental conceptions of sentient beings and because of their different powers and senses, the Dharma is taught with various assemblies of vehicles, teachers, place, and retinue. The all-creating king says, As for the fields of taming of Nirmanakaya, in Jambudvipa there are a hundred million or more. In all of them the compassion of self-arising wisdom tames the six kinds of continua of sentient beings. Also, as for teaching the antidote to passion, 21,000 Vinayas have been taught. As for teaching the antidote to aggression, 21,000 Sutras have been taught. As for the teaching of the antidote to ignorance, 21,000 Abhidharmas were taught. As antidotes equally taming the three poisons, equally from the three Pitakas, 21,000 were taught. In total, there are 84,000 teachings. They were taught as antidotes to the three poisons. How impure appearances arise. As just explained, thus with the six worlds of beings of the six realms, as a result of karma and habitual patterns, due to the cause and effect of good and evil deeds, there are various ups and downs and joys and sorrows. The six teachers, too, are only appearances to beings, just like Buddhas and beings that may appear in our dreams. Though their essence is pure, the phenomenal details are not, so does apparent variety rise in the play of compassion. Because of the karma and habitual patterns of beings, by virtue we whirl about in the higher realms and by non-virtue in the lower realms, we experience various joys and sorrows like appearances in a dream. The Buddha blessings that wake us up from this sleep appear from our own good karma. These beneficial Buddha emanations, the sage, the Buddha Bhagavat, and so forth, are also like a dream. The non-establishment of benefits by such self-appearances of beings is like that of emanations who appear to proliferate in a dream. The Jewel Heap Sutra says, By me, for all dream-like sentient beings, emanating like dreams, though Dharma is taught, essenceless, it is non-dual in its nature, to be understood as selfless, empty, and hollow. The middle-length Mahaprajnaparamita says, Shibuti, all dharmas are like a dream, like an illusion. Nirvana, too, is like a dream, like an illusion. The vessel and essence of confused appearances are false. Any Buddhas and beings appearing within it are also false. They do not exist. They appear while they do not exist. They are like Buddhas and beings in a dream. Though their essence is the primordial purity of Buddhahood, when samsara and nirvana appear like a dream, the sentient beings of the six realms and the teachers who tame them appear as these bad appearances. But also, even as they appear, they are non-dual with the primordial purity of the single space of the Datu. The Sutra of the Non-Arising of All Dharmas says, Without any Buddha, there is no Dharma in Sangha. Anyone who knows that is competent. The nature of sentient beings is taught to be Buddha. 
Enlightenment's nature of Buddha is taught as all sentient beings. Sentient beings and enlightenment are not two. Whoever knows that is an excellent being. For sentient beings seen by the compassion of the Buddha, tamer and tamed, are distinguished and benefits performed. When wrong conceptions and their habitual patterns have been purified, the space of peace has been gained. However, by the great kindness of wisdom, when sentient beings have been clearly and distinctly seen, those beings confused by futility, grasping an ego, become intended objects of compassion. As they are led by skillful arts, by the primordial power of effortless, spontaneous deeds, benefits are performed. The secret essence says, Examinations with wrong conceptions are purified, since they are not other than the space of wisdom. When they are connected with great compassion, the six realms appear with their places, times, and beings. How these also possess limitless compassion. As for these six emanated great nirmanakayas, these are the limitless emanations of compassion. Such Buddha activity lasts as long as samsara, from the space of the datu, from the blessings of the immeasurable compassion of the essence of wisdom, self-appearing emanations benefit sentient beings. A nature of those to be tamed, skillful arts, and antidotes of taming, and a time when these occur, are nowhere to be found. The benefits of taming arise effortlessly, like the appearance of the moon and water. The Uttara Tantra says, As for the natures of those to be tamed, and the means of taming those to be tamed, and the actions by which their natures will be tamed, Going to the realms and times in which they are to be found, the all-pervading Lord spontaneously enters. Beings of the lower realms are established in the higher realms, then they are led to the level of liberation. Those in higher realms are kept from harm and distress. When they have been benefited, they too are established in liberation. Those who do not dwell on the path are made to enter it. Those who dwell on it are connected with ever higher virtues. They are established in the ten bumis and afterward in enlightenment. In brief, the nature of sentient beings is instantly turned to happiness. Then gradually, according to their individual fortune, in the three enlightenments, they are led out of samsara and established in liberation. Real and mental Buddha activity protect them from suffering for as long as samsara is not emptied. The Abhisamaya Lamkara says, In a similar way, for as long as samsara lasts, this activity is maintained to continue uninterrupted. The aspects are taught by nine examples. An increase arises when Indra is seen. After the Buddha has been seen, the purified mind aspires to practice the two accumulations. As the sound of the divine drum motivates us away from carelessness and clears away fear, the sound of the drum of Dharma clears away the carelessness and fear of samsara. Like rain from a cloud, the falling rain of Dharma increases the wholesomeness of our continua. As Brahma appears in the place of the gods without moving from his place, Rupakaya benefits beings while not moving from the Dharmakaya. As lotuses blossom in the sun, the lotuses of students blossom and darkness is dispelled. Like a wish-fulfilling jewel, with complete non-thought, benefit for others is performed. As with an echo, the one melody may be heard as sixty. From the time benefit is performed, its sounds and words do not exist. As the sky has a nature without complexity, by revelation of the basis of arising, dharmakaya, benefit is produced. As the earth increases harvest, it produces the benefit of increasing all the harvests of virtue of sentient beings. The Uttara Tantra says, Like Indra, a drum, a cloud, like Brahma, or the sun, or like a precious king of wish-fulfilling gems, like an echo, the sky, or the earth, 
as long as samsara lasts, for the family of yogins, the effortless helpers of others, the teachers manifest like the lord of gods in a jewel. In well-admonishing, they are like a drum, the cloud of wisdom and kindness of universal lords, thus pervading limitless beings to the pinnacle of samsara. Immaculate like Brahma, not moving from their place, they teach by the appearance of many emanations. Like the sun, their light of wisdom radiates everywhere. With a pure and precious, wish-fulfilling gem-like mind, the speech of the victorious ones, like an echo, is letterless. Their bodies are like space, pervasive, formless, eternal. Like the earth, for all the medicines of the white dharma of beings, they are always the ground, the ground of Buddhahood. The three kinds of nirmanakaya produce benefit by materially appearing, because they have emanated by the blessings of the Buddha and also, because they tame beings and so forth, they are called emanations. Though that is explained, from the time of emanation to tame beings, they perform benefits by wisdom, and their space-like Buddha activity is perfected. From this compassion rise the various nirmanakaya. They appear in the form of mindless, material things. They are paintings and reliefs, in various natural forms. They are different writings and different objects of worship, lotuses, wish-fulfilling trees, and pleasant parks, along with wonderful palaces and pleasure groves. They are caravansaries and ships and bridges, lamps and jewels, food and clothing and vehicles. Such material things appear, doing many benefits. As for the particulars of how objects emanated by the Buddha benefit beings in the world, there are paintings, reliefs, self-appearing images of body, speech, and mind, writings, deities, stupas, and so forth. Anyone who has ever seen them is moved with powerful faith and longing, and the seeds of liberation are planted. Following these examples, with this constant support, there is an increase of virtue within the continua of sentient beings, and so Buddha emanations accumulate. The neck pin of mantra says, now they remain in the time of the dark age, in the forms of artifacts and letters, thinking it is so, I have faith in them. The Mahayana Sutra Lamkara says, Created, born, and great enlightenment, by the teacher who always teaches enlightenment, as for these emanation bodies of the Buddha, they are the great means of liberation. The created phenomenon appearances of the created Nirmanakaya have just been explained. As for born, any being who really benefits other sentient beings is nirmanakaya of bodily emanation. In a time of famine, it might be a big fish. At the time of sickness, small gentle living creatures and so on. On the island of Rakshasis, the king of horses, Bahala, and so forth emanated and performed benefits. The supreme emanation displays the twelve deeds of a Buddha. Similarly, there are emanations of lotuses and wish-fulfilling trees, pleasure groves, palaces, and gardens for renunciates. When a merchant is wandering in a desert plain, a city is emanated. On great waters, boats, ships, and bridges are emanated. Those capable in actions of the great secret upaya might emanate a path in a forest for a single night. Also emanating lamps and the like for a wandering merchant, they might show that path. At a time of famine, by emanating wishing jewels, a rain of food, and so forth may fall. Emanated chariots, elephants, and other mounts may be established only for whatever sentient beings can be benefited. This is taught in the Jewel Heap Sutra and other sutras. In particular, the Sutra of Entering the Sphere of Inconceivable Wisdom says, Manjushri, if someone will be tamed by seeing the color of the body of the Tathagata as golden, the golden color appears. If someone needs pleasure groves, jewels, medicine, vidya mantra, and many other things to be tamed, the forms and colors of those appear, 
that is extensively taught. The spontaneous arising of temporal and ultimate true goodness, thus appearing, having temporally served as happy and pleasant places, they finally connect us with the path of peace. These various emanations produce spontaneous benefits. By that play of emanations, temporally individual sentient beings' minds are gladdened and made happy by virtues of body and speech. Then by the wealth of ultimate Buddhahood, the various nirmanakayas also spontaneously produce that supremely great benefit. The Uttara Tantra says, These appearances are utterly non-conceptual and immovable. Indeed, upon that ground, the great benefit is at hand. Now there is the final summary of how the actions and deeds of these kayas arise from space and dissolve into space, depending on Buddhahood. If there are no students, the teacher subsides into space. Then the self-experience of Sambhogakaya totally dissolves into the state of Dharmakaya. If there is no vessel there to hold the water, the moon reflected in water vanishes into space. And by the power of its phases, the moon will do the same. The full moon, whose face is without increase and decrease, if there are students to see it, gradually appears. Thus it is that the fruition is spontaneous. Without a vessel of water, the reflection of the moon in water is self-dissolved. Just so, without the water vessel of students, the reflected moon of Buddhahood appearing in that viewpoint, the self-appearance of Sambhogakaya dissolves into Dharmakaya and is gathered back into the space of wisdom. That is what is being said. At that time, individual and personal wisdom itself rests in meditative equipoise as subtle wisdom. If again there are students, without movement or effort, instantly the external luminosity of Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya simultaneously arise from non-thought, producing benefits as before. In Majamaka, this is called producing benefits through appearances for others due to former aspirations. The Uttara Tantra and so forth say that in post-meditation, benefits are performed, but there is no moving from the essence of meditation. The Uttara Tantra says, Non-thought and its post-meditation are both maintained to be wisdom. Also, the style of bodhisattvas in their post-meditation in truly freeing beings in the world is like the Tathagatas, but like the earth and an atom, like an ocean and an ox track. Between Buddhas and bodhisattvas, the difference is like that. If you're still listening, you have great diligence and perseverance in the Dharma, and you should rejoice in your own merits. So what's the main takeaways then? First, literally everything you see may be a manifestation of a Buddha, come to teach you and tame you, so be humble and respectful and watch your actions of body, speech, and mind. Second, although you're not a Buddha yet, you will be, and what better thing do you have to do besides work to become one? Third, have faith in the triple gem and make the aspiration to be born in the pure land of Amitabha. There's literally no disadvantage in doing so. And fourth, enjoy your life and be content, but don't be fooled by appearances. This dreamlike apparition is like the flame that draws in the moth to get burned, like the fisherman's lure that causes the fish to get hooked, like the deer call of the hunter that invites the deer to get shot, and like the cool feeling of the mud that inundates the elephant. Be sure to dedicate your merits towards Buddhahood for all. May you generate the causes of happiness and be free of the causes of suffering. May you rejoice in the merits of others and have impartiality towards those near and far. I love you all. May we meet in the pure land of ultimate bliss. Namo Amitabha.